It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty. It's time right now. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. play another song and then <laughs> then we'll get ready. Here we go. We make politics erotic. We learned our own repute. 
Professor Mike Steinel. That is our love song, his love song to Professor Catherine Liu, author of Virtue Hoarders. Yeah, I know. I look like shit. Uh, <laughs> brevity is wit. That's my message for today. I know I do 10-hour podcasts, but I'm so sick and tired of people saying brevity is the soul of wit. Brevity is wit. Brevity is the soul of wit. That's not brevity. Just say brevity is wit. If you're trying to get people to be brief, why would you add words like the soul of when you can just say brevity is wit? I'll tell you what wasn't brief. <laughs> that, what I just said, and Peter Jackson's Get Back on Disney. I don't know if you've had the privilege to see this six-hour documentary featuring raw footage of the Beatles recording the Let It Be album. Like anyone my age, I wanted to be a Beatle. That was what was so magical about the Beatles. You could imagine yourself being one. And then I watched this movie and I realized, oh shit, being a Beatle means lots and lots of meetings that drag on and on because Paul, Paul wrote one-fifth of a song, and we all must sit around waiting for Paul to finish it, maybe with John pitching in. Those recording sessions were just meeting after meeting. They were meetles. It was everyone sitting around while Paul alpha-dogged everybody. Yeah, I get it. Paul McCartney is wonderful. He's a genius. But go be a wonderful genius on your own time. I don't want to sit around watching you be a wonderful genius while I wrote some songs that are pretty much finished that we're never going to record because you can't figure out what rhymes with xenophobia. Paul can't figure out what rhymes with xenophobia, so now he has to change the entire intent behind Get Back. Because what most of us don't know is that Get Back, originally the song, was about people who are anti-immigrant. 
Pluscassange. Isn't that amazing? Pluscassange. People were anti-immigrant 50 years ago, and pop singers 50 years ago were too frightened to write a song about it. Originally, until Paul chickened out, Get Back was an indictment of people who were xenophobic. It was get back, get back. You'd better get back to your commonwealth homes, right? The song was originally making fun of people like Trump, making fun of, you know, uh, what was it, Mosley, Osley, Mosley, people who didn't want Pakistanis coming to London. But God forbid Paul McCartney write a song that was actually about something really important. No, let, let's not write a song that explicitly calls out xenophobia. Instead, let's be cryptic and let people read into that song whatever they want to. Get Back was, turns out, chicken shit. The song is chicken shit. It's beautiful. I love the Beatles, but it was chicken shit. Most of what the Beatles sang about was chicken shit. I love the Beatles. Hence, I must attack them because I attack anything I love. Uh, the lyrics to Revolution. I cannot tell you the number of times that song has been played to rev people up before protest because nobody listened to the lyrics. There was nothing revolutionary about revolution. You say you'll change the Constitution. Well, you know, we'd all like to change your head. You tell me it's the institution. Well, you know, you better free your mind instead. Revolution is telling people to calm the F down. Don't do anything. That is basically what revolution, that's the message of revolution. Don't do anything. Free your mind instead. Take some acid and retreat into your own consciousness and we all know how that worked out for the Beatles and for everybody who was part of the protest movement of the 60s. I can't think of too many Beatles songs that were explicitly pro-Union or anti-Vietnam War. I, I know John recorded some later, but I can't think of too many Beatles songs that spoke for the 99%. Hey, my heart explodes when I hear the Beatles when I watched the Peter Jackson documentary on Disney, but Pete Seeger or The Clash, they are not. So again, I, I'm going to rewatch it because it's like you're there with the Beatles. Uh, you watch it and, and you should, you should get the password for your friend's Disney account and watch it. And you realize, of course they broke up. Look at Look at look at poor Ringo's face. Look at George Harrison, who actually quits. They, they have this look on their face like, when is this meadle going to end? Just one meadle after another. And John Lennon brings Yoko to sit next to him through every meadle. And, 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 and <laughs> poor George has his Harry Krishna sitting off in the corner. And I'll get to that in a second. It's because of Paul. He's alpha-dogging everybody and being wonderful. And he's, a, you know, look at what a genius I am. John brought Yoko to sit next to him throughout the entire recording ses uh, sessions. And it's typical sexism to blame Yoko 
for the breakup of the Beatles. Yoko didn't break up the Beatles. Watch the Peter Jackson documentary. She kept them together. If she weren't sitting next to John all the time, John would have throttled Paul. John would have gotten out of his seat and done an El Cabang with his guitar over Paul's head. The only way John could have survived another needle was to have Yoko by his side. What a nightmare. What a nightmare to be a Beatle, sitting around for 12 hours, 15 hours, while Paul goofs off until he figures out his song. They're all chain smoking, trying to keep the rage down. They were ready to kill Paul. The reason everything was filmed for Let It Be was this was a potential crime scene and they needed the footage for evidence. That's not a documentary, that's a surveillance camera to make sure whoever killed Paul was caught on film. Of course the Beatles broke up. As John said, the question isn't why the Beatles broke up, the question is why have the Stones still stayed together? And the answer is Mick Jagger was wise enough to get Keith Richards addicted to smack. You know, you get your writing partner addicted to smack, he's compliant, and then you just thaw him out every couple of months when you want to go on tour. Look, the Beatles documentary, like the Beatles, is fantastic. It is. And so is Paul McCartney. I just can't imagine trying to work with Paul McCartney. And I love the Beatles, and like anyone I love, I must hate and destroy them. I love Get Back and I love the Beatles, but Jesus Christ, I could never have survived being Paul McCartney's friend. He's just too much of an alpha dog and an exhibitionist. And yes, he's a genius, but watch the watch Get Back. He's, you wouldn't want to work with him. That's why I surround myself with mediocrities. And that's going to be the name of my band or my favorite Greek philosopher, Mediocrities. Welcome to the mop up for January 6, 2021. I'm David Feldman. And yes, I look like shit. I'm coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 38 degrees and COVID. -y. And I don't even know if our guests are showing up today. You haven't uh, a lot of people. I think a lot of people on January 1st, welcome 2022 and said, oh, this shit again, another year. And they rolled over and went back to bed. Well, here are the latest numbers on COVID. The two week rolling average here in America shows infections are up 247 percent. But deaths are down by three percent again. Get your booster, get your shots, wear a mask. Doctors in California report the first case of fluorona. Fluorona. That's where, I'm not making this up. That's fluorona. <laughs> that's, that's where you get the flu and the coronavirus at the same time. And they're calling it fluorona out in California. Isn't that great? The flu and Corona are now a super couple, just like Brangelina, Kimye, and Benefer, only not so much vomiting involved with 
flurona, not so nauseating with flurona as it is with uh, benifurbrangeline and Kimye. Flu plus corona equals flurona. Flurona's symptoms include congestion and fatigue, or as they're now calling that supercouple, contigue. Contigue. Congestion and fatigue is contigue. Speaking of supercouples, I'm not going to say contigue, Don Jr. and Kimberly are officially engaged. Don Jr. and Kimberly are officially engaged. If you want to buy the lovely couple a gift, they're registered with the law firm of Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood. I think they care more about their legal fees getting paid than the threat count on their sheets. So you might want to help them out. This is true. They went over each other's assets and Kimberly is the one who demanded the prenup. That's how broke the Trump family is. This marriage, we can all agree, is doomed. I know that for a fact because Don Jr.'s bachelor party has been scheduled for after the wedding. But Kimberly and Don Jr. are so excited, they've already picked out the caterer they're planning to stiff. Kimberly's dress, Kimberly's dress, and that will be the only thing that's stiff uh, on the wedding night. Kimberly's dress will not be white for fear that Don Jr. will try to snort it. You know, they should just get married at City Hall in between in between all their arraignments. I mean, they're going to be down at City Hall, you know, getting arrested. They might as well get a justice of the peace to marry them. Well, from the bottom of my heart, and I do mean this because they take a lot of ribbing on this show, I wish them the absolute worst. I do, and that's not a joke. I wish Don Jr. and Kimberly, who used to be married to California Governor Gavin Newsom, which should explain that most people in politics are completely full of shit. I do. I, I wish Don Jr. the hunter the worst, and I wish Kimberly the worst. I do. I hate them, and I hate their entire family, and I hate people who support Trump. I, I grew up in New York, New Jersey. I cannot believe that Trump still walks free. Donald Trump, I mean, I, Sidney Schonberg, who wrote The Killing Fields, Sidney Schonberg covered Pol Pot. Remember The Killing Fields, the movie? He was a New York Times reporter, and he covered the genocide in Cambodia. And then he came back in the late 70s for The New York Times, and they gave him a, a column, and he had PTSD from witnessing Pol Pot and the genocide. So Sidney Schonberg needed another Pol Pot, and he obsessed on Donald Trump. If you go read Sidney Schonberg, columnist for The New York Times, he warned us about Donald Trump in the late 70s. Donald Trump is a piece of shit. He is a naked man, a crazy naked man in the middle of the street, holding up traffic, hurling his own feces at everyone, including himself. That's who Trump is. And all anyone can do is stand around and watch and call him an existential threat to democracy, but do nothing.
but do absolutely nothing. There's a man in the middle of the street having a nervous breakdown, hurling his own feces at us. And we say, this man is an existential threat to democracy. We must do something. And what do we do? We watch. That's what we do. How is it possible that he and that family are walking free? You know, I've known about Trump. Most of us have known about Trump. We know what he is. I'm angrier at the people standing around doing nothing. Trump is that rabid dog who bit a child's face and the people who adopted that rabid dog will not put the dog down. Ever hear of people like that? They have a dog that bit a child right on the face. You know, I love dogs. I'm a vegan. But when a, when a child is bitten by a dog on the face, that dog has to go down. Sorry. Those are the rules. And that's who we are. We're, we're going, well, he only, he only bit one child. Mm -hmm. Well, today... January 6th is the one-year anniversary of when members of Congress finally got to experience how the rest of us feel every day of our lives. January 6th, horrible day, horrible day. But polling on January 6th shows that most Americans really don't care what happened to Congress because Congress doesn't care what's happened to Americans. You know, they're sitting around and just watching. And again, you know, I don't condone violence. Uh, I don't condone what happened on January 6th. I think the people who participated in that should be locked away forever. They should. And everybody who incited that riot uh, should be locked up forever. As I, you know, I'm I'm an Old Testament lefty. 2.5 million people behind bars, you know, let out the the nonviolent offenders and start putting these these people in. Uh, and we're not, you know, it's been a year, and most of us have moved on, including the Justice Department. So, you know, these big uh, ceremonies, this pageantry to commemorate. January 6th today, it's sound and fury signifying nothing. Uh, there are bigger problems that need to be addressed, like gun deaths, COVID deaths, climate catastrophe, a, a failed healthcare system. We have a Congress that let the eviction moratorium lapse. There's still no movement on student debt. Hang on. Uh, let's see if this is a... Hello? Hello? Okay. Thought it was, uh, I, as you know, I answer telemarketers. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, you know, there's uh, no movement on forgiving student debt. Plenty of money for our fictitious wars, but no, no more money for that child tax credit. While Nancy Pelosi and her husband and Josh Gottheimer trade 50, 60, $100 million in, in big tech stocks, trading on big tech companies that are destroying our democracy. And when asked about it, Pelosi says, there's nothing wrong with that. It's capitalism. That's 
That's our leadership. So America, the polling is there. Americans don't care about January 6th. And a lot of the articles I'm reading ask, why haven't the Democrats been able to capitalize on January 6th? Because the American people are too smart to fall prey to another con job of our democracy being at, you know, being threatened. Uh, despite what Joe Biden said today, he doesn't care about our democracy. He doesn't care about January 6th. If he did, Donald Trump would have been indicted by now. It's been a year and they're they're slow footing this because they're terrified or they don't care. But they're a little afraid of this the civil war that's never going to break out. A civil war is going to break out. Uh, 1964, less than a year after Jack Kennedy was assassinated, America was in the midst of a second civil war. African-Americans were fighting for the right to vote. They were fighting to integrate our schools. You had the Ku Klux Klan. You had white people. You had rioting. And, you know, LBJ said, bring it on. He said, bring it on. And he passed the civil rights bill of 64 and 65. Bring it on. And there were riots and there was violence. And then there was Vietnam and assassinations. We've been here before. The difference is before we got things done. All we have is the threat of a civil war with nothing to show for it. Go read about the 60s. Go read about the violence and the assassinations and the war with 50,000, 57,000 dead American soldiers and losing Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Jack Kennedy, Medgar Evers. It goes on and on and on. We had that civil war and things got done. We came out of the 60s with legislation. Now we just have a threat of a civil war with nothing to show for it because of cowardice. This is a nation of cowards. Biden won't indict Trump because he's terrified of a handful of morbidly obese militia members in Michigan and three proud boys. So we don't want to stir the hornet's nest. The law is the law. Trump should be indicted. What is the point of living in a surveillance state if we're not going to start rounding up our domestic enemies? It's been a year. It's been a year. Today, Biden said Trump holds a dagger to the throat of democracy. Nice rhetoric, a dagger to the throat of democracy. What? What does that mean? Uh, now, given the choice between Biden and Trump, I'll take Biden. And, you know, Trump incited a riot. So that's against the law. We know that he incited the riot. We know Giuliani did. We know they met the, the night before at the Willard to conspire to stir up some kind of riot. You've got an FBI and a Department of Homeland Security, President Biden. Use it. Well, we shouldn't be locking up our political enemies. This is the argument against locking up 
Donald Trump, because that's something he would do. Exactly. That's something he would do. That's why you need to lock him up. Remember, he talked about locking up Hillary. Uh, we have political enemies. Our political enemies right now are actual enemies of the state. There are there are people in the Republican Party who are enemies of the state. Literally indict, convict, rinse, lather and repeat. Why is Trump still standing in the middle of the street naked, hurling feces at us? Cowardice, cowardice and carelessness. Biden, Pelosi, they don't care. They don't care. And so the mainstream media, of course, lies to us about what transpired on January 6th. Uh, they call it an insurrection. Well, if it was an insurrection, prosecute. If it was treason, prosecute. And yet they can't. They can't prosecute for an insurrection or for treason because it wasn't treason. Not a single person facing charges right now has been charged with treason because it wasn't treason. It was a riot. But they build it up when they need it to be built up. And then they tamp it down when they actually have to do something about it. The Democrats are just are and the mainstream media lies about January 6th. They repeat the lie often enough for us to think that five people died on January 6th. That is a lie. Five people did not die on January 6th. That is a lie. Five people died tangentially. Let's review, okay? Let's review. Ashley Babbitt, remember her? She was the horse vessel of uh, the right wing on that day. She was the Air Force veteran who was trying to breach the House chamber and she crawled through a window and she was shot to death by a Capitol police officer. Now, had this been an insurrection after she was shot to death, they would have returned fire, which they didn't. I may be wrong. I don't know of any reported gunfire that came from the rioters. I, I don't think they whipped out any guns. I don't think there were any, I don't think there was any gunplay. I may be wrong. Okay, who else died that day? They say five people died that day. Uh, Kevin Greeson. He uh, had a stroke on a sidewalk outside the Capitol. He came to Washington, D.C. because he believed the election was stolen and he suffered from high blood pressure. And in the middle of the riot, he was struck dead by a heart attack. Mm, I'm not going to call that. I'm not going to call him a casualty of the the insurrection. That's one of the five that they say died at the insurrection. So he wasn't killed by the rioters. He was one of them. He was killed by his diet, essentially. Roseanne Boylan, 34-year-old Trump supporter, died that day. And we are told that 
we were told at first that she was crushed in the stampede to storm the Capitol. Weeks later, the Washington medical examiner said she died from a drug overdose. That's what killed her. So again, they, five people they say died that day. So far, three out of the five were the Trump supporters. The fourth was the founder of Trumparoo. Uh, that's a pro-Trump website. His name is Benjamin Phillips. He died that day from a stroke. Again, a Trump supporter died from heart disease. It kind of makes sense that the that the uh, the Trump supporters who die that day are going to die from heart disease and drug overdoses. These are not healthy people. Again, I'm not discounting what happened that day. It was a tragedy. It was not an insurrection. It was a mob. It was a riot. And some of our Capitol Police officers behaved heroically. But stop saying five people died that day. The only people who died that day were Trump supporters, and they died because they were fat, disgusting pigs on drugs. Tell us the truth. Those people were going to die that day with or without the storming of the Capitol. Ashley Babbitt is the outlier there. She was shot. Now we're told after the insurrection, five police officers died. They repeat that over and over again. Very tragic that five police officers died. The first, Officer Brian Sicknick, he died the next day. We were told that Officer Brian Sicknick died from injuries sustained by the insurrection, which was really just a riot. Well, that's not true. The medical examiner for Washington, D.C. says that Brian Sicknick died from a stroke. Very sad. And and the events of January 6th, the stress might have contributed to that stroke. I, I believe that's true. I do believe that's true. But he did not die as the media and the police insist directly from physical injuries sustained by taking on the insurrectionists. I'm very sorry he died. And I do believe the stress from the, the riots the day before led to his stroke. He died the next day. But there are degrees of manslaughter. Yes, they, pay, they played a part in this. But the way it's being presented to us is... Five officers were killed from the riot and, and five people were killed that day. It just isn't true. The crowd was violent. I saw the videos. It was terrifying. They are animals. They are animals. They should be locked away permanently. They use flagpoles and fire extinguishers as weapons. They use bear spray. They injured and traumatized the Capitol Police which has led to the death of five police officers. Again, one died the next day from a stroke. Tragic. And the other four? The other four died from suicide. Tragic. Tragic. And I blame Trump for their suicide. And I blame the animals who stormed the Capitol. 
But I also blame Congress for not providing free mental health care to Americans in this country. We have a suicide epidemic in this country. The suicide rate in America is at a 30-year high. America has one of the highest suicide rates in the industrialized world. That's because we don't treat mental illness in America. Nobody can afford to have their mental illness treated. That's why they end up voting for Trump and storming the Capitol and eating themselves to death. The prevention of suicide is a for-profit business in America. That's why we have an epidemic of suicide. I feel terrible that four police officers committed suicide in the weeks after the, the riot. And I do blame the riot. That had to be traumatizing. But I also blame a country that doesn't know how to treat people who are suicide risks. So instead, we just whitewash the entire thing and blame their suicides on the insurrection. That's it. We want a simple answer for a very complex problem. It was the, it was the insurrection Therefore, it was Mo Brooks' fault, it was Rudy Giuliani's fault, and Donald Trump's fault for, for inciting the riot. That's why these officers committed suicide. Partly. But we could have saved these officers if this country would address mental illness, which we don't. We, uh, we did have one officer, like I said, Officer Sicknick, die from a stroke the next day. And... I'll grant you it was probably from the riot. Uh, but, you know, strokes happen uh, from stress that's exacerbated by the, the poison in our diets, by the stress of living and working in America. It just wasn't the riot that contributed to his stroke. And yes, the riot, not the insurrection, was the worst thing to happen to our nation's capital since the Beach Boys ushered in July 4th in 1976. Uh, no, it was the worst thing to happen to our capital since the War of 1812. The Beach Boys without Brian Wilson. Uh, then it would have been great. Uh, but uh, the riot was the worst thing to happen to this country, to our capital, since 1812. But it wasn't the worst thing to happen to Americans. And that's why the polling shows that most Americans don't think January 6th is a top priority. The Democrats haven't squandered January 6th. There was really nothing to squander. It wasn't like 9-11. It wasn't an opportunity to unify the country and rally around the flag. Most Americans don't care about January 6th because the people inside the Capitol don't care about most Americans. Most Americans know that Joe Biden and the Democrats must speak out about January 6th because that's all they've got. You know, I am trying 
to defend the Democrats because the Republicans are far worse. The, the, the Republicans are far worse than the Democrats. Did I say that? The Republicans are far worse than the Democrats. They are. It's really hard to make the case for the Democrats other than the Republicans are far worse. And that's what this January 6th pageantry was all about. We really have done nothing for the past year, including indicting the people behind this riot. But uh, we're not as bad as the Republicans. That, that is what today was all about. I'm trying to defend Joe Biden. Here. Turns out uh, Joe Biden has gotten more judges on the bench than any president since Ronald Reagan. That's great. He did it sub Rosa. I'm just beginning to read about this. This is good. The Democrats are quietly repairing the damage to the judiciary that Trump has committed. So we are getting more Democrats on the bench. That's why we need a, a Democrat in the White House. Uh, okay, what else? Afghanistan? Yeah, I, I think Biden, I thought that was great leadership, just to rip the bandage off, expose the wound and get out. And, you know, you can't lose a war with dignity. And I thought Biden, you know, deserves to get reelected if he's running against Trump or any other Republican, Republican for the courts, and, and for the executive orders, he's been signing some of his executive orders and the pullout from Afghanistan. And maybe in the sweep of history, we'll look back at that. And that's what saved our, I don't want to call it a democracy, but maybe, maybe it was pulling out of Afghanistan that was his greatest moment. Uh, but there's really not much to point to after a year. The, the American Rescue Act, that was passed, what, back in March? $1.9 trillion. But it was supposed to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. That was something Biden was promising us. At the last minute, he yanked it. They gave us $300 a week extra in unemployment benefits until Labor Day. So from late March, early April until the beginning of September, you got an extra $300 a week in unemployment benefits. Okay. Uh, a one-time payment of $1,400 for every American, but that's not what was promised to us. You know, in the runoff election in Georgia, which the Democrat, the Democrats got control of the Senate on January 4th. And Biden was campaigning for Warnock and, and Osef by saying, you know, we need control of the Senate. I'll give you double that $1,400. And uh, he didn't. He just paid out $1,400. He gave us a 15% increase in food stamps briefly that expired on Labor Day. That's not really a lot. That's not really helping the 99%. There was a, a moratorium on evictions that has 
expired. The evictions have started. The uh, student debt uh, was temporarily forgiven. And it's that forgiveness has been extended another three months. But Joe Biden is not forgiving at the very least ten to fifteen thousand dollars in student loan debt, which he promised that he would do. And of course, and this one boggles the mind, the child tax credit of three hundred dollars a month that expired. And this was his crowning achievement, we were told. Uh, we were told that $300 a month for every child lifted millions of American children out of poverty. We were told this was the most transformative piece of legislation since Head Start, that $300 a month tax credit for, for kids. Uh, we're told that it lifted millions upon millions of children out of poverty. Uh, why would you accept that as a fact? How does $300 a month make the difference between a child being poor and not poor? $300 a month is the difference between a child being poor or not poor. I guess if you can say five people were killed on January 6th, by the insurrectionists, I guess if you can get away with saying that, you can get away with saying that extra $300 a month lifted millions and millions of American children out of poverty. Think about how we blindly accepted that. $300 a month. It's like Head Start. It's like Social Security. Where is the critical thinking in this country, at least in the media? How can you report with a straight face that Joe Biden lifted millions and millions of kids out of poverty, all because for a few months, their parents got an extra $300 each month. How is that acceptable? Uh, $21 billion for rental assistance. Did you know about that? His rescue plan in March had $21 billion for rental assistance. Did, did anyone get rental assistance? I'd be curious to know. Did you receive a postcard or a letter in the mail telling you that you could get federal assistance if you're having trouble with the rent? I didn't get that. So in terms of defending Biden, I'll defend him if he's running against Trump. Uh, I'll defend the Democrats in November for the midterms, but give me something to work with. Something. The bipartisan infrastructure bills, but no build back better. So we've got the bipartisan infrastructure bills that were passed. Keyword bipartisan, right? Give me something to work with so I can defend Joe Biden and the Democrats in the run up to the midterms. The Dems, the Democrats are going to run on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. You know what? So are the Republicans. That's why it's called the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Both sides can lay claim to it, and they should, because it's nothing more than a love letter 
to corporate America. It's a love letter to the internet companies, to public-private partnerships, to the stock market, and all the mobsters who run our construction industry. So you can't run on Build Back. You can't run on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. You could have run on Build Back Better. You could have run on Build Back Better. And again, pulling out of Afghanistan. Biden deserves credit on that. He, he ripped the bandage off, exposed the wound, and we killed innocent children on the way out, and we lost, and I do give him credit for that. There's no neat way to lose a war, and we lost Afghanistan. But instead of the peace dividend, we gave the Pentagon a raise. I thought you're supposed to uh, give people a raise when they do good work. Well, we're spending more on defense this year, more now than we ever did before, even though we're not at war. But that doesn't matter because the Pentagon works for Raytheon and Boeing and the Carlyle Group run by David Rubenstein, who uh, runs the Carlyle Group, the biggest war profiteer the biggest war profiteer in the world, David Rubenstein, and that's where Joe Biden spent his Thanksgiving dinner in the home of David Rubenstein, the world's biggest war profiteer. Uh, so the Pentagon is going to get their money so they can pass it along to all those patriotic war subcontractors. So, yeah, it's been a year since the riot. We have a new president. The Democrats have control of the Senate and the House. And uh, Build Back Better looks like it's dead. And uh, we are. There is a dagger to our throat. There is. It's not Trump's dagger to democracy. We are facing one of the biggest crises in American history. A healthcare crisis, COVID, that has killed more Americans than World War II, Korea, Vietnam, both Gulf Wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, and 9-11 combined. It's right there. It's, this is our opportunity, Joe and the Democrats, to be the greatest generation. What is it, 800,000 dead from COVID? Uh, and what does Biden have to show? for this. The vaccine rollout, uh, I give him a little credit for, for that. Uh, that should be a no-brainer, getting people vaccinated. Uh, a little slow on the tests, making free tests available to all Americans. Uh, you know, the the Dems, the Democrats, should be using this crisis as an opportunity to address the tragedy that is our health care in America. Instead of COVID, they use the riot from a year ago as their crisis, as their opportunity to scare us into voting for them, right? Instead of changing our health care system and running on that, they go back to January 6th and Donald Trump, evil, you know, he's 
he's the weapons of mass destruction. He's, he's Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. That's what they run on. They say uh, democracy is at stake. They say that D Donald Trump is holding a dagger to democracy's throat, that we must protect our democracy. Well, calling America a democracy is like calling January 6th an insurrection. We, we are not a democracy and we never were. You're misusing the word to call it a democracy. You know, maybe a republic. But, you know, new studies have come out that shows we're, uh, we're not a democracy. We just aren't. We don't, we, we don't fit the standards of a democracy, probably because Americans can't even agree on what we want when it comes to a democracy or a republic. We really can't agree on who should vote and who shouldn't. The Republicans have been pretty explicit about who should vote and who shouldn't. They want white ignoramuses to vote. At least they're being honest. Uh, they want to suppress the vote. They're dishonest about voter fraud, but they're honest about all this legislation they're passing that makes it really hard for people of color, poor people to vote. But uh, I don't think the Democrats have been too honest about who they want to vote. We haven't really had a discussion about our democracy, how much democracy we really want. We haven't had an honest conversation about how much democracy we really want because America feels it's has a sense of entitlement when it comes to democracy because we've been brainwashed. We've been, because we're so stupid, we've been convinced that we're, we're the longest continuous democracy and the greatest democracy in the history of civilization when we're anything but. We're, we're not discussing the vote. We don't discuss who should vote and who shouldn't. Because the dirty, dark secret is most Americans don't think everyone should vote. You know, all my life, I've heard about the genius of James Madison, the slaveholder who is considered the, the father of our Constitution. And the genius of Madison, they say, is he wrote into our so-called blueprint for democracy, the Constitution. He wrote into it a healthy mistrust of the mob. And that played well. That Madisonian view of democracy played well in the 60s uh, because during the 60s, we were challenging the idea of majoritarian rule, the rights of minorities, right? Madisonian democracy played well after World War II when we saw the rise of a civil rights movement movement that spoke to the needs of minorities, right? A fear of the majority. So we twisted Madison's words and we said the genius of his constitution is that he wanted our lawmakers to be able to enact laws that prevented minorities from the majority. So we read into that like he wanted to protect Muslims and blacks and Jews and Arabs and 
and the LGBTQ community from the white majority. That's what we read into Madisonian democracy. What we read into Madisonian democracy, a mistrust of the mob, of majority rule, is that if we put integration to a vote in the 60s, it would lose. But our constitution opposed mob rule so we could rise above the mob and protect the minorities. That's how we convinced ourselves of the constitution's resilience. But the truth is, our founding fathers, especially James Madison, only wanted to protect one minority. Madison, yes, had a healthy distrust of the mob because he was part of the minority that he wanted to protect, white, rich, slaveholding males. We've learned this. This is what's become apparent to us. Everything in the Constitution, from the Electoral College to the way we use, the way we used to elect senators, to who is a citizen, who can vote and who count, who count, who can't vote. It was all designed in the Constitution to lock in white supremacy, which is why systemic racism persists and will persist even when rich white men truly are the minority. Uh, we are really where we've always been, a handful of rich white men controlling our destiny, controlling the government, controlling the economy at the expense of majoritarian rule. It's always been this, always been this way. It's never changed. We're exactly where we started when the Constitution first got ratified. Uh, even slave labor, we still haven't gotten rid of slave labor. We have prison labor or we're using slaves overseas. We are exactly where we started. Our Constitution is not resilient because the country hasn't changed. Because just like the Bible, the rich and the powerful see in the Constitution what they want to see and they get their way. You know, evangelical Christians can read the Sermon on the Mount and convince themselves and others that Jesus hates the LGBTQ community and that the rich shall inherit the earth. Rich and powerful white men can read the First Amendment and conclude money is speech. If you hold the power, you can read into the Constitution or the New Testament, whatever, whatever you want it to be. It's just an instrument that you can play. Harvard Law churns out lawyers who are trained to protect the Constitution before they protect the most vulnerable. We swear an oath to the Constitution, not to the 99%. The Constitution is more sacred than the 99%, because that suits the Harvard Law graduates. The Constitution has become their sacred document, right up there with their, their diploma from Harvard Law or their warranty for their new Maserati. So before the Democratic Party, Biden scares us into uh, actually believing we're about to lose our democracy 
maybe we should have a conversation about what kind of democracy we have and want. And maybe they should do some polling on whether or not Americans care about their democracy. I don't think they do. I think they have bigger concerns. And I don't think most Americans are open to the idea of everybody over the age of 18 who's an American citizen voting. I think most Americans, given the choice, would do their own little gerrymandering. I've spoken to a lot of my friends who are members of the Democratic Party, and a lot of them, when you have this conversation, they bemoan all these laws that the GOP is passing to suppress the black vote, the vote of the poor, the vote of people of color. But then I asked these highly credentialed, hyper-educated, comfortable Democrats whether everyone should vote. And the response is, you know, I've never really thought about that. <laughs> ask your friends, if you're a Democrat, ask your friends whether or not they believe everyone should vote. Most of them are going to say, you know, I've never really thought about it. Really, you, you need time to think about whether or not everyone should vote. And then when you press them, if you're an asshole the way I am, uh, many of them will admit after a couple of drinks that they don't think everyone should vote. I mean, obviously, nobody under the age of 18 should be allowed to vote, they say, although 16, I think 16 year old, I think we'd be better off if only 16 year olds could vote. But making it easy for everyone to vote, these Democrats who complain about the Republicans suppressing the vote, they think, no, it, it shouldn't be easy for everyone to vote. A lot of people, they say a lot of people are idiots. We don't want idiots voting. This isn't the People's Choice Awards. It should be difficult to vote. You should want to vote. If it's easy to vote, then the people who are easily persuaded will end up voting. And as we all know, the easily persuaded make the wrong decisions that don't benefit the greater good, as opposed to you, the hyper-educated, credentialed Democrat who is not easily persuaded and only casts his or her vote to benefit the greater good. The truth is, Democrat, Republican, this country has never settled the question of how much democracy we actually want. It's off the table. It's not to be discussed. Because to, to discuss just how much democracy we really want is to lay bare the lie of America, the lie of America that we believe in majority rule. We don't. We don't believe in majority rule. But we can't admit that to ourselves. We don't trust our neighbors to make wise decisions. Like Plato, like Aristotle, we don't believe rule by the people is the best way to govern. You know, we celebrate with all this Greco-Roman architecture, we you know, in Washington, D.C., in our, our state capitals, we love to celebrate the, the Romans and the Greeks. 
the people who forged what we consider Athenian democracy and the Roman Republic, they didn't believe in everybody having a say. They didn't believe in majoritarian rule. And baked into Rome was dictators. They knew that the Republic would fall prey to demagogues and chaos. Baked into the Roman Republic was a dictator who served for two years. Some, uh, Cincinnatus, for example, retired. He was a general, politician, and Rome was under siege. Early Rome was under siege, and they convinced Cincinnatus to leave his farm and be the dictator for two years uh, because of this war. And then after two years, his term as dictator expired and he went back to, to his farm and the Republic resumed. So we have never had this conversation about just what kind of democracy we, uh, we really want. You know, Socrates in uh, Plato's Republic, Socrates calls democracy rule of the poor, right? Isn't that great? No, I rule of the poor. I like that. I like democracy. Uh, Socrates in Plato's Republic calls democracy the rule of the, po the poor. I like that. Turns out Socrates didn't. <laughs> he didn't think the poor should make any decisions. Uh, he says democracy is a terrible form of government because it provides neither law nor order. We should probably be discussing this. Uh, Socrates saw fault in all forms of government, but when pushed in the Republic, he said the best form of government was, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, a democracy. That's a country ruled by honor. And that means only honorable men should hold power. And honorable men can only be found among the landowners and the military. So basically, Socrates believed that the best form of government was an honorable military junta. So we throw around this word democracy. We should have a conversation about just how much majoritarian rule we want. We, uh, we never were a democracy. We never were a republic. We never had majority rule. Our founding fathers didn't want us to have a democracy. They barely wanted us to have a republic. And while you know our government buildings are shrouded in Greco-Roman architecture for a reason. We are striving to achieve the Greco-Roman ideal of government, which was not this majoritarian rule of government. You know, we our founding fathers, they gave us what we have. They gave us what, what Athens and Rome had, were exactly what our founding fathers wanted, rule by elite, rich, white men. We ended up exactly where the founding fathers left us, and we've evolved very little past that. Uh, we've allowed some African-Americans to vote, and we allow women to vote. You don't need to own land to vote. 
And the more we allowed, the more Americans who get to vote, the less power Congress and government has. The truth is we've evolved beyond Washington, D.C. We've evolved into a corporate state where Washington, the capital, is just a, a, a shell, just a front for Wall Street and the financiers. And a corporation is a, a form of democracy, and it really is the democracy that I think most of the rich white men who run this country want. And that is everybody gets to vote. Everybody gets to pick the board of directors. And there are issues that everybody who owns stock can vote on. But like a corporation, the more stock you own, the more votes you get. And that's basically what we have now. It's, it's de facto corporate rule, not de jour. But I think a lot of uh, the richest 1% would prefer if we ran America openly like a corporation, where the more you own, the bigger the vote you, you get. Uh, the more assets you own, the more your vote counts. Just like a corporation uh, in America, uh, voting is pretty much cosmetic. That's really what voting is in, Amer in, in, in our government and in corporate America. The voting is cosmetic. It's an, a cosmetic exercise to create the illusion uh, that the people in charge actually give a shit as to what anyone else thinks. The truth is about corporate America is that corporations don't exist to, to benefit the shareholders. They don't exist to benefit the workers or the customers. They exist to benefit the CEO and his immediate underlings and the board of directors who are handpicked by the CEOs. So the stockholders, none of them have enough votes to be consulted. Only the major stockholders can really vote, and they're primarily institutional investors who run pension funds. So they have no idea how to actually run a business, which works out great because either do the CEOs or the board of directors of these businesses. Most corporations are money pits. That's the dirty, dark secret about corporate America, our corporate state. Most corporations are failures. They're racking up debt in order to pay the CEO and his underlings enormous salaries. Most corporations are they've racked up $18 trillion in debt. We have we're told the stock market is at record highs. We're told that the economy is humming along. How is it possible that the biggest debt other than the federal debt, which is 22 million, we have 22 million treasury bonds out there to pay for our debt, and there are 18 trillion dollars in corporate debt out there. Corporate America is just as much a failed state as the federal government. Uh, corporate America is a failed state. And like, like our government, they have to rely on phony accounting to make it look like everything's working. And that's what we're told right now about 
our government. We're told that the economy has never been better, right? We're told that unemployment is down, wages are rising, our GDP is up, our stock market is up. Check out all the stats coming from the Federal Reserve. The economy is humming along, uh, except for inflation, except for inflation. The, uh, we're not wanted. We're not wanted in Washington, D.C. We're not wanted in corporate America. And that's the truth about our so-called democracy. We are a corporate state where nobody is consulted except the handful of CEOs who are destroying their own corporations and the world to pay themselves exorbitant salaries. And they don't listen. They do not listen to us. Write a letter to your congressperson. They will not get back to you. Write a letter to Tim Cook from Apple. He will not get back to you. It doesn't matter what you want. It never has. The truth is, we're a very left of center country. The truth is, the Supreme Court does not reflect how we vote. The truth is that since 1992, only one Republican president since 1992 has won the popular vote. That was George W. Bush in 2004. Once. Once. And yet the Supreme Court has moved, has lurched dramatically to the right. That somehow all the Supreme Court nominees that come from the executive branch are right-wing Republicans. How is that possible? How is it possible that since 1992, only one Republican president won the popular vote? We don't want Republican leadership. Americans, despite all the flaws with the Democratic Party, we choose Democrats over Republicans. The, the, they have to gerrymander to get Republicans elected. And Republicans are punching way out of their weight class in the Senate. There are like 50 to 70 million Americans who are overrepresented in the Senate because they live in Idaho or they live in North Dakota or South Dakota. You get all these uh, rural areas where nobody lives contributing to a, a split Senate. If, it, if we were to vote, if we were to vote, the Democrat Democratic Party would be in charge of everything. As deeply flawed as it is, but there are institutional, systemic levers that prevent the, the Democrats from exercising majoritarian rule. We are center left. We all want gun control. We want Medicare for all. We all hate hospitals and healthcare providers. We, we, we want to raise the minimum wage. We're against bailing out the banks. We are. All the polling shows that. But there isn't gridlock in Washington. Both parties have agreed that nothing fundamentally will change. 
because the people at the top of both parties, they work for the people who don't want anything to change. I know Ted Cruz and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Gosar and Jim Jordan, they're reprehensible, disgusting people. They are, but they're not in charge. McConnell's in charge. Schumer's in charge. The people who really run Washington, they want gridlock. They want nothing fundamentally to change because the people who they work for the corporations want nothing fundamentally to change unless it's in the best interests of corporate America. So we're told that Washington is broken. There's gridlock. No, it's working perfectly fine for the people who are Democratic and Republican leadership are working for. And so they distract us with January 6th, red versus blue, stolen elections, uh, threats to democracy, uh, abortion, transgender rights. They, they divide us, get us scared, keep us fighting amongst ourselves over this never-ending list of grievances and fear while the real power slips further and further away from us. Joe Biden promised that when he became president, nothing would fundamentally change. So... In November, I'm supposed to be scared shitless that the Republicans are going to win. I'm supposed to be scared that we're going to lose our democracy. Well, when we lose our democ democracy, will things fundamentally change? I'm just curious. If we lose this iteration of a republic, will things fundamentally change? Probably for some of us, uh, but I'm pretty sure the people who are being evicted right now into the cold winter night, the Americans who must choose between insulin or food tonight, I'm pretty sure that the African-American mother working three jobs to pay off a crushing student loan debt, uh, I, I don't know, uh, tonight? on January 6th, the one year anniversary, I'm not sure most Americans, half this country can't come up with $500 for a medical emergency. I'm not so sure they're worried about the future of our democracy. I think it's irrelevant to what's right in front of them. Uh, all right. I don't know. I was scared on January 6th, but uh, how bad was it really? Who am I supposed to trust? The media to report on this? Uh, Nancy Pelosi and, and her committee? Uh, how many people died on January 6th? Nobody can give me a straight answer. I know Ashley Babbitt, besides her, she was shot by an armed cop protecting Congress. Uh, how bad was January 6th? We're told how close we came to something really bad happening on January 6th, that it was a warm up for something truly dangerous. Uh, something close 
we came close to something bad happening. Uh, well, a lot of people don't come close to something bad happening. A lot of people in America have bad things happening right now. The 50,000 Americans who die each year because Obamacare just doesn't cut it. And Ashley Babbitt was shot to death on January 6th. I didn't see any gunfire. I didn't see any members of Congress shot at on January 6th. But our nation's public schools since January 6th, 42 school shootings last year. It's the highest on record. 285,000 American school children have lived through the trauma of a school shooting since Columbine. Americans want gun control. But we're told January 6th was terrifying. More than 20,000 Americans were murdered with a gun last year. More than 25,000 committed suicide with guns. Close to 50,000 Americans were injured by a gun. There are now 400 million guns floating around this country. Study after study shows that the more guns, the more suicides. The more guns, the more shootings. But our government can't do anything about this. Instead, they tell us they were terrified about January 6th. You know, we're, we're told about all these shootings, uh, but they're, they're murders. We have to stop calling, uh, we're, we're told about murders. We, we need to start calling them shootings. We need to start s saying that somebody wasn't murdered, they were shot. We need to start calling them shootings because people will finally realize that guns are the disease. Actually, Americans have realized that guns are the disease. Washington hasn't. Nobody in Washington has the courage to take on the gun manufacturers because gun manufacturers run, they've taken over the National Rifle Association, which has been turned into another trade association that is just trying to protect jobs. That's what the NRA is. In America, we will not stop anything that's lethal if it means hurting corporations. So if you want to protect abortion rights, turn Planned Parenthood into a for-profit corporation, take it private, issue an IPO, have it get traded on the New York Stock Exchange. In two years, our government will be subsidizing every abortion in America. That's all you have to do is privatize abortion in America. Every Republican will be for it as long as it's for profit. That's the problem with Planned Parenthood. It doesn't turn a profit. But somehow tonight we're supposed to be terrified because a mob of Neanderthals stormed the Capitol without firing a single shot. And they, they still call it an insurrection. Tonight, Joe Biden is saying Trump has a dagger to the throat of democracy. Okay, that was a year ago. It took two days after the beer hall putsch for Adolf Hitler to get arrested and tried for treason. He ended up doing time. One year later, 
with a dagger to the throat of our democracy, not a single person has been charged with murder or treason. If January 6th was so bad, where is Merrick Garland, our attorney general, on all this? He's still looking into it a year later. And there's this congressional inquiry that's still going on to reveal things we knew about a year ago. Read the Woodward book. Every revelation that's coming out now, we read about in Woodward's book. Merrick Garland says he will bring the January 6th rioters to justice and will we'll continue this investigation for as long as it takes. Yeah, as for as long as it takes until when? When there's a Republican president in office and they drop all the charges? How long does it take to prosecute? Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd in May of 2020. It took about a year to get him locked up. How long does it take to indict Donald Trump and his family? It took a year to lock up Derek Chauvin for killing George Floyd, especially because we had a video of it, which is also what we have of Donald Trump. There is audio of Donald Trump on the phone with Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. On tape, we've all heard it. He says, and by the way, the evidence comes from a Republican, from Brad Raffensperger, who is a Republican. He's the Secretary of State who knew that he was being strong-armed by Trump, so he recorded the conversation. And he gave this over, he turned it over as evidence. We've heard it, Trump says, Quote, what I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is more one more than we have. That, that is against the law. And then on tape, Trump intimidates Raffsenberger, accusing him of committing a criminal offense and saying that, you know, maybe we'll investigate you. Every legal expert in the world, Republican or Democrat, agrees that tape is evidence of a criminal offense, a federal offense. The evidence is right there. It's right there, like Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck. Donald Trump had his knee on the neck of democracy. The evidence is there. That audio tape is a slam dunk. A year later, no indictment. I'm sorry. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure a year from now I'll be trying to sneak into Mexico and this will be Nazi Germany and I'll be kicking myself for not getting behind Biden and the Democrats strongly enough. Uh, but, you know, if whatever you want to call this system of government, let's just call it a government. If it's at stake, if there's a dagger to its throat, do something. Do something. All I hear is that the only way to save our government is to support the Democrats. That's it. If I support the Democrats, our democracy is is has been saved. Well, I'm supporting the Democrats. I voted for Biden. I supported Build Back Better. I'm frightened of Trump. I loathe him. I get it. But do something. Indict him already. An indictment 
right now is as good as a conviction. You can tie Trump up in the courts right now. The Justice Department can break him right now. But Garland, deep in his heart, is terrified. He's a coward because locking up a precedent president is a bad precedent. Not, you know, locking up. You hear this over and over again from people with law degrees. You got to be careful here. Locking up a president is a bad precedent. You know what also is a bad precedent? Not locking up a president. That's also a bad precedent. And we should be locking up our leaders because they're all compromised now because they they operate with impunity. They trade stocks with impunity. They're all corrupt. We need to start locking them up. The reason Trump gets away with all of this is because there's not just compromise on Trump. There's compromise on everybody. There's compromise on Trump. There's also compromise on Pelosi and there's compromise on Biden. So the whole Trump administration, the whole Trump administration began with the word compromise, right? It's a Russian word for a KGB file that's put in front of somebody and you open it up and say, bend to my wishes. This is the truth about your personal life. And that's what the Justice Department under Obama in the waning days of his administration, that's the word they kept using, compromise. They went after Trump because they feared that there was compromise. They went after Michael Flynn because of compromise. Flynn's conversation with the Russian ambassador, we were told, was not so much illegal as it was problematic, which would lead to compromise. That's what we were told. The problem was compromise. The Russian ambassador knew it was against the law for Michael Flynn to negotiate with him before Trump took office. And because the Russian ambassador knew it was against the law, he had compromise on Michael Flynn. Sounds like bullshit to me. Russiagate was all about compromise. Manafort, Don Jr., and of course, Trump being the mercy of Putin because Putin had compromise on them. And, you know, Obama loved the word compromise because the truth is there was nothing, there was nothing on him. He was clean. He, he was the cleanest, the least corrupt president like ever. I have many problems with Obama. His stupid podcast with Bruce Springsteen but there was not a single scandal in the Obama administration. And so he was able, his, his Justice Department in the waning days of his administration took the high road on compromise. And he chopped Trump off at the knees because like Clinton, Trump was swimming in compromise. That's how Obama left, saying you have to be afraid of Trump because there's compromise. But it turns out the reason nobody can prosecute Trump is there's compromise on everybody. And people know that Putin, a former KGB agent, has compromise. 
that he would be willing to share, that he, he would assist Trump by sharing the compromise on Joe Biden or the compromise on Nancy Pelosi. There are cells within the FBI and the CIA that would be willing to leak compromise on any of Donald Trump's enemies. That's why Trump is, isn't being prosecuted because of compromise. There, uh, people have secrets. Why do you think Lindsey Graham has stuck with Trump? Lindsey is afraid Trump is going to tell everyone that Lindsey leads two lives, one straight life in South Carolina and then one in Washington, D.C. with his male lover. Do you think for one second Trump, who gave out Lindsey Graham's home phone number during the 2016 campaign, do you think he would think twice about publicly saying something like, uh, it's interesting that Lindsey never married but, you know, good for him. I have nothing against homosexuals. Good for him living his truth. You could hear Trump saying that. He would say that to get something out of Lindsey Graham. And Lindsey Graham knows that. And that's why Lindsey Graham became his lap dog. You don't think for one second Trump would think twice about mocking Lindsey Graham for being in the closet. That is why Lindsey Graham became Trump's lap dog. Compromise. And the reason nobody's indicting Trump is compromise. Nobody's indicting uh, Cyrus Vance Jr. can't indict Trump here in Manhattan. Letitia James can't indict uh, Trump in, in, in New York State. The, the DA in Fulton County, Georgia can't prosecute Trump, indict him for trying to throw the Georgia election. Character counts. And what's happened is this country is run by people who lack character. And there's dirt on everybody who's in charge. That's why they can't indict Trump, because they may not be as dirty as he is, but they have secrets they're trying to hide. Pelosi's dirty, Harris is dirty, Biden is dirty, Garland is dirty. There's comprom compromise on all of them. And Trump will use it. So the Democrats, I'm going to vote for them in the midterms, but they're playing out the clock. They're playing out the clock. It, it's unconscionable that, that there have been no indictments. Nobody has been indicted for what happened on January 6th. Well, I don't see Ben Burgess here yet, as I expected. I was told that... Uh, David, he was here and then he took off. I can take your calls. It looks like Ben Burgess is not going to be here for 6.30. He, he was going to call me from the road. Uh, this is I anticipated this, actually. Well, he, he was uh, here. So... If our if you're in our Zoom room and you would like to talk about anything you want, raise your hand and we can also do a community billboard. A lot of people don't feel like doing anything right now, like my show. I, I've noticed this. But uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, character counts. I, I know 
I, I argued with Professor Jonathan Bick about this, about, you know, you know, character doesn't count, just get things done. Well, you can't get things done if there's compromise on you. Uh, if Biden were actually clean and he really did want Build Back Better passed, there he is. He, hey, David. Ben Burgess just showed up. Uh, he would uh, he would call Manchin on the phone and he'd say something like, I, you know, I really hope you don't switch parties because I need you in the Senate as a Democrat voting with me. And I just I hope you, you vote for Bill Back Better, Joe Manchin. I really do. And I hope you you remain in the Democratic Party because I like you and I worry about you and I want to protect you, Joe, because you're my friend, Joe Manchin. And I have some really nasty pit bulls over at the Justice Department. And I, I, I you know, I, I like you and I want to protect you. And, you know, I know my Justice Department is independent and I can't phone over there and say, you know, call off the attack dogs. You know, I got this, but you know, if you work with me on this, maybe, I, I don't know, I'm not making any promises, but I gotta tell you, I'd hate to see anything bad happen to you. I've got this attorney general is, he's, it's, you know, I can't do anything about him. He's, he's all over your daughter's price fixing with the EpiPens. He wants to lock your daughter up. And I gotta be honest with you, you know, it's looking pretty bad. I I see the case against your daughter and the price fixing and the epipens, and I, I you know this got my you wouldn't believe my Justice Department. They're looking for numbers on the board, and I got an FTC that's looking into the epipens, and I got people looking into that half a million dollars a year you're collecting in coal dividends. It's a conflict of interest, Joe. You know, you're chairing the Senate Energy Committee and you're getting half a million dollars in coal dividends. Joe, I like you. I like your family. I like your daughter. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. I, you know, and I, you know, my hands are tied, but I would just hate it if my attorney general, uh, I would hate for you to go to the Republican Party and my attorney general decided to put your head on a stick. I would hate that. I would hate for you not to support Build Back Better with all the goodies it has for your state in it. I would hate for your daughter to get indicted and your wife to go to prison and for you to go bankrupt. You know, the Justice Department can bankrupt you with all those lawyers you would have to hire. I like you, Joe Manchin. Help me out. Uh, that's how you do it. That's how LBJ got Medicare passed. It's how he got the civil rights legislation passed. It's playing hardball without being explicit. That's how it's done. That's what Biden could do if he really wanted a social safety net. Well, you're listening to The David Feldman Show. I'm David Feldman, and I look like shit. Let us now go to somewhere in Kentucky, I believe, where Professor Ben Burgess is standing by. Are you there, sir? I am. Yeah, I was here earlier, but the Are internet is bad. So we'll see how it goes. Boost you up. Uh, can't seem to hear you or see you. Oh, no. Okay. Uh, well, I've got the video turned off to, because the internet connection is bad. But, uh, oh, now I can hear you. Okay. But you can hear me. All right, good. Yes. Could you hear me? Yep. 
Oh, then I apologize that you had to hear that nonsense. Are you on video? Sure, sure. Are you on video? No, no, no. I turned the video off because the internet connection isn't very good in the hotel. Yeah, I think my audience would prefer if I turned my video off. Uh, <laughs> well, welcome, Professor Ben Burgess. Where, so where are you right now? I'm in central Kentucky. Uh, we're driving back from to Atlanta from Michigan, but uh, there's a winter storm, and so we're we're hunkered down here for the day. We're going to finish the drive tomorrow. It's actually very snowy for Kentucky. Wow. Wow. Well, Professor Ben Burgess joins us. He is author of Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Happy January 6th. <laughs> oh, man, I, I really hope we, uh, we turn this into a holiday. This and 9-11, you know, this, these are just, you know, going to be my favorite days. Well, you, you're celebrating January 6th the same way the Biden administration is doing absolutely nothing. You're just Fair sitting enough. in a hotel room uh, doing absolutely I mean, I, I mean, I didn't bring anybody in to uh, sing to me from the Hamilton soundtrack, so I guess that is one distinction. What did you think of our president's speech today? Uh, I, I saw some quotes. I certainly didn't watch it, did you? I, I read a little bit about it. I have trouble uh, watching him. He uh, doesn't do it for me. He doesn't even know what year it is. He, he I... I you know, he called, he said 2020 is going to be a great year. And I went, <laughs> okay. It's not, you know, it's it's cruel to make fun of somebody who has lost his faculties. So speaking of faculties, Professor Ben yeah, if Burgess. Been, if he'd been running against anybody but Trump, I still think that would have been a bigger issue in the election. Yeah. You are a uh, philosophy professor. Is that correct? Yeah. Adjunct, but yes. Political philosophy is that correct? And and a columnist uh, for Jacobin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I teach different classes. I'm certainly very interested in political philosophy, okay. but yes, I'm also columnist for Jacobin. That is correct. Okay, uh, Our, David Feldman, who I'm apparently meeting for the first time today. Yes, the president says Donald Trump has a dagger up against democracy's throat. Does democracy have a throat? Are we a democracy? What are we? In the, in the sweep of history, looking back at all the great philosophers, Locke, Rousseau, Jefferson, um, oh, no. okay. Jimmy Dore, what are we? Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think there's a spectrum. I think the United States is kind of sort of democratic um, with uh, many, many caveats that we talked about last time. I believe I talked to you. Uh, but, uh, you know, certainly, you know, certainly we'd be much more democratic if we allowed more than two political parties. And I think allowed is the correct word there, given the way the system is set up. Um, and, you know, or or if if primaries you know work differently uh or you know or if if you know redistricting didn't work such that you know congressmen off get to pick instead of the other way uh of course all of this is just you know political democracy uh and you know and i think that um you know there are a million more reforms we can mention that would certainly make the United States more democratic that way. 
but, uh, you know, but then, of course, there's the issue of economic democracy, uh, which we talked about last time, and say that, you know, something I'm often very confused about, you know, when people talk about the, um, the Capitol riot a year ago, I little. Are you there? You know, we're, 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 you know what? You, you have a. And look, don't get me wrong, just because the United States. Oh, well, hold on. Yeah, Do we lose connection? Can you yeah, your, your connection is really bad. Uh, is there any way you could phone yeah, in? Could you... uh, should we, should we... Yeah, I'll, let me, let's try that. Why don't you phone in? I'll, I'll... Good. Okay. So we're, we're talking with Professor Ben Burgess. His latest piece in Jacobin is entitled The Equality That Socialists Care About Most is Equality of Power. Go to Jacobin, subscribe to Jacobin, and read Professor Ben Burgess's latest. And while we're waiting for uh, Professor Ben Burgess to call in, if you would like to join us in our virtual studio audience, please go to my website and sign up and you'll get an invite. Office hours, I can't believe it's Friday. I cannot believe office hours is Friday night at 8 p.m. If you would like to join us for office hours, go to my website and sign up. Uh, while we're waiting for Professor Ben Burgess to phone in, uh, so I think there's one phone in. Let me just, uh, this is the lull in the show as opposed to the first 90 minutes of my blathering. <laughs> is, let me just see if this is Professor Ben Burgess. Is this you, Professor Ben Burgess? Let me, you have to unmute yourself. I've asked you to unmute. All right. Hey, 2022 is starting to feel a lot like 2021. Uh, all right. Uh, by the way, we have a, uh, a YouTube channel. We're streaming right now live on YouTube. So if you would like to join us there, we also have a, uh, a uh, chat room over there, which I read the next day. All right. Hey, David. Let's take our first call. Professor Ben Burgess from Kentucky. Hey, long time listener, first time caller. Thank you. Great to be on the line with you. Okay. So we were talking about how you would describe if you had to teach, if you were to teach America like a hundred years, uh -huh. America, how would you describe our form of government? What would you, what would you tell the kids? Yeah, I did. Mean, I'd, I'd say that it was, uh, you know, it was a somewhat democratic country, uh, less so than some other countries that existed at the same time. Um, much the same way that if we were talking about like, you know, England in like the mid 19th century before they had, you know, universal suffrage, you know, we might make a claim like that, that it's more democratic than a lot of countries in continental Europe, but not very democratic by modern standards. And I hope that something like that is going to be the way that we look back at the United States in a hundred years. Uh, be very grim to think it'd be the other way around. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think there are obviously lots of uh, lots of respects in which you know it's very you know undemocratic. As I said earlier, you know, I, I think that um, it would obviously be much more democratic if we allowed more than two political parties. And I really do think "allow" is the right word, given a lot of aspects of the way that America's electoral laws work. Uh, it would be more democratic if the way that we selected, you know, uh, nominees within the parties was better. Uh, it would be more democratic if, you know, redistricting didn't work the way that it did. So congressmen often get to pick their districts, if not, the, you know, rather than the other way around. Uh, it'd be more democratic if campaign finance laws were different, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can spend right. all night doing right. that. Uh, but, but I think that, um, and, and of course, you know, as a, you know, democratic socialist, I think the most important way, which is undemocratic, is that, you know, is that there's no democracy for the most part at the workplaces where people have to spend half of their waking lives most days of the week and, you know, only most days of the week because of past workers' struggles. But, uh, but, but I, what I was going to say, I think, when, when our connection uh, got really bad before is just that I, I think that something that I find really confusing about, you know, the way that I often hear liberals talk about, you know, January 6th is that, you know, that they'll say that it was the, you know, the biggest attack on, on American democracy and, you know, whatever they'll say, 200 years or 100 years or since the Civil War. And, um, and, and you know, I, I don't want to make light of the issue because, like, oh, we're not that democratic in the first place and all that because, like, you know, you could be only a little bit democratic and still miss it when it's gone. But, uh, but I think that all I can think every time I hear that is, man, uh, you know, I hope the the, uh, you know, the surviving family members of all the civil rights workers who were murdered in the South for registering people to vote, you know, don't hear people say that, you know, because right. what an incre- incredibly offensive thing to say, you know, that like a, you know, that, that a thousand, you know, conspiracy theorists, boomers, um, you know, staging a riot where the only person who was actually killed was, on the day itself, you know, was one of them. Uh, you know, I, I just, I just don't see it. You know, like, like, like I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think if you want to say that, you know, it's despicable that, you know, that the Trump and his cronies fed these people lies and riled them up this way, and and by the way, led them into all this and then abandoned them because <laughs> they're completely unprincipled people. Um, but. You know, that, that I could get behind all of that, you know, but I mean, as far as the idea that this was some sort of real threat to the most heavily armed, centralized, uh, consolidated state that's really ever existed in some ways in human history, just, just, it just seems very strange to me. And, 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 it, and it also just seems like, no, I mean, I don't think that American democracy, you know, like I can, I can absolutely see scenarios, unfortunately, where the United States Right. In, in the coming years, it becomes less democratic than it is right now. But I don't think it would look like the, you know, the, the Q shaman and all of these idiots, you know, uh, you know, like, you know, chanting about, you know, hanging Mike pants and taking selfies and all that stuff. I, I don't think, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this. We'll see. But I really don't think it would happen that way. Right. So I want to talk to you about priming the pump, the pump, priming the pump, priming the intellectual <laughs> pump for mm-hmm. socialism in America. Jacobin 
your columnist for Jacobin. They had a piece, uh, I think two nights ago, about nationalizing Tyson. There's a, a meat shortage, mm -hmm. and they give the argument for nationalizing our, our meat industry. And I'm thinking, yes, mm -hmm. we need to start introducing, which Jacobin already has, obviously, getting the conversation going about nationalizing industries and getting the left to to develop a vocabulary to imagine what that looks like. Now, the Federal Reserve, the, the next crisis, which is just around the corner, yeah. they do a thing called quantitative easing, where they buy, they buy up junk bonds. They buy, they buy, not bought, they buy uh, CDOs, collateralized debt obligations. And they just, you know, erase them from the books. There is talk that when the next crisis hits and the stock market collapses, the yeah. the Federal Reserve may have to buy stock in corporations, which uh -huh. goes against the bylaws of the Federal Reserve. But you know, there are when when there's a crisis, there are no rules. So there would be like you know a quantitative easing that takes place mm -hmm. with the stock market. And I want to prime the pump for our next economic catastrophe. You know, we're, we're a boom and bust economy. The American people had to be prepared to hear that Jerome Powell is propping up the S&P 500 by buying stocks on the open market, right? And then we have to be prepared to say, and not selling them back, keeping it, keeping the shares of we, when, the, when the Federal Reserve buys stock, that means the Treasury Department gets passed on to the Treasury Department and we own stock in the major corporations. Isn't that the easiest yeah. route to socialism? Yeah, I mean, I, I think whether it all the way to socialism or not, I think it's certainly a good idea uh, that, like, this is what was really frustrating. Um, you, you know, <laughs> I say this is what's really frustrating is that there was, like, only one thing that was frustrating about it. This was a thing that was really frustrating about the reaction to um, the 2008 crash, you know, beyond, obviously, all the human misery that it caused and, you know, et cetera. But, like, the debate about it, if people, you know, people can remember back to 2008, was entirely between the bipartisan consensus, which was to do what we did, and like you know the establishments of both parties were all about that. You know, McCain voted for it, Barack Obama voted for it. You know, they're both running for president. Um, and then the only real opposition to that, you know, from like the few cranks who were opposed to it, was this kind of like libertarian um, sort of principled capitalist opposition that uh, that know that you know the government should just let the chips fall where they may in a market and not you know not artificially prop these people up you know like that was the like as applied to the auto companies that was that Mitt Romney op-ed you know let Detroit mm -hmm. go, go bankrupt you know right. that uh, helped lose in uh, my home state later in the 2012 election and, and of course what's left out of that you know because the debate you know that's that was a debate about doing nothing basically, and doing what we did, 
which was what, you know, your, your friend Ralph Nader uh, would accurately characterize, I've heard it accurately characterized as, you know, having, you know, privatized profits and socialized losses. Uh, and, right. um, and what was completely left out of that debate was the third option, which, which I think you're articulating, which is, okay, hold up. Uh, maybe if these banks are too big to fail, they're also too big to be private. Or, you know, that is a little drastic. Don't you think? Are you there? Mm -hmm. Politically speaking, yeah, I hear you. politically speaking, can't you sell to the American people 10 percent ownership of these corporations, 20 percent ownership? You know, Obama said, I, I you know, uh, we're going to give the stock back to GM. I'm not I don't know how to run an auto company. Well, apparently either does uh, GM, but. We don't need to. It's also, it's also a silly thing to say because it's like, because what, you own 10% of the, the stock and something, but therefore you're running it? Like right. that's, uh, that, that doesn't really seem like how that works, you know? So, uh, so, so yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think, so this is the kind of thing Matt Brennan, who is actually the author of that uh, Nationalized Tyson article, um, spends a lot of time talking about that, like some uh, the Nordic countries have social wealth funds which are essentially the government-owned stock and various corporations. And, sovereign, and they're called sovereign funds. funds. Sovereign funds. Yeah, sovereign wealth funds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that the uh, that you know, which of course is something I'm I'm definitely for, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I support that, and um, you know, in some ways, you know, that like there is a school of thought that says that you could have a transition to socialism that would, you know, that would look something like a long-term version of that. So um, in Sweden in the seventies, uh, which is probably, you know, outside of the sort of, um, you know, the kind of authoritarian state socialism that existed in countries like the Soviet Union, uh, Sweden in the seventies is probably the closest to society has come to, to sort of jump into full socialism. And which is that the, you know, the dominant social democratic party there was floating something in the seventies called the minor plan, which was basically that, um, corporations or possibly corporations by a certain size, I'm not sure would have been legally required to, uh, to seed like a certain portion of their stock gradually a little bit at a time over the course of years. So these funds would be controlled by workers. So that the idea is that like eventually, um, uh, you know, eventually, you know, the, 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 this funds would be, uh, would be controlling all of these big corporations. And, 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 and I'm not sure if it would actually. Politically. Yeah, politically, sorry, politically. 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 Yes. Politically. That works. Who would be against that? In other words, the only people who are going to be against this are the CEOs who lose their 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 strut but in terms of if you were to take a company like boeing a deeply flawed company uh -huh. like boeing and we we say you know most of your business comes from the pentagon and uh, so we're, we're going to start buying stock on the open market we're in business with the government is in business with boeing so uh -huh. why shouldn't we own a piece of you what? Who would be against that? Who yeah, would be right. against I, that? I mean, I think that uh, there's, there's even an article by by Murray Rothbard, uh, who 
you know, for people who aren't familiar with him, is, is kind of a, you know, right-wing lunatic libertarian. But, like, in, in like, the early 70s, he wrote an article called Confiscation of the Homesteading Principle, where he basically said uh, that it wouldn't be that bad to nationalize companies like exactly the ones you're talking about, you know, like Boeing, uh, because they're, they're essentially just propped up by the state anyway. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that there would be a certain amount of like grassroots right wing opposition, but, and, and I would love to run this experiment, right? There's no way to be sure, but, but I think that, I think there would probably, my suspicion and hope is that it would be a weaker opposition than what we actually had with like the Tea Party movement, you know, when Obama, you know, came into office mm-hmm. because, even though all of the Tea Party people, and not just leaders, but you know, the people's grassroots would would use language about how, you know, they were horrified by tweaking socialism and stuff like that. I still think a lot of the populist juice of that movement came from everybody kind of knowing that this was the government being in bed with these, you know, like big wealthy corporations that, you know, and, and kind of against the interests of even like small businessmen and all of that stuff. So, so I, I, I wonder if um, that message would be a lot less appealing if it clearly wasn't that, oh, look, here's the government in bed with, um, you know, with, you know, whatever, you know, Goldman Sachs, you know, right. uh, General Motors, whoever's going out of business, you know, because cause it's actually the government taking over, you know, part of this. I mean, like, I, I think that there is certainly a chunk of the Republican base that, you know, that has, you know, would be apoplectic about that. I don't doubt that. But it, but I think even, you know, but I mean, there is also, I mean, there is a reason why I hear all those polls, you know, showing that, like, there was a whole chunk of Republican voters who would have voted for Bernie Sanders right. if he was the if he was the candidate, right? I mean, I, I, I think that even among grassroots Republicans, I, 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 I wonder, right? Like, I, I wonder if there might not actually be, like, a decent chunk of them who would actually absolutely go along with that? It's like, yeah, what you expect me to be? You know, you expect me to be sad, like, you know, that like Goldman Sachs is losing some of his property, you know, like, like, I mean, like, and I think if you actually look at the rhetoric of a lot of right wingers right now, uh, I think they realize that their own base has gotten a lot less enthusiastic about sort of um, like libertarian defenses of the property rights of the super rich. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is, is not to say that, Repub- that Republican lawmakers and like big pundits or Charlie Kirk's and Sean Hattie's, whatever. It's not to say that they they aren't all about that agenda still. They absolutely are. But I think they've realized that to market themselves even to their own base, they have to kind of pretend that that's not what they're about, you know. And so they've, they've all they've all started using this like weird pseudo populist language where like even. Um, like even Ted Cruz, you know, will use the word corporate as an insult. So I think, especially in an environment like that, it would be very. I I I think that that might at least like divide the Republican base about whether they're even against it. Fantastic. Well, Professor Ben Burgess, his latest book is Christopher Hitchens: What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Go to Red Emma's right now and purchase this book, redemmas.org, R-E-D-E-M-M-A-S dot org. Buy this book. And the Hirschenfelds are here. Did you want to say hello to Professor Ben Burgess? 
Of course we do, but I can't see him. He's in Kentucky in, in, a, Kentucky? Snow, in a snowstorm. They don't have television oh in Kentucky? Yeah, yeah, apparently not. No, my the connection to my hotel room is really bad, so I called in. But um, but uh, Ethan Hirschenfeld is uh, is, is going to be on my show very soon. Yes, really? I, uh, my agent was able finally to wear him down. I put a, I put her on the case about a year ago, and finally she. He's a, he's a tough. He's a very tough negotiator. This Burgess. <laughs> this this. Uh, he's a closet capitalist. Wait a second. I, you have to clear that with Mendelssohn, my uh, my major domo. We we have exclusivity here. I'm threatened when people go off and that dilutes the product. Um, David, I'm whoring around with all all sorts of guests of yours when when you're not on the screen. Feel, you don't know what's going on. I feel you know where I was last week. I don't think Ethan told you. Where were you? I was taping <laughs> with Johnny Carson on the Tonight Show. <laughs> it was me and Frank Sinatra. Oh, I, feel, I feel betrayed. <laughs> A classic show. You got to watch it. I feel betrayed. Yeah, you are. You were. Yes. Thank you, Professor. I will talk to you next week. I hope. Thank you, Professor. All right. Thank you, comedian. Okay. Joining us are the Hershenfelds. Hello. America's Hello. favorite father-son comedy troupe. One of them is a Freudian psychoanalyst. The other is a comedian. And, and you get to guess which is which. And, and look what I got. Hang on, I'm ready for... I loaded these up now. Hang on. Oh, come on. Hang on. Oh, I, I have a question. All right. I, here we go. Now we're ready. Man. So in the New York Times ethicist this week. Yes. Yes. A psychiatrist writes into the New York Times ethicist that he's been seeing a patient for several years. And Romantically. No, but obviously the transference has kicked in and the patient uh -huh. keeps giving the psychiatrist gifts. And he explains, I, you can't give me gifts. It's unprofessional. He won't stop. I've been donating these gifts to charity. How do I get, what is the ethical way for me to get my patient to stop giving me gifts? Oh, I thought you were going to say what he's asking, what the ethical way is for him to get a tax deduction. <laughs> <laughs> for donating the gift. That he <laughs> and my first thought is, how good is that? Well, the, the, the psychiatrist's chief complaint was that the sizes on the gifts were all wrong. <laughs> His second complaint was that it's unethical. Uh, I, I was thinking, what does that say about a psychiatrist? A, they can't talk a patient into stop gifting him. And B, has to turn to the New York Times ethicist for help. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on this? Not, it doesn't say much about that particular psychiatrist because this is not an ethics issue. It's a professional practice issue. And there are clear guidelines. And there are interpretive ways 
to deal with it. Let, let me interrupt with an interpretation. <laughs> your 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 screen is on your restless leg. Oh my god! So I feel like we're, we're you're you're at, on the San Andreas fault today. Like the the, the screen was so shy. I was getting seasick. Okay. I want to hear you and see you. Is that better? There I am. Thank you. But, but now it's harder to hear you. David, was that a bad I have restless I have restless arm since <laughs> There's what? no such thing. It's yeah, it's called wait, onanism. Uh, I was gonna say wait till you hear Hitler speak and then you're Oh yeah, yeah. I was that was but onanism is better. That's my uh, Onan by the way, you know, uh, uh, by the way, he pulled out Onan. Have you? Have we talked he did. About That's right. We talked about that. Yeah, about two years ago, we we, we covered that. You know what's lesser discussed than onanism? Conanism, which is That's where Jay Leno pulls you out. <laughs> so okay, go, let's go back to the ethical issues. Okay. Yes. But, but before we go there, Dad, do you feel like I? Do you feel uh, like I? I took away some of your zest and gusto by having you remove the screen from off of your lap not at all what is, okay yeah listen i don't want to micromanage but but i really do i know you do <laughs> and when it becomes unbearable believe me i will say so <laughs> in the balance of our relationship like every other relationship on the planet between love and hate so far the scales are tipped. Hate is a very strong word. What about just love and apathy? <laughs> Apathy's worse than hate. Interesting. <laughs> apathy means you 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 don't you don't even exist for me. Right. You're not you don't exist in, in apathy. You don't exist, but at least you don't get hit. <laughs> so in that way, it's better than hate. Anyway, no. Well, hang on for one second. Can you hate somebody without loving them? Theoretically, I guess you can. But I'm talking about your average run-of-the-mill parent-child, um, husband-wife, uh all the major kinds of relationships. Babysitter, client, <laughs> pizza boy, customer. Oh wait, what are we talking about here? Okay. So the reason you hate the reason you hate somebody is you love them and they've disappointed you. That's one of the reasons, but it's also the way our mind works. I know it's that's why I hate Hitler. No, I say your average run-of-the-mill relationships. Right. I you know people like Hitler. I, I, I can't imagine that there there'll be any love. No, I was. I'm sorry. There, there, are, there are often profound connections between people through hatred. That's why I say apathy is is, you know, the worst way to uh, condemn somebody. Okay, did I, you were gonna say something and I interrupted, can you? Yeah, and I interrupted, you've been interrupted many times in that one monologue of yours. I was saying about this purported psychiatrist. Oh, right, yeah. That, uh, you know, there are interpretive ways to deal with such a thing. 
Let's try to figure out why you need to give me a gift based on what I know about you. Are you trying to seduce me? Are you trying to undermine my professional standing? Are you trying to maybe suggest in a subtle way that I need to raise my rates because you have all this cash to be buying me gifts? Are you saying that I'm, I'm not giving you anything else worthwhile? Are you saying that my ties are just horrendous because you keep giving me ties? No. I mean, that's <laughs> what the whole... That's, that's what the whole relationship should be about. Trying to understand, not to condemn, I mean, unless somebody's doing something dangerous, but what's the meaning? What are you trying to say here? It did, let me ask you, let me ask a Feldman-esque question. Does everything mean something? I would have to say, in my opinion, yes. And what if you are encounter, what if you encounter a client who says many, many things that mean nothing? <laughs> like, like me. <laughs> <laughs> like the show. Yeah. What do you do? What do you mean? They, they, I, I don't know what you mean by they mean nothing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Walked right into that. In the history of psychoanalysis, I'm going to ask yeah. this of Ethan. Has there ever been a session where the psychiatrist said, aha, <laughs> I got it, I got it. Has there ever been a novelty lingerie business <laughs> called Freudian Slips? <laughs> Try this there on. Was, there was a fashion show at the Met last year, two years ago, when people were still going to the Met. And one of the items on display was a slip on a mannequin with a the profile of Freud on it. Oh, so that someone beat me to it. Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, uh, my joke was cheaper than their dress. I, I wonder, I was watching the Beatles get back. Have you, have you seen this documentary on the Disney Channel? You did see it. I'm still, I can't watch it because I'm still so upset about them breaking up. Right. It's very triggering. When you when you are on top of each other, you you put four men on a bus on an airplane touring together. You're going to get on each other's nerves. They're going to be little things that get on your nerves. Do psychiat? What does a psychiatrist do if a patient who he likes or she likes has a habit that annoys them? I'll, I'll take this one. Yes. Thank you. As long as it's not chewing with the mouth open, because that's a whole, because that's a whole nother. So I'm assuming you're not referring to that, because that's just not that. Is, that, that, that yeah, that's just requires the death penalty. But I agree. As long as we're not talking about that, it's the job of the, I would say, in my opinion, it's the job of the therapist to ask him or herself, why does that behavior by the patient cause such a feeling of annoyance? And then to analyze that 
But there are and, things that are like platonically, like like the platonic absolute of annoying. There, there's, you know, a timber in the voice. You know, there, there's certain, there are things that are just categorically annoying. Aren't no. there? A, a punch in the eye is categorically annoying. But habits and figures, ways of speaking and stuff like that, it's it's very um, personal, and I would start with my junior colleagues' approach. Why is this getting under my skin? And once I understood that, I would then I would not want to humiliate the patient because you can't do that. You, you know, as enjoyable as that is, you just can't. <laughs> right. So you have to find a tactful way. <laughs> to bring just say, for example, can you stop uh, calling me Doc in every <laughs> sentence? Like, that would be really annoying. All right. There's an emergency where mm -hmm. we're, uh, we're, we're, three of us are flying to Las Vegas. Oh, this is a hypothetical. This I thought you were about And we, right. we take the wrong turn and we're, we crash land in the Andes. Okay. Who and, eats whom? No, is this what no, no, no. And it's there are a lot of neurotic people on the flight, and there are panic attacks, and people need help. You're the only doctor on the flight. Would you deputize Ethan to help people calm down and work out their issues while you're waiting for rescue planes? Well, would I accept the deputy position? That's I don't know that I'm available for, as the deputy. I think, I, I I think Ethan be... could comfort the afflicted. I think he could. I know he could. I'd be better at that than trying to fix the engine. I'll tell you that. <laughs> could you? Could you talk somebody down from a panic attack? What? What? What do you think? Having been raised, I, I, I'm very good with panic. Attacks. I could talk you. I could also talk you into a panic attack. <laughs> And then out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very I'm flexible. What do you need? What do you need? Yeah. Uh, how much do you think you could fake being a? How long do you think you could? Well, be on a on a on an Andean snow covered mountaintop with no regulatory agencies nearby, I could do that until we all starve to death. <laughs> but in a city. It would be a. I think I. I would be the. the I would be outed as a fake within uh, one session. Doctor Hershenfeld, if if you yeah. if you hypothetically, if you said this is my son, he's taking over the practice. Oh. I'll be I'll be sitting here, and watching, as he treats. I'll be I'll be roasting the flight attendant. <laughs> no, no, this is a new hypothetical. Oh, this a new is, hypothetical. This is a new hypothetical. No. You you've decided it would be nice for the son to go into your practice, right. but he didn't go to medical school. <laughs> I didn't hear the last word. But he didn't, I didn't get. I didn't get into medical he didn't, school. Or he didn't want to go. Medical. He didn't want to go. Right. You because know? uh, I think I would make a good doctor. I could do everything ex except the actual treating of the pay. Everything. And he was also distributing uh, prescription drugs in middle school, so he has. <laughs> 
He has some experience with pharmaceuticals. <laughs> no, I, I think I would make a good doctor, except for the healing part. I feel like you'd make a good orthopedic surgeon, but not a therapist. Like, I wouldn't mind giving you a bone saw, but I don't know if I'd, I'd no, I, I, I think I could be, I think I would be a good, or, I, I think I'd be good telling patients, it's not an exact science. <laughs> Let's wait. Let's wait on this. And let me refer you to somebody. I'd be really good at like the placebo effect which I think is important. Like I'm, I'm on top of this, I'm quarterbacking it. Let's do some consultation. You you got me here. Let That's funny. My specialty is the placebo effect. <laughs> what percentage of success comes from the placebo effect? 62. I'm sorry? 62. There was an article in the Times the other day that when you do actual studies on tendon repair in the knees and um, uh, meniscus repair in the knees and anything in the knees or the shoulders. Any joint. Pick a joint. Pick a joint. <laughs> that the operation has a, more or less the same rate of success as just doing some physical rehab. Wow. Wow. So how much like I had a doctor who I feel just the mere presence of the there was something healing about there was like a placebo effect to just mm -hmm. going to him. The, I had the same I, I, I had the same experience just from drinking a Dr. Pepper or watching Dr. J in basketball. <laughs> I didn't even have to go see a medical doctor. In in terms of like antidepressants, how much how do placebos do when they compare an antidepressant to the placebos? That's a controversial question. If you ask the drug company <laughs> they will say he doesn't like the drug company. Right. Um, they will say that um, the antidepressant is far and away much more successful. And I think that's true, but not across the board. Right. It's often true. Sorry about that. My, my dogs are, are under contract with, with GlaxoSmithKline. So <laughs> If you start bad mouthing, <laughs> big pharma. So if 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 Ethan and I were flying, and somebody was having a panic attack, and he, you know, and Ethan has like a these sugar pills, right? And he says to somebody, "Take this pill. You'll. I promise you, you take this pill, you'll calm down." And it's just a sugar pill. Yeah. But I say it like this, I promise you, trust me, trust me, I promise you, you'll be fine. Just It depends who the person is saying it, how it is said. It depends on the uh, receiver of this information right. and what their mental state is. But there are, I, I once read a study years ago that they gave people uppers, Ritalin or something, 
And they said, this is a really great new sleeping pill we've developed. And the people had the best night's sleep of their life. Right, right. That's so, yeah. The other thing with placebo is what it, what really matters is the dose. <laughs> That's true. You, you don't want to give too much. I overdosed on a little. But, you know, yeah. placebo has a negative connotation. Yeah, but it shouldn't. It, should, it, it speaks to the power of the mind. It speaks, it's something that can the power, be... And the power of the relationship to a authority figure, a parental figure. When somebody says, sits down with you and looks the part and, and, and connects with you emotionally and says, this is going to help you. It's going to help you more than if you get it out of a dispensing machine. Right. And if it helps, it helps. How much do, do we need to feel as adults that somebody is taking care of us? Is there a need to, you know, you're a middle-aged, healthy person. Are we, are we supposed to be convinced that I'm taking care of myself or that there's somebody wa watching over me? And I don't mean religious, but some kind of something that, that will care for me. How well, that, this, is, this is the root of religion, that we all have a child still within us to one degree or another, depending on who we are. And that child... And depending on if you're pregnant or not. That is also, <laughs> yes. But that's the child part looks to the guy in the white robes up in heaven, or however you, you visualize him, yeah, to take care of you. And you pray to him and whatever. The American Prospect did a, uh, an entire, it, everybody should subscribe to the American Prospect. David Dayen runs it now. And they did an entire uh, issue on caregivers and it's the most important job that anybody can perform. Right. It, uh, the, the people who care for our children and then the people who care for our sick. And they are the least, not the least paid, but among the least paid. They're the most appreciated and the least paid. It's incredible that as this population ages and we're going to need, we all need caregivers and caretakers that we don't how do we get away with not in this country with not yeah it's shocking that the, yeah the people who uh home health aides for example no union barely, barely a living wage barely barely i don't think i think many of these people have to work a second job it doesn't pay or you, you in order to make it pay you have to work so much that you have no time for your own family yeah that's criminal that is criminal we, we, I can remember when I had little babies and we would drop them off at daycare. Yeah. And I would think, th this is, I'll pretend that this is the most important thing in my life. My career comes first, obviously, but, uh, and my car, but for, you know, 
for marketing and branding's sake, my babies come first. Uh, and I'm trusting them, I'm putting them in the hands of people who should be doing a lot better than they are. Yeah. You know what? And that if, we if allow that. It's just like we go, oh, that's, yeah, go yeah. ahead. It's Please. interesting if you look at the analogous situation with uh, care for our pets, the way people will hire dog walkers. And those people can get paid actually quite well. They can make a good enough living that then businesses crop up around these dog walking services. And the approach is to walk not one dog at a time, but to walk 12 dogs at a time. You used to see those packs on Park Avenue, which is why my platform in running for city council is that we start doing the same for the aged and the elderly. <laughs> the, the home health age should be pushing not one elderly guy, but 12 of them down Park Avenue. Each attendant should have a dozen senior citizens with them. And then it can, then, then the numbers, I mean, the spreadsheets fill themselves out at that point. It's right. just profit. It's profit on top of profit. Everyone wins. Right. And also, the guy who's being pushed there, he doesn't want that much attention from the person. It just gets <laughs> annoying at a certain point. Yes, okay, I know I'm, I'm my, my sweater's slipping off. Can you leave me alone? Check that, you know, number eight. His sweater is also slipping. You don't have to fix my sweater every block. I think it works out very well. It's a win-win. Now, the difference is, I look at these dog walkers, and I'm always amazed that... The, they they get these ad hoc packs. It must change every day, and yeah, all amazing. the dogs know their rank. There's nobody jockeying for position. How does that work? If if you're an alpha dog, you get in with an, a a pack of. Dogs. The main thing is there. If you're a dog in one of those situations, you have to learn the Greek Greek alphabet way past alpha, <laughs> beta, and gamma. It goes it goes all the way to Omicron. In some of those packs. <laughs> The main thing in those packs is if you're a male dog, you have to maneuver yourself to the outside of the pack before you lift your leg. That's the only etiquette you have to know <laughs> as a dog in one of those packs. Because if you, God forbid, if you're in the middle and you pull that, you're out of the pack. That's it. <laughs> but do they know, like they get together and they automatically know the, like the, suppose there are three alphas in the pack. How do they work? Because they seem to work. Uh, that's a royal. That's a that's a full house. Three alphas. <laughs> do do the alphas become neurotic because they can't be the alpha that they're out alpha or do they or do they become betas? Do they just go? I think the whole alpha thing. Sorry, go ahead, doctor. They submit. Well, right, they submit to the walker. Yeah. Well, that he's the alpha that right. he should be. Yeah. But but let me answer your other question about how we're going to deal with all the old people and all the young people that need care. And, and this is what I think future programs, if you don't mind me saying so, should be devoted to, which is the upcoming civil war. Because if the wrong guys win. Oh, are you suggesting the old versus the young? Because that's that's going to be an ugly civil war. Is that what you're suggesting? No. Oh. I'm talking about the, the political civil war, you know. That if the bad guys win, they're just going to shoot all the old people or 
any of the young people that they don't like, and we're going to be in big trouble. Unless we're the shoe tee. Yeah, unless you're the unless you're young with a gun. It's exactly the attitudes that's sending us down this sl- very slippery slope. Is it conceivable? This is this is. I, I mean this. Eviction. The people are being evicted. People. There's horrible stuff going on, but there's there's always been horrible stuff going on in this country. Yeah. Is it possible that things are not as bad as we think they are? In fact, they're actually pretty good and that we're imagining that things are really bad. Is it is it possible? I don't believe that, but there's a possibility. You know, I wish it were true. I wish it were possible. But I, I ha- I'm afraid I, I agree with the doctor that given everything we've seen in the last year since exactly one year ago and the reaction to what happened a year ago and then the subsequent. I mean, what could the reaction have been in a rational country? The reaction would have been to put the perpetrators on trial, put the instigators on trial and, and uh, root out that rot from the system. But instead, there was a retrenchment and uh, doubling down on this approach. And now legislatively, this approach has won the day. And so I, what, you know, I hate I hate to think what's going to happen with the next election with Here, these uh, corrupt, corrupt functionaries in place. Here's my hope, Dr. Hershenfeld. When I saw them booing Trump because he got the booster, I thought, this is the genius of our country, that we hate each other, that that the Germans could march in lockstep. Americans, we hate each other, that there's there's no way to unify us into a Nazi Germany, that we're that the genius of America is but it won't be a Nazi Germany. It'll be something different and horrible. It will be something lords. different. It will be something different and horrible now that we've stepped into this era where apparently elections are not going to be trusted by a large swath of the population. And they're going to use that lack of trust as an excuse to undermine the integrity of the elections. So that's that's we're not we're into a whole new a whole new world of tribal warlords. He who has the most weapons will command a piece of geography and you pay this man tribute for protection and safety. I think it's going to be much less exciting and cinematic and 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 uh, satisfying than that. It's just going to be a cold, grinding feeling of like being in Prague in in the nineteen sixties. Let's just let that sink in for a second. I, I was thinking just how damp and cold, but but Kundera, great novelist, came out of that. <laughs> Czechoslovak, a lot of great cinema. Yeah. Great beautiful, beautiful people, great architecture. Good weapons. Good weapons. What was the gun that came out of, right? There's a there's a good gun that uh, I'm thinking of getting. Well, on that cheerful note, I, okay. I, I, I'm an optimist. 
I think the sun always shines on Americans and we're all going to die from skin cancer. This is my (laughs) before we lose the. Oh, did you see that that New York Times article? I sent it to my sister, the dermatologist. A woman in the stands at a hockey game noticed a mole on the back of the neck of a coach on a hockey team, held up her cell phone with the message. He saw it, went to the doctor. It said she was a nurse. She's a pre-med and a nurse. It said, you need to get that mole checked out. She got it. He got it checked out. It was cancerous. She saved his life. He then was able to find out who she was. And then they had a they had like a a kind of reunion, a thank you. Uh, She got some free tickets. It's an incredible story. But if they got into a relationship, that would be the most annoying. Yeah, especially for his wife. Yeah, that would have been a terrible punchline. I, I think the worst way to start a relationship is the, the Melanoma. woman. Yeah. The, yeah, the woman goes, because every day, did you get that looked at? You should get that looked yeah. at. You should get that looked yeah. at. Thank you, Dr. Hershenfeld. Okay, thank you. We missed you last week. And Ethan. Yeah, okay, but Sinatra came first. I'm sorry. I did see that episode. I did see the song. If you're serious, when did you ever see Sinatra hosting The Tonight Show? Where he sings, I don't remember that. I will send okay. you the clip. Please so, do. I, it's, okay. it's amazing. And Ethan Hershenfeld, go watch Thug Thug Jew on YouTube. And please do. Bull yeah. and Red Notice is the most popular movie in the history of Netflix. Yeah, it's now in in its eighth or ninth week in the top ten worldwide, which is uh, a, a new thing. And uh, yeah, watch Red. He's in it. He's in it. He's in it. I'm in it. It's unbelievable. And and Bull. Bull uh, the uh, in the January 20th episode, Bull season six, episode 11. And I'm going to be in New York in a little under two weeks to shoot a horror movie. I have a fun a little part in a horror movie. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. That's exciting. The Netanyahu's. You forgot. Oh, right. The Netanyahu's. I meant to mention that. The audiobook of the Netanyahu's, which is a novel. So, chapter five is me. It's a, it's a very nice audiobook from Pushkin Industries. It's me, David Duchovny, is the other actor on it, and then the author reading the rest of the wow. thing. Wow. Is this, yeah. is, is this yeah. the novel uh, where he moves to us? He moves to a small yeah. town like near yeah. Cornell. Upstate. Exactly. It's that one. Yeah. The Netanyahu's by Joshua Cohen. The novel yeah. came out last year and the audiobook just came out last month. And I do. Did the you party. meet him? I did not. No. no. I would. I was actually thinking of reaching out to him. Oh, about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. You know, I it's interesting. Jose, Jose Arroyo, whose book I'm holding in his, yes. his father is a professor at Cornell, who interpreted the older Netanyahu's book, uh, who who, uh, translated Netanyahu's Uh book on the Inquisition Inquisition from Hebrew. I think he translated it into English. Wow. Oh, amazing. That's a great book. I've read it. Listen, I got to go on to my next show now. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you, Ethan. God bless. Thank you. Great job. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Go to my website for an invitation. All you need is Zoom and you're in. Meet better people. And if you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, go to my website, 
and I'll send you a link. Meet better people like Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He is also a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. I'm looking at you. You look great. I'm looking at me. I look like I I look like garbage. No, you 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 look you, you look great as always, David. I, if I'm just listening to the podcast, yeah, on Zoom, you know that's another thing. No, you're great. I I I always look forward to these times. But you together. you look healthy. You look like you're getting sun and exercise. I look like I just returned from the International Space Station and they didn't have plumbing for a month. David, I've been locked up here in my my closet for the last couple of months. I mean, right. I almost went out for the holidays and I thought, well, I could just put a garland on my gong and just stay in here. I, I am not going to that show uh, on uh, on the weekend. I'm not going to see Mike Birbiglia's show because I don't, they're not, you know, the, they're, they're just requiring vaccination cards and you know, I so I just said I, I can't go. You right. know, I, so I'm still staying in, and I, I'm not really doing any exercise. I'm walking up and down my stairs. That's about it. That's the only exercise. But I am a vegan, so right. that helps. Except when I eat. Well, I I am a vegan even when I eat sugar and you know white flour. But that that's been my downfall this holiday. You know, eating vegan cookies and vegan fudge and that kind of thing. Right. And so I'm not the healthiest. Uh, you know, at this point, but I'm, I, I, did you know that Kentucky fried chicken KFC yes. is going to be F KFC? What well, I don't know. I know about that. They beyond Bur- they're using beyond meat. Well, they're going to change their name to F KFC f- fake KFC for the fake chicken. That is that what they're have. calling it? Well, that's what I'm calling it. Oh. I think F K F K F C FKX. Right. That's a that's a better acronym. It makes people think. Now I have a question for you about this because I, yeah. I I cut that article out and I thought, hmm, do we support KFC? Do you go to KFC for their fake chicken? Do you support something that's evil? It's Yum Brands. Everything Yum Brands makes is evil. No. There's nothing Yum Brands. What is it? What is it? Pepsi. They make. Pepsi and they, yeah, I think. Oh, let's see. Yeah, I used to know what Yum did, but they they have they have the all their chains. Yeah, it changed the fast food, and I think I think Applebee's is that Yum? I'm looking it up. I know they have a woman running it from India. Yum Brands fast food company, Pizza Hut, Taco Pizza Bell. Pizza Hut. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, you know the thing is, most people. This is for. Oh, I'm wrong. It's not run by a woman. It's not. No, yeah. I thought for some Pepsi reason Pepsi was run by a woman. No, oh, it I used don't... to run Pepsi. Yeah, uh, uh, an Indian is. woman. The Indian woman. What happened? Yeah, she used to. She. I think she retired. I, th- I think. I think. But but you know the the thing is the the fake chicken is for meat eaters who want to take a break. It's not really to attract more vegans, although that is sort of a thing. And vegans will support uh, the the thing because they want to make sure that options are there at restaurants like FKFC. Right. But 
you know, frankly, this reminds me. Do you remember when they banned smoking on airlines? Are you young enough or old yes, enough to I, remember that? Yes, I remember. Yeah. You know, what bugged me is that they had a smoking section and a non-smoking section, and all the people in the non all the people in the non-smoking section were smokers. Now that always bothered me because whenever I wanted, I'm a non-smoker. I wanted to get into non-smoking. They were they ran out of space because all the smokers figured out, oh, we'll game the system, we'll get the the non-smoking seats, and screw the non-smokers. Let them sit back with the smokers. Very selfish. And did they light up? They lit up. Well, well, see, I I learned about this because when at the bathroom in the aisle, I said, God, you know, I'm in the smoking section and I don't smoke. I hate it. And a smoker confessed to me and said, Oh yeah. I'm a smoker, but I'm I'm sitting in non-smoking because I'm a selfish American bastard. I don't understand how that works. How does it benefit a non-smoker to? Well, it doesn't benefit a non-smoker to sit in smoking. But when all the seats are are taken in non-smoking by the smokers who want to take a break, right? And they 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 selfishly take oh. a. They selfishly take a non-smoking seat. Because they don't want to sit in the smoke. Right. They don't want to sit in the smoke and they just want the best for them. That's that, you know, when that happened, uh, it must have been about 20 years ago. But that I could have seen, I could have said, I could have taken a snapshot of that moment and said, this is what it's going to be like 20 years hence in America, where people are going to have that kind of mentality. Can you imagine... Can you imagine now banning smoking on airplanes? The violence. Oh, the the selfishness would come out. But now people realize, hey, if I smoke, I die. So uh, I'll take my death in, you know, in increments when I feel like it. So they make it, they turn it into, it's my right to die. You know, it's a selfish thing. And that's, this is what, what Trump has given us after all these, after, this is the day, right? January 6th or January 7th when this is, you know, on after after one year. This is what we are 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 given. We're given this kind of America where lies are best, truth screw the truth. You can't win with the truth. Lies are best and lies win. So when given the chance or choice between lies and truth, what are you going to choose? I mean, that's that's why the Republicans can't quit Trump. Right? They're 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 addicted to what he gives them. They give him. They give them, in their mind, victory. So, they're lying. I'm, I wonder how many actually believe the election was stolen. Most, like seventy percent of Republicans, say they believe the election was stolen. I wonder how many of them actually believe that or know that if they say it's stolen, it pisses Democrats they, off. This is, again, uh, part of the gamification of everything, right? Who's telling the truth? You don't tell the truth unless it somehow benefits you. And then it's not the truth. It's your truth, which is essentially a lie, right? The idea of truthy truthlessness. Truth, truthlessness, truthless, the truth. Truthificity. The, the idea of truth is like we, 
out the window. There's no truth. We don't value truth. Right. And when people say that Trump has made America into a third world nation, I think of places like the Philippines. You're talking about the checks, you know, in the previous segment. Uh, I, I keep thinking about how in the Philippines, if you go there, everyone's expecting you to grease a, f- a few palms in a certain way. Not, not the way you might be thinking, David, but in that way that makes society flow better. Right. The, the grease palm, the uh, here, here's a little something extra. That's a world of corruption, a world of no rule of law, a world of, you know, all that where, where lies are given equal status to truth because why choose truth if I can win with lies? Why, you know, truth is, has no value. That, that's the kind of world we live in a year after you know, January 6, 2021. And, you know, when the big headline is, oh, here we are a year after and Republicans still can't quit Trump or, you know, people still can't, you know, get off this big lie. Why? It's because to lie is to be virtuous. All right. So you've spent an entire career as a journalist. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. What is the <laughs> truth? So what is the truth about Trump? Forget, forget, because the Democrats, I don't know if you heard my opening segment. The truth is January 6th was not an insurrection. Right. The, tr- the truth is five people didn't die on January 6th. Five people didn't die? I think five people did die, David. They died. Uh, four died from three died from heart disease. Oh, and a drug Co- overdose. Ashley, Co- Be- it was a comorbidity. Officer Sicknick died the next day from a stroke that the medical examiner said may or may not have been related to the trauma of January 6th. The only the only real casualty death that can be attributed to January 6th was Ashley Babbitt. Right. Who was, was shot, shot by the Capitol police officers. Right. What is the truth about January 6th? Well, I actually agree with you. And th- this has become kind of political to say, don't call them insurrectionists, because now bo- sort of both sides have sort of grasped onto that idea. Because I am kind of amazed myself that people are calling essentially these lawless rioters insurrectionists because they really defame the people in history who have been called insurrectionists. And if you go back in the history books, the history that isn't taught because it's an American shame, but but go back to the Philippine-American War and the Philippine insurrectionists who actually started a republic, the first republic in Asia, you know, after the Spanish-American War, and then that became because they stood up to the American imperialists, that became the Philippine-American War. Those are insurrectionists. Shay's Rebellion. Shay's Rebellion. The Whiskey Rebellion. Yes. These insurrectionists, they couldn't hold a Filipino insurrectionist jock. Right. The Civil War. Yeah. uh, I mean, look, the, the thing is, these guys were punks. They were kind of, you know, they were tourists. They, they, once they had access to power, what did they do? 
when they went into the, the, the chamber full, you know, the floor of the house, you know, they didn't say, okay, let's decertify this thing. They hadn't, they didn't know anything about it. So right? there were tools, tools of the hundred members of Congress who Peter Navarro talks about as they were going to run this power sweep legally, a legal sweep. And then, you know, but these guys, I don't know. The, so the, what is the truth? So what if, look, we hate Trump. We hate Giuliani. We hate Mo Brooks. We hate the people who stormed the Capitol. Yes. I I don't shed a tear for Ashley Babbitt. I don't shed a tear. I, I, I feel terrible about the cops. I do, who were mm. brutalized that day. But what is the truth? What is the truth about that day? Did Trump take... Uh, have a command center at Willard where at the Willard Hotel where Giuliani and Steve Bannon and Roger Stone were orchestrating some kind of takeover. God, you know, I don't know if we if we're going to get to that. But do you That's believe you that? Do you, do you believe I, that? Or they were just I, looking for spectacle and they didn't care who died that day. Yeah, I think this was like the equivalent of, uh, you know, like Metallica bringing in the fog machine. You know, they they wanted to just have something there, but I don't think it went down exactly well, to but, 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 we have a we have a control center and we we are in control. I agree. I think, just let the chaos happen, right? right. Trump is all about chaos, right. and so let the chaos happen, and and then we'll just sort of stall and and people will say whatever we say because uh it's all about the lie it's it's just about and people accept it they they see how it works they 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 really is this a dry run you know you read the atlantic you read mainstream media this was a dry run this was the beer hole putsch this is them testing the boundaries to see what they can get away with this was the test run for A, a takeover of our government. Do you buy I, into that? I don't I, think it was that organized in that sense. I think they were just sort of speculating what they would do and or what they could do. I don't think it was as organized as that. Although, who knows? This is why you got to bring them in, and you got to have Mark Mark Meadows's you know documents, and you got to you got to have uh, Bannon under oath and Peter Navarro under. Oath. You have to have all those guys under oath, so we do get to the truth. I don't. I don't know. But and I mean, if you were going to storm, were any shots fired by the rioters? Is there any? They use bear spray. They did terrible things. I'm not defending them. They they use bear spray. They used a they threw a fire extinguisher. They, they used they the American flag guy. as a huh? They, they beat Officer Fanon pretty good. Yes, they all. did. They're, these yeah. are pigs. But when when you know, I think of John Brown. I mean, you know, when I think of an insurrection, I'm thinking they're armed and they're ready to take hostages. It didn't. Were they brandishing weapons when they were screaming for Nancy Pelosi? Were they? Did they have sidearms? Even look, did they? I don't know. Did they? I don't think so. Even the FBI knows that the the Proud Boys were just going to do a little street violence, but they had no. I don't think they wanted to carry out. They they were going to let the pros. You know, let, let the professionals like Ted Cruz and, you know, uh, uh, the guy from Arizona, they were going to let them take care of the 
administrative the paperwork right and they they, they were just kind of like a distraction and i i think that's what we got to get to the bottom of i don't worry about the people they've got arrested the 750 who you know only maybe a third of so which where's our justice but where's merrick well, garland He's going slow. He is going slow and and he has a right to go slow to get everything he needs because I you know because that's the big question. Where does this lead? Is it go does it go all the way to the top? I I don't know. We and and here's the other thing. If we knew would the American people buy it. See, we're at this state in our country and you know Biden gave a great speech today, but what kind of speech is he going to give on the state of the union in February that cause the state of the union one year after January six is I think people are tired. People have given up on science. People have given up on the truth. People are beginning to accept the lie. They're, they're willing to say, okay, look, we're, we're so tired of everything. We'll just accept whatever our side wants. And like he said, 70% of the people believe in who believe in Trump, you know, they, they still buy the lie. So I think a lot of people, it's they they're accepting a level of corruption in our society that is unprecedented, or at least it's out certainly out in the open now, and that's the sad thing about the death of democracy. It doesn't happen all at once, like suddenly the floor falls out and you know we go into feudalism or something. You know, we're we, it's incremental these deaths that we're we're experiencing in our democracy, and we are. We're lesser now than we than we were a year ago, but we still have we still have some democracy. There was a star spangled moment, you know. There's a noose and a gallows with Pence's name, and they still were able to certify the election. They still were able to do that. So regardless of what happened, the violence and all that, they still were able to do their job. Democracy survived January sixth. But it's we're like I said, it's these incremental losses. And I don't know, unless we all rally and say, you know, we value the truth. We value the rule of law. We, we, we value ethical and moral, you know, uh, displays in our, in our, our democratic process. Unless, until we say that that's what we want, I, I think we're, we're kind of lost. We're kind of lost. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I think this is what makes makes people who, you know, look to grassroots stuff, you know, local, uh, look to their local, and they can control stuff locally. They, you know, forget the nation, you know, like I was going to mention this, there was that poll, you know, that poll the Washington Post uh, bragged about talking about how many people in America would accept violence. The last question in that poll is kind of interesting because they always ask like a freebie question, like, where do you get your news? Who do you think was number one and where do you get your news? And these people who were asked in that Washington Post poll. Joe Rogan. No, not Joe Rogan. Good guess. Good guess. He's, he's actually down further. But the number one, 39% local TV. Local TV. That's where you and I met all those many years ago. Local TV. It's so important. That's what people watch. This is why it's important when you get the mini foxes like Sinclair and some other local conglomerates that are uh, big corporations that, you know, you know, they, they buy up all these local stations and they become a mini Fox network. 
Sinclair's one. A lot of them are run by like AM radio, like the radio, and, like like Clear Channel, Clear or now known as iHeart. Right? right? They were the the former Chancellor Broadcasting folks out of Texas, all all bushies, right? And and then and then this is why the corporation thing about how you know the the, the limits by the FCC on corporations, you know, is kind of you know is just you know thrown out. You know, from the time we met years ago when the restrictions were so tight, now we go into an era where there's not just monopolies, but duopolies. They have another word for it. Essentially, it's a monopoly. So anyway, local TV, 39 percent. You know, for for we go ahead. Guess who was number two? Local TV, uh, the Internet. No, no. CNN was number two at 28. And then the networks, NBC, ABC, Fox, and CBS were uh, equal at about 26. CBS had 23%. NPR had 19%. MSNBC at 18. Local radio at 15. Notice I'm at 15, and I have not mentioned yet the New York Times or any major newspaper. Facebook was at 14. Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg's meta, right? That they were at 14, tied with the New York Times at 14%, then the Washington Post at 13, and then at 10%, another newspaper. So your local paper, you know, which is local papers all over the country are just doing terribly. And then uh, another TV network, like, I know, like uh, that, uh, that other junior Fox network, 7%, other 21%. Perhaps the David Feldman show, and uh, no one had oh three percent had no opinion. So those are the people who are like just pure, yeah. you know, Chauncey the Gardener or so Chance the Gardener. When we were spreading democracy, which is on the decline, yes, we we were spreading. You're right, we were spreading democracy. Hair plugs, democracy. Hair we plugs. were spreading democracy in two thousand and one. George W. Bush, who came to power through a undemocratic coup d'etat orchestrated by the Supreme Court, he lost the popular vote and the Electoral College. After 9-11, he decided he was going to spread our version of democracy to the Middle East. Turns out they already had it. <laughs> but... They, yeah. The conversation, I remember Farid Zakaria, 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 writing a book, and he said, before you give a country the right to vote, you first have to have a judicial branch that people trust, that you need courts. You have uh -huh. to have a, a criminal justice system that the citizens feel they can trust then you give them democracy. And what we have, the reason we're losing, we're in trouble is we don't have law and order in this country. What gets passed off as law and order is shooting unarmed black men in the back. But real law and order, we have lost faith in our justice system yeah. from top to bottom. This is the problem because yeah. you cannot prosecute Trump. 
and his family or Steve Bannon. You could, like 40, 50 years ago, when you had a justice system that wasn't as compromised as it is yeah. now. Americans are compromised. They're immoral. They're on the take. And anybody who stands up to Trump, this is New York City politics. This is how you build skyscrapers in Manhattan. The inspector says no. And you say to the inspector, really? Because I have this file on your son that I would hate to turn over to the New York Post. And suddenly you're allowed to pour concrete on 57th Street. Yeah, see, that's the thing where I was talking about the, the truth and about greasing palms and that kind of thing. Hey, you, you know, here's another story that sort and of related- This is why they can't, this is, this is why if you go after, if Merrick Gar, Anthony Kennedy, the Supreme Court justice stepped down during the Trump administration, his son was working for Deutsche Bank Greenlighting all the money laundering loans to Donald Trump. Yeah. Kennedy somehow steps down and we end up with what's his name? I, I believe uh, it was the rapist. Gorsuch? Gorsuch? No, I think no. I think uh, Oh Kavanaugh. I think Kavanaugh. the rapist replaced Kennedy. This is how Trump rolls. This is Roy Cohn's America. This is Garland wants you want to Trump knows that if Garland indicts him, he's going to get his hands on some information about Merrick Garland's family that's going to come out. It's not going to end well for yeah. Merrick Garland. See, this is the thing because about, Merrick you know, Garland is compromised. Yeah. See, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that. But, but, but this is what happens. You practically have to be a saint if you're going to, you know, you know, go after these people because. Uh, you're right. Everything is about self-interest. And this is why truth and lies and, you know, you can grease a palm, you can pay some money, you get something done. I was going to mention that the, the, the news that I noticed today that got me was that Nick Kristoff, formerly of the New York Times, is ineligible to run for governor because someone said the secretary of state of Oregon said that he, you know, has to vote three years at least in Oregon before he runs. So he's ineligible. He left his cushy job. And see, here's the thing. He, I, I don't, I didn't see what his reaction was like, you know, if he's going to challenge, but when you are in a position of privilege, like you are at the New York times, you say, well, certainly we could do something. See, right. this is the attitude of people in America. Certainly there's some workaround. Certainly right. there's a, someone we can pay, someone we can do something. So this is the ethics of business. And, you know, everyone puts on this veneer of, oh, we're so honest and, you know, we believe in the rule of law and we, you know, we have the, the bureaucrats and the regulators. Oh, we can get rid of the regulators, the next administration, you know, and, and Trump isn't used to all this uh, regulation stuff. He just says, oh, what do you need here? Here. I mean, he just he writes out a check if he has to. Right. Sometimes, you know, his history is to not write out the check to the people he owes. But this is the the ethics that he works under or works with. And it wasn't uh, always that we weren't as compromised as we are now. Everybody is compromised to, to make a living, to work in corporate America, certainly to work in politics Everybody a, yeah. is compromised. 
so that have, it's yeah. impossible for anybody in politics to take the moral high ground. We don't have a William Proxmire, a George McGovern. We don't have. Well, even he had his, uh, you know, Proxmire. Okay, bad bad hair plugs, yes. but you know, basically okay, golden fleece. McGovern, you know, the the food thing. I, I look in '73. I sold McGovern T-shirts, so I. But but the other folks like Gene McCarthy, and then they had to get through Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy was in there, so uh, I, look, I I just it's hard. I I heard something today or the other day where someone said, "Remember Dennis Kucinich mentioned a a Secretary of Peace, a cabinet level Secretary of People Peace." People laughed at that. Yeah, uh, you know it's we kind of need something like that now. Except, and, and, and the, but the problem is the conservatives say, well, we, we do have a secretary of peace. It's called, uh, you know, uh, Liberty University and the Falwells and, you know, organize, you know, Protestantism. And, you know, what are, and then you, you look at the Catholic Church, you look at the Boy Scout, you look at all these institutions. They're, they're not what we thought they were, David. Right. You know, I mean, the Boy Scouts, they, they got to pay more money to, for their, um, boy, BSA, uh, boy, this stands for something else. Boy Scouts of America, boy, I don't know. I, 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 but we I have to I, wrap it up. Uh, we do have a, uh, somebody who should hold elective office coming up. Next. I know. Hey, is is uh, is Ethan going to run for, for city council or is he? I'm hoping. You know, I think that's a good thing, you know, having just like the dog walkers have old people walkers and have them go in packs. Yes. And that way. Super packs. Super packs. packs. (laughs) Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He's a world-class vegan as well as a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Thank you, my friend. It's good to see you. Thank you, David. And and hi, Barry. Hi, Reverend Barry. We have to unmute the Reverend Barry. Yes, Emil. Good to see you again. <laughs> Thank you, Emil. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Let's go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by for nearly a quarter of a century. He ran Americans United for separation of church and state He is also a lawyer, and if that's not good enough, an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Welcome, Reverend. Thank you very much. I hope that the you can hear me all right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Perfect. So Um, I want to ask you about January six and what you think the truth is, and I want to what. You know, I always look for this grand unifying theory that explains everything. And my the way I sleep at night is that Merrick Garland and the Justice Department will not ever indict Donald Trump out of self-interest, that there is they understand that you take Donald Trump to court, he's going to take you down. That Cyrus Vance Jr. played out the clock. He was the Manhattan DA. He was investigating Trump. He had a chance to prosecute Ivanka and Jared years ago. 
he punted and he played out the clock and now he's no longer the uh, Manhattan DA. Fulton County DA has been investigating the call that Donald Trump made to Raffsenberger more than a year ago on tape, strong arming and fixing an election on tape. Somehow, no indictment. The, the message has been sent to law enforcement. You come after Donald Trump. Your daughter has been price gouging EpiPens. And that's going to come out. Is that yes. true? I don't think that you're going to see any prosecution of Donald Trump. I'm not sure that it's for those reasons. But I thought Merrick Garland's speech uh, the other day when he announced what the great work that the Justice Department did was just a useless exercise. I think it took 31 minutes and told us nothing. I mean, the statistics, how many people have we gone after? How many people have we convicted? All of that's on the public record. He didn't need to have a press conference about it. And so many people on social media said, yes, but you're not cutting him enough slack because he also said, we're going to take this anywhere the evidence leads us. Well, if he had said, you know, we are still seriously looking at whether former President Trump was directly involved in this insurrection. He didn't say it. Was he? There's no good reason not to say that. You, you don't have to be as coy as he. We're going to take the evidence wherever it goes. And that's enough. But that's look at today. Dick Cheney, mastermind of criminality and violence, shows up with his daughter in the House of Representatives, says that he's deeply disappointed with the current leadership of the Republican Party. And you would think that the guy had just cured cancer. Everybody's praising him. What a marvelous statement. You don't get to be considered a marvelous giant of morality if you only do one or two things right in your entire life. Right. So, but, but yesterday, I don't expect there's going to be any indictment of Donald Trump by this Justice Department. You know, and Emil and others who said, but look, you know, you got to give him some break. I mean, after all, he is a lot of work to be done. That's all true. But the Justice Department has thousands of employees. If if instead of doing anything else, you took a third of them and said, we're focused entirely on who's responsible for January 6th, there would be plenty of people. One of the reasons that defendants have so much trouble, if you, if you sell pot, if you engage in some uh, minor league crime, um, you're always at a disadvantage when you try to defend yourself because the, the prosecutors, whether it's locally in New York City or on a national level, the Justice Department, they got more money, they got more clout, they have more understanding, they can pull people in and say, you work straight through for the next 48 hours. Defense counsel, if you can afford to have one, you're way behind the eight ball, way behind it. Right. So the fact that they've 
come up with, as you pointed out, something I, I've been pointing out forever on this show and others. We have a corrupted judicial system. And you're right. That's the thing you need. You have to be able to depend on it. Uh, it was... Yeah, my my friend and former Senator Lowell Weicker from Connecticut, who was was a Republican, and he became an independent. He won, won the governorship of he Connecticut. He was on the Watergate committee. He was on the Watergate committee. And he, but he used to always say to me when I'd talk about, well, you know, we maybe we could go to the court. He, never forget that the last great protector of the rights of the people is not the Supreme Court. It is the United States Senate. Because Lowell knew exactly how to run filibusters, threats of filibusters for good causes. And in fact, he he kind of tainted my view. I mean, it took me a long time, at least uh, I think sometime two years ago, I said, yeah, but there's no justification now for you continuing the filibuster. But for a while, I kept thinking about Weicker, Mark Hatfield, a couple of these progressive Republicans, moderate Republicans, who knew how to do play the game and who were exercising the filibuster for the purpose of doing good to protect the civil rights of Americans. Yeah. When Kennedy was assassinated, Lyndon Johnson knew that we were never going to unravel the truth behind who shot Kennedy. It was not worth really looking into. So he, you know, the Warren Commission, it was, you know, the American people couldn't handle who shot Kennedy. He knew that. So he said, we have to use Kennedy's assassination to pass major civil rights legislation. I have the political capital and I'm going to use it right now. And he passed the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65 because of a national tragedy. Genius? Genius? Yes, of course it was. Yeah. Biden? Many... Biden? Sorry, yep. I'm getting. <laughs> it's okay. Um, what did he use but, January? If January 6th was a, a dagger to the throat of democracy, what did this Nimrod do with his political capital? What did he do? Well, he, he did no, almost nothing. But this is, again, because people thought um, I was... I'm sure you were not one of them either, but that he was somehow going to go and talk to people like Manchin. I don't think we even knew how bad cinema was going to turn out to be, but there are a couple of others um, that he was going to be able to do something, that he was going to be able to contact them and persuade them to do the right thing. And he obviously has totally failed at doing that. I, I do think there's still a chance that um, the Build Back Better bill, which was just the world's stupidest name, but that you might be able to get pieces of that passed and then maybe try to finagle some way to get a couple of, Demo okay. of, of Republicans who are leaving uh, to vote to support something so you don't have to change the filibuster rules because that ain't going to change either. Okay, so Joe Biden 
says to Joe Manchin, I need you on Build Back Better. Manchin says, I can't go back to the people of West Virginia and run, you know, they won't accept this. Mm. And Joe Biden says, you know what? Let me go take it to the people of West Virginia. And he flies down and carpet bombs West Virginia <laughs> with radio and television advertising and interviews and rallies. And he sends the entire Democratic Party to West Virginia to sell Build Back Better. And you throw some pork in there, you know, yep. the, the, the Joe Manchin bridge to nowhere. <laughs> and, yep. you know, you you just pump up West Virginia's economy and you move the needle on the polling. And then a month later, you call Joe Manchin up and say, you know, it's I think you can go back there and and sell it. it, it the numbers are pretty good. Joe, has Joe Biden ever stepped foot in West Virginia or Arizona to sell? No. I'm sorry for yelling at you, but it's just no, like, but he didn't. Of course, he didn't I'm, do that. It's so maddening. But look, remember when Bernie actually went and put a uh, an op-ed piece in a major West Virginia newspaper yeah. and Manchin went ballistic. And that was the last time anybody who's an actual progressive put any op-eds in the West Virginia newspapers. But you're right. Those are the things that needed to be done. You know, we everybody thought at least he gave Manchin's wife his cushy job with the Appalachian Regional Commission. But that didn't do that's as close to bribery as you can come. And that didn't even work. So we got we got a major, major problem. Well, well hang and, on, hang on. But go but, ahead. but 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 there's a bully pulpit to move the needle in West Virginia where Joe Manchin is shamed into supporting Build Back Better. And you fight you fight for this. Right? Yeah. Of course you do. If you're a real leader and if you're, you know, I think that with all due respect, and, and I, I mean it more sincerely than you generally do when you use that phrase, but Biden's speech today was actually a good speech, but it's delivered almost robotically because he, he's so tied to the, you know, the teleprompter that it just, it looks like he is everything that the Fox News people say he is. He's a tired old man. Yes. And and it so the content was good. I think if you just looked at it and you said, is this a good speech? People go, that's a damn good speech. But you have to when you watch it, it gives it a whole different and not helpful kind of cast to it. He's not the right man for the moment he was he he was manufactured by the democratic establishment he is not the the man for the moment he just isn't he, well he was um no but i mean it, you and i and a lot of other people uh, decided he was the right guy to defeat donald trump that he he was a good it was a good opportunity that he was going to beat him, which he did, which is why, frankly, all of the talk today 
people need to make sure that Donald Trump is doesn't run in 2024. I think let him run. We know how to defeat him. We know that he's uncontrollable. He has no control over what he says or does. But how do we know what Josh Hawley or even Ted Cruz would actually be like as a candidate for the presidency, a serious one, not just one of, you know, 17 people running in the primary? And I don't think we I don't think we have a good idea of how to defeat people other than possibly Trump himself if he runs again. Right. Or his, can- you know, they're, they're, I think he's endorsed 100 congressional candidates. Yeah, something like that. That might be what keeps the House for the Democrats, the more, <laughs> right? The more, yep. the more he speaks out, the more frightened the voters get. The judicial branch... There were something like 70 challenges that Rudy Giuliani filed, election challenges between November and January 20th. Every judge, I think except one, shut down these voter challenges that Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani filed. A lot of judges who were appointed by Trump shut down these challenges. So how scared should we be when the institutions seem to have worked? We had uh, Miley, uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Miley Cyrus. (laughs) You know, he, he supposedly said there will be no Trump coup here and... We had the judicial branch, you know, challenging Trump. We had, you know, Mitch McConnell, Republican, detestable human being, hated Trump, wasn't about to support him in any way. Was he as big a threat? Did we come as close as the Democrats, as Biden wants us to believe, to? Oh, yeah, I think we did. I think we did. And what do you mean? What, what do you mean? We came close to what? We came close to losing democracy. In what way? What, what, how was well, that going to happen? Well, to go back to kind of where we started in this piece of the conversation, if you lose one more seat on the Supreme Court, it's over. It's over. If, if but, they didn't, but they didn't support Trump. There, there were they. they well, well, give me the evidence for that. They didn't. They send these uh, these challenges. Back to the lower well, courts, they they weren't interested in. Stealing. No, they weren't. But 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 you're giving them too much credit. Do you think for a second that Amy Coney Barrett is kind of a moderate just because she didn't go along with every single challenge to the vaccine mandates that Biden has put in? I mean, she's. You know, but she's I'm big, talking about the existential, big picture threat to our rule of law, where Trump. Yeah. You know, it, it's the beer hall putsch, but he really does seize power. Certainly the courts did not accommodate him all the way up to the justices he appointed. Is that fair to say? Well, it is, but you have to look at whether these appeals court judges, for example, that were appointed by Trump, really thought it would 
I mean, there's literally no evidence. I mean, you have to present some evidence. Linwood, Giuliani, these other creeps had nothing. They had no people. They had no witnesses except people who, you know, quite simply appeared to be lunatics to testify. So they're not going to sully their own judicial reputation immediately by giving in to these obviously phony arguments it's what the court's doing the supreme court's doing about abortion no, no, i don't want to no no, no, no i'm no, sorry no, okay, wait, go wait, ahead no, but that's no, not wait, the issue okay. no but the okay but is it every, is it yes that that the fact that guns will be on the streets of every city you can just walk around and carry them and i i was looking into another court case that uh, is about to be argued against the Environmental Protection Agency without going into a lot of detail. But basically, it's a challenge to the very idea that Congress can delegate authority to federal agencies. In other words, uh, and this has been a longstanding uh complaint of the right that they're unelected they're bureaucrats and what we should do is congress should write all the regulations for protecting the environment these guys don't have time you know to get up and uh, take a leak they do not have time to write regulations for everything about the environment they don't have particular they're not physicists they're not people who know about um, kind of the details of environmental challenges and if you lose the ability if the court says and i predict that it will say this it will severely limit the right of agencies to make these decisions to make these judgments and then to carry them out so if if the environment is ruined Reproductive justice is out the window, not pushed completely out, but enough to really be painful. And if everybody in America can all of a sudden walk around with guns, I'd say that's a per, that's a three step trifecta of bad things that will ruin democracy. May I, may I swim here for a second with you on this? Of course. OK. Uh I'm terrified. Okay. Let me qualify this. I'm terrified. I see the potential for this country to get a lot worse. And I, this is my preamble things in motion stay in motion. Things that were once unimaginable become prosaic, like gun violence. We, we always thought that, you know, after Newtown, ah, now. <laughs> now it's gotten worse and now an assault weapons ban is no longer on the table you've brought up we used to talk about getting rid of handguns well yeah. things got so bad it's off the table so things in motion stay in motion and they get worse and i agree with everything you just said that that but that is an increment. What you're talking about is the incremental ground game of the erosion of individual liberty that takes years. And it's back and forth. It's give and take. It's not the coup d'etat. It's not the insurrection. It's not this beer hall putsch that's being right. sold to us like you should be scared, very scared. 
And this is the most important election of your lifetime. These midterms, and I don't think the American people do well when they're scared. That's how the Patriot mm, Act gets passed. Right, That's how right. you invade Iraq. That's how you bail out the banks when you shouldn't have. We get terrified and we make bad decisions. And right now, I'm being told by Meekum and Beschloss and everyone on MSNBC, our democracy is at stake. Our democracy is at stake. The, 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 all the red lights are blinking. And I'm thinking, mm. okay, tell me how this plays out. Tell me, is it going to be a military coup? Because I'm not saying... I'm not seeing a military coup in the in the offering. I know General Chaguba and his friend wrote this mm -hmm. big letter. Good man, right. General Chaguba. He looked into Abu Ghraib, you know, that he's worried that our soldiers are going to hive off and assist in an insurrection. I believe that at the very top, it's a tuning fork, and you hit the tuning fork, and the whole country marches in lockstep and if the joint chiefs of staff say and the uh, and the secretary of defense say there's no coup there's no coup doesn't matter what the white nationalists mm -hmm. in the military in the police or in michigan think if the people at the very top say there's no coup we have enough firepower to get everybody in line and I'm not saying people at the very top supporting a, a du jour military takeover. Maybe a de facto one that may have already happened. Well. <laughs> but I don't see us waking up one day, cut to me a year from now, calling- In jail. Uh, in jail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, well, here, do you do you see saying. do you see no, no i don't see a there's not going to be a military coup no matter what happens i agree with you because they'd lose that you, as well they've lost every war they would try to take <laughs> over america and our military <laughs> would lose that right. as well that's right <laughs> um look at the number you know one of the reasons so many democrats stay in office is because they um people like them they don't even know what their policies are. Now we've got, I think, 35 House resignations or, or people have decided not to run or they're going to run for something else. But in the, a lot of these people are in fairly marginal districts, but they keep getting elected because they don't do anything terrible. They bring home some, if not bacon, bacon bits. And people like that. Right. But when there's 33 people that aren't going to be guaranteed re-election, then you have an unknown Democrat, an unknown Republican with all the money that they bring to the table. That that could be a slaughter, an absolute slaughter. A political then, slaughter. A, a political slaughter. But then look what you get to do. You get to first you, you abolish the January 6th. Uh, investigation um which you know may or may not get anywhere 
And then you can just pass anything you want. And they, these people, though, do have the long haul. This organization that somebody asked me about two weeks ago, uh, Project Blitz, which now has a slightly better name. This is all about the long haul. The, these are people, I suggest you go on the Americans United website and um, look at just the the volume of stuff that's published there about Project Blitz. But it's here's the premise. What is Project Blitz? To, Project Blitz is started by three really kooky right-wing evangelical organizations and, and blitz i always associate uh, the word blitz with the nazis with no with a good christian <laughs> the blitzkrieg wasn't that well, blitz, uh, yes, didn't was, jesus was, advocate was, a blitzkrieg yeah, yeah he was constantly talking about it it's in the apocrypha <laughs> uh, it's not in the actual bible right but um no but th this um <laughs> This they play the long game. This they have a three-part plan, three levels of laws to erode separation of church and state. They never talk about abortion. They don't because that's too controversial, and the public isn't with them. They suggest you start with simple things like God, in God we trust signs on every public building and then they explicitly say in these manuals that a that aren't public anymore but they're up on the americans united website that they'll say this is will not be viewed as terribly controversial because everybody goes well it is the national motto it, it's the second national model motto uh, and then and then they work into other things declare christmas day a state holiday. This is very much focused on the states. Uh, Christmas is a national holiday by congressional action, but this is a way to focus it. And, and they give you sample proclamations. You know, this day honors Jesus Christ. Then from, from those things that sound relatively simple, then you get into the more controversial ones like, um, Anybody that has a religious objection to same-sex marriage uh, doesn't have to provide any services to people that would tend to look like you're solemnizing this. But even there, they don't lead with that. They start and say, we need to protect the clergy. And th this is the thing they said in 2015, before the Obergefell decision, every right-wing crackpot came up with the idea that this will force ministers to do same-sex weddings, even if it's against their religion. So I remember two years later, we had a very clever guy who was doing social media for us. And, and he did this series of things where he said, look at the evidence about how many clergymen have been required to perform a gay couple's marriage. And then a half hour later, answer, zero. Half hour after that, answer, nada. Just every variation on the word or the concept of none. But they want you to pass state laws that protect the clergy and their right not to perform these marriages. And that's even that, though, 
it quickly, but not immediately, fades into, and anybody who has a religious objection, you know, the florist, all these cases that the Supreme Court's already giving ridiculous advantages to uh, uh, Christian or allegedly Christian florists, bakers, and others. So there's a, a tremendous amount of damage that can be done, particularly if you have the long view. This is my complaint about what the Democratic Party has done lately. It has no view beyond its own next election. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you can't you can't change the country if that's your perspective. Right. You cannot. You have to do a plan. Exactly. And if you and you have to get groups that actually are willing to work together, even if they would just as soon collect money on their own. Um, the right's very good at, at this. They 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 created a bunch of the legal groups on the right. I created a group out in Arizona called the Alliance defense fund now it's called the alliance defending freedom and the idea was that we're going to give money to this new group it had a, a director that was well loved by the uh by the right the religious right and now all of a sudden the alliance defending freedom is um litigating all over the place they're they're more significant in their litigation strategy than the one associated with uh, Jerry Falwell, Liberty Council, or even Pat Robertson's litigators. They gave them some startup funds. They ran with it, but nobody complained about it on the right. They just said, we started this group. Look how good they're doing. And in a compromised court, they're going to do court system. They're going to do a lot better for a long, long time. Well, we sit around and we go, let's see, let's, Let's let's take and and th this runs counter to I think the all the support for Bernie and other. But if, if you take things too far too fast, people go. I can't put up with that. I, I that's too much. That's too far because this country is not. It used to be, but it is not at this moment looking for big global answers to anything, not to education, not to child care, not to the environment. We just we just aren't. And nobody's spending any time preparing people to do that. It's what Henry and you uh, talked about months ago. If you're not on the ground now and you're running for the Senate, you might as well just forget it and go learn how to play backgammon right right because you ain't gonna do it you're you have to have a ground game you have to have people who are willing to be there with you to make sure that whatever advertisements come out from the republicans you're gonna have people right on the ground and say you know but bill's running and i've known him and look at these great things that he's doing and and say that at the church say that at the union hall say that everywhere yeah well That's said. how you win. Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. Everything you just said, that there that there is uh, a group that's seizing control of the Republican Party that's looking at the long game and they know exactly what they want and they're pretty upfront about it. And Ann Lee, who will be up shortly, President Lee has a quote uh, from Salon explaining that the same white Christian nationalist ideology that is behind Project Blitz 
is also driving the backlash against the deliberate caricature of critical race theory. Yep. And Christian white nationalism is the belief that America is and must remain a Christian nation founded for its white Christian inhabitants and that our laws and policies must reflect this premise. They completely reject church state separation. Uh, you're familiar with that term, separation, yeah. church and state. Yeah. So but mm. but here's here's where I agree with you. That there are people who know exactly what they want. I agree with you that these people, these crazy evangelical Christians, know exactly what they want. And we don't have an analog in the Democratic Party that knows exactly what it wants. Do we? Is there anything? No. Well, no. It no, there, there isn't an analog like this, but that's because we have always, as Democrats, we have always said we want an open system. We want to respect all the diversity, including the diversity of opinion. So when Rahm Emanuel was recruiting people to be, run for the House, he, he was willing to recruit you if you were an anti-abortion Democrat. He didn't care. He just wanted to increase the numbers. And he did for a while. Right. But, but you have. You, but, you so have what to is the thing? So what is the issue that would galvanize the Democratic Party that would make them a winner in the swing states in North and South Dakota? What could the Democratic Party deliver on, promise to deliver on to to counteract the blitz. What 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 are the specific issues? How about I, I Christianity? Yeah. How about Christianity? How about our yeah, version of Christianity? Yeah. yeah but you know that they see that people always say that, and they expect me to go. Yes, that's what we should do. We do not need Bible quoting contests during election campaigns. I once I once flew from St. Louis back to Washington to see with this guy who was very, very wealthy. And I thought I'm going to fly back. It's really early in the morning, but I'm sure he's going to offer to give us some money. He offered to start a new organization. And here was his premise. He said he was gay, but he said what we need to do is be able to combat the anti-gay rhetoric right on the floor of Congress with our own version of the Bible. I said, no, we don't need to do that. We, we, we don't ignore it. You know, Democrats in some parts of the country kind of ignore churches and synagogues and any houses of worship. But it, that's not the way you do it. I think you do. You, you go and you talk about the so-called bread and butter issues. You talk about why it is that insulin costs 47 times more for you than it does in Canada or any other place in the world. And you say, and then you, you find the people locally who have diabetes, who really depend on this and who it would make a huge difference to be able to get it for a much reduced price. And you go out and you challenge very directly the advertising that is all over now, CNN, um, 
biopharmaceutical companies have spent billions of dollars on research, but there are forces in Washington that want to curtail the ability to develop new drugs. And they just developed vaccine. It's total bullshit. It is absolutely false. They don't even tell you what you're supposed to call your elected officials to stop. But, you know, it's it's negotiating for Medicare. Right. But, but if the biggest threat, because I've asked, I think I asked Professor Harvey J.K., what are you so afraid of? Again, I'm, first of all, I'm hosting a show and I'm I'm, I'm just asking questions. I'm sure. scared. I, I, I yeah. you know, I'm scared, but I, I don't think we operate well when we're terrified. And, you know, and, right. and I don't think you do long term thinking if you're in a panic attack which it sure feels like the Democrats want us to be in over the midterms. So very quickly, you've dedicated your life to separation of church and state. And you're right. And it's beneath contempt, you know, to wear an American flag, to drape yourself in patriotism. It's the last vestige of scoundrels, as is religion. Yeah. But, but... Do you object to praise the, you know, there was that song, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition during World <laughs> War II. What if the ammunition yeah. is the Lord against these people? What if, I mean, what would be wrong with Democrats saying something along the lines to honor your life's work? Look, I believe in separation, church and state. I don't want to be up here talking about mm-hmm. the Bible. But I will tell you, this, you know, you're not a good Christian. And I have these <laughs> priests and rabbis and sure. and uh, and imams to, to prove to you that you are not a Christian. You do not rep you know, and you do what John Fugelsang does, you know, quote yep. all the lines from the Bible that prove that you people on the right are anything but Christian. You object to that, I guess. Well, I mean, I think it as a political strategy. I mean, I remember when Al Gore was running for president, he had a woman on his staff who told the New York Times that uh, they asked him about religion and the state. And she said, well, uh, I'm recommending that Mr. Gore not use the phrase separation of church and state because it, it turns people off. Was that Naomi Wolf? That. Was that Naomi She's, Wolf? No, no, no. I... I I forget why I don't like Naomi Wolf, but I'm sure I'll think about it. But this woman and I I've, I I still know her, but she's um, it's just the wrong way to do it. It's if you wanted to get minister, a priest, and a rabbi. Yeah, did Jackie? We, is this from Jackie the Joke Man? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It was one of his best jokes. Right. Um, no, if you want to get people to do that, if you want to get them to, to to say from my faith tradition, and you should always have a humanist with you. That was the problem with Dr. King. He always wanted people to march with him in the front of the line, a minister. He was a minister, a rabbi, and a priest. He never said, I wonder 
if we should have an atheist here. He never said, I wonder if we should have a gay person here, even though he had a very highly placed, very uh, uh, serious uh, gay activist organizer who was on his staff. He never even let him tell say that he was gay so i mean you have to be but if we're afraid to do that if we're afraid to bring people together and say these things whatever is the basis of our moral decision making we're all in this together and we all see what is right that's okay okay nancy pelosi i think i i didn't see it but i I, I guess she had a prayer, a prayer session for, yeah, prayer at five at five thirty this yeah. afternoon or something. But that's I, the I, only I, prayer what? they have. She doesn't have a prayer <laughs> in November. So, no. no. Now, All right. She, so again, um, I'm trying to yeah. get the. I, I'm trying to predict the weather. Like, what is the yep. weather right now? How you know, cloudy with a threat of what by November? What what do you see? Because I'm not trying to be an optimist because I think things are really, really bad in this country. I I pretty much have dedicated the show to pointing out how bad things are. I don't I think (laughs) you need to wake up every morning and not think about what's going right. Who cares what's going right when people are being evicted, when there are homeless, when they're is a flu and we don't have Medicare for all and we're bombing innocent civilians overseas by the thousands. I don't see any point in doing a show where I celebrate how great this country is. It's, you know, what does that mean? So I'm all about the negativity. And I, you know, and I think Trump should be, you know, Arrested, uh, you know, I'm all f- and I'm terrified. And I do think January six was bad, but it wasn't a coup d'état. It wasn't no. a beer hall putsch. It wasn't an insurrection. It wasn't treason. It was a. It was some deplorables who were you know, animated by another deplorable. So what are we looking at in November? Uh, You know, we're being told this is a threat to our democracy. They offer us no solution, as you said, other than vote for the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. That's the answer. Yep. That's all. The, The only... Are they offering is 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 Biden is Pelosi? Are they offering anything other than themselves as the last defense against what? Against what? Against what? Tell me what we're tell me what the weather's going to look like a year from now if if the Republicans have the Senate and the House, they start impeachment of Biden. Well. What what do you need? Two thirds in the Senate? Three quarters? What's what is it? Two thirds. Two thirds. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to. I mean, he can talk about. I I forget who bloviated about that impeachment. Was it Lindsey Graham? No. All of these people are so bad. I love it that they're coming out after after each other now. You know, uh, Tucker Carlson's attacking uh, Karl Rove and. 
Ted Cruz for comments they made a few days ago, suggesting that this was a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol. And Tucker's like, that's not true. Why did Ted Cruz even say that? So to the extent that they eat each other, because Democrats have been so good at doing that for so long, that's that's good. But I don't I think what what is at stake what is likely to happen is you are going to see people coming out of the woodwork running as Republicans like this clown, Glenn Youngkin, who won the governor's race in Virginia, who yesterday decides he's going to appoint for the Environmental Protection Agency of the state of Virginia, the same guy that ran the EPA under Donald Trump. This guy wouldn't know, you know, the guy from Oklahoma. Yeah. I can't even think of his name. Yeah. But I mean, this is he here's a guy who's not Donald Trump, who didn't want Donald Trump to campaign for him, who talked incessantly about local school systems and how they were going to end up teaching critical race theory. But you but he didn't want anything to do with Trump. Now he's he's going from the the detritus on the floor of the Trump administration and putting them in power to govern the whole Commonwealth of Virginia in regard to the environment. People lie. We also have to use that word. We have to have more people who during debates, as most of these people will have to have, um, to say, that's a lie. You are making that up. If they don't do that, then people go, I guess it's just a minor difference of opinion. Right. No, it's a lie. The, the Republican Party is filled with liars. And if nobody in the Democratic Party wants to say, I mean, even today, having praised Biden's speech, he never mentioned Trump's name. He should have said instead of our former president, this is not this is not Stephen Colbert deciding he's not going to mention Trump by name. This is a man who knows and who said very strong, positive things about how corrupt the former president was, and he wouldn't mention his name. So that's a mistake. Yeah. So you have, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of this segment about why Merrick Garland will not prosecute Trump. Terry McAuliffe was running for governor of Virginia again. He was running against Yunkin, who was from the Carlisle group. Is that correct? Uh, Yes. A that's very, where he made his money. Yes. But that's where Terry McAuliffe was making money there, too. Exactly. You can't do it. You have to be purer than Caesar's wife yes. if you're going to insult Caesar's wife. Right. Th- that's the point, that the Republicans are worse. Yunkin is worse than Terry McAuliffe. But if you're poisoned, like Terry <laughs> McAuliffe is, you can't prosecute no, Yunkin, because you're almost as bad. You're dirty. <laughs> you're filthy. Yeah. It's why the Democrat. It's why every DA and prosecutor in America will not prosecute the Trump family. They're not as dirty as Trump, but yeah. there's enough dirt where they can't take the moral high ground. It's why of Cyrus course. Vance. Never pulled the trigger. It's why this DA in Fulton County, Georgia, won't pull the trigger on that phone call. And it's why Merrick Garland and our Justice Department will not indict Trump. They're not as corrupt as Trump. Mm. 
but some stuff is going to come out that will make them very uncomfortable. Yeah. And there is a legitimate argument that says, look, um, all of this being true, but when you drill down to things like whether you have daycare for your children, if the Democrats say, I'm going to give you not 100% of what you want, but I'll go 50%. And the Republican says, I'm not given a damn penny for your child raising. Then you have to wonder. You always have to ask this. I always ask this. But is this best, better than the worst person, Good, better enough that it's going to help real people survive? And I think, and but we, if if we always answer that, uh, yes, it's always better um, to uh, to be purists. Yeah, uh, we're not going to get much done. Was Biden's speech today, which I didn't, I just read about it. Was it a campaign speech? No, it was it? I'd say it was more. He had good lines, including the one you just quoted about the knife at the throat of democracy. So it had some good lines. But he, um, no, I don't think it was. I, I mean, I know everybody thinks he's going to run again. I, I don't see Joe Biden running for president again in 2024. I just don't. But, but, but he did want to make it clear that what happened and what this former president, whoever he was, um, what he said was, was just completely false. He, so to the extent that he, you know, I don't think, I can't think of a time that Biden's actually addressed the stop the steal nonsense or January 6th in anything close to the passion that, well, the passion, as much passion as you can get by reading off a teleprompter. It was passionate. We have to, we have to wrap it up. I'm going to ask you a question about the separation of the Oval Office and the Justice Department. The president appoints an attorney general who's approved by the Senate. Traditionally, there are memos and norms that prevent a president from calling his Justice Department or his FBI. But there are these are basically norms that can be violated, correct? That is correct. Is it unusual for a president to call an attorney general and ask why we're not prosecuting certain people? Is it Would it be considered an impeachable offense for a president to call his attorney general and say, I'm just curious about this case. Where are we on that? Is he allowed to do that? Yeah. It would be seen as completely inappropriate for him to do that because remember how close Richard Nixon was with his attorney general and uh, that you know that didn't serve anybody well I think it it is the better part of valor to hope that the people you appoint are going to have the same principles that you have in appointing them and I just frankly would it be inappropriate mistake with Merrick Garland if I were Uh, a president just elected who saw problems within my own party and Mm -hmm. I start vetting attorney generals to nominate, would it be inappropriate to bring in 
candidates and say something along the lines of, uh, I'm looking for an attorney general who is going to clean house in Congress. Remember Abscam? I, I, I'm sure. looking for somebody. I, I, I want to start. There's a lot of corruption on both sides. I'm looking for to go after, uh, you know, Joe Manchin, for example, mm -hmm. is pretty corrupt. No, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what people ought to do. That's what the vetters of all of these candidates for high office ought to be doing. You can ask, you can say, this is my goal. Are you comfortable with pursuing this? And if the person isn't right away saying, sounds like the agenda I would have, find another candidate. I don't know who the other candidates were. So Biden go, going into this, they Biden knew that Manchin was dirty. He knew that uh, <laughs> Pelosi was dirty. He knew and he knows who's dirty in the Republican Party. They could have done a, a bipartisan ab scam and scared the crap out of these people to clean up their act, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that Abscam would work again now. I think people are too, um, they're too leery of those things happening. I, I, I don't think you could pull off an Abscam in 2022. Oh, I, I, I think you'd have to use a different costume. <laughs> yeah. I think the Saudi prince. Yeah. But, oh, my God. Are you kidding? You don't think you could pull <laughs> off Abscam? No, I don't. Nope. I mean, that was a lot of people caught up in the same grift. I mean, that was, um, that was, I think, a one in a, a lifetime opportunity. Would you, would you object to a sting operation where the Justice Department offers phony bribes to every mm. senator and congressperson? Every, like, just, would you object to that? No. I would not object to that. And if you find a few things, some rotten apples falling out of the trees, then you can not make applesauce out of them, but throw them the hell away. Do and you, like Michigan, we're told that there was a, a, a plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, the governor, right? Yeah, there was. And as Professor Marianne, who's about to come on, says that was a sting operation that was pretty much orchestrated by the FBI. The entire idea of kidnapping the governor was dreamt up by the FBI. Is that wrong for the FBI to say, hey, we're about to go rob a bank. Uh, you want to join us? And if you say yes, they've proven that you're you have a, a criminal you're capable well, of committing a crime. Is that wrong? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it's categorically wrong because there's a delicate balance between whether you're giving someone an idea she or he didn't have before and just nudging them along because you want them to commit, if it's a conspiracy, the overt act or acts necessary for a successful prosecution. But if you tried to, you know, uh, uh, 
bribe me if you said barry you know i got some great coke here uh i'd be happy to send you a pack of it um since i'm disinclined to use cocaine um i could say well you're 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 forcing me into this i'm an innocent party but if there's somebody else who you know because you've watched videos of snorting coke in in a miami beach hotel and then you come up to me and you say you know i got a great deal on some cocaine in fact i'm gonna give you a pack of it free that's okay you can do that that is not creating a crime that's just working with information you know like delorean in order to do it like, like the delorean De- well if i ever get to be dictator or president yeah. I'm going to empty out the prisons and I'm just going to do sting operations on Wall Street and corporate America and a handful of my enemies. But you're not <laughs> you're not on the list. One hey, another, that's good. another year where the Reverend <laughs> Barry W. Lynn did not make not my on enemies. the list. You're, not you ain't on, on the, the list. list. Not even yeah. close. Oof. <laughs> it's uh I was I was on an, the FBI list uh for Vietnam stuff. And I, I remember talking about it uh, at a big conference of religious types and uh, father Robert Drynan, Bob Drynan was still in the house at the time. And so after I mentioned this, he said, he looked out at the audience. He said, you know, Barry, you complain about being on, on the FBI list. I wish there were a lot more people sitting in this room who were on that list. Yeah. Who was the, the father, the priest who had to step down because the Pope said no more. Yeah, that's Bob, Bob Drynan. He wasn't he went on to be. Yeah, they they told him he should step down. He did. And uh, I think he later, I, I used to run into him when he was the chairman of the board of Common Cause. Was he against the Vietnam War? Oh, absolutely. He was the first person to introduce articles of impeachment against Nixon, not based on Watergate, but against the bombing of Cambodia. You know, no offense. Yes. But I'd be all in on Catholic priests running for elective office. I would. I would. Yeah. Well, I'm in favor of it, too. I, I, I think the Catholic Church is a force. Let me just start this off. I think <laughs> that they're the the one religion in America that leads with the poor. Yep. They do. They do. Most of them do. Yeah. I can't imagine. I know there was Father Coglin. Yeah. From Professor Marianne Cummings neck of the woods, but mm-hmm. I can't imagine a, a Catholic priest running for office, <laughs> just voting for tax cut, get, getting away with tax cuts for the wealthy 1%. And I, I got to believe, I don't know. I'm not Catholic, but uh, thank you. Well, you Reverend, always have an opportunity to convert. That's what they would tell you. Uh, well, yeah. I'm not uh, like Bill Barr was a Jew who converted. Yes, that's true. Catholicism. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's been good talking with you. And you got all the professors here. We have all the professors. And, 
And you marry Anne. Yeah. So you got everybody. One so of them will, is celebrating a birthday today. Oh, wait, let me guess. Let me guess if I Professor uh, Hussein. Thank you. The All right. Go to barrywlynn.com for a treasure trove of this man's sermons and writings and appearances on places like Firing Line, William F. Buckley, good Jesuit, the great, he, he should have run for, well, he ran for mayor. That's, you know, he did. And he, he, did. he spoke about the meek inheriting the earth. And he was a good <laughs> Catholic man, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He uh, cared I about think the he, poor. I think he wanted to put them uh, on an iceberg <laughs> with the Frankenstein monster and hope they would never be seen again. But yes, but in comparison to the conservatives of the day, you can at least say he spoke better than Matt Gates. Yes, he did. Thank you, Reverend. Stay out of thank trouble. You. Stay out of trouble. Only good trouble. And thank you for keeping it clean tonight. I try. I really do. Well, let's go to the professors and Marianne each week. Professor Marianne Cummings and Professor Adnan Hussein and Professor Ann Lee and Professor Jonathan Bick join us to talk about whatever they want to talk about. Let's wish Professor Adnan Hussein a happy birthday. And what did you do for your birthday today? Oh, thanks so much, everyone. Um, nothing too special. You know, it's a work day. Term is about to start. So I just immersed myself in 12th and 13th century Jewish and Islamic thought. And I'm just coming back out of that fog of philosophy to thinking about today's events and commemorations. Um, Who were the great minds of that time that you're teaching? Oh, um, Al-Ghazali, who I think is probably one of the most influential pre-modern thinkers globally and is somebody that is seldom uh, thought about, but he was a big influence, I would say, on two people, uh, two thinkers people might have heard about, uh, Maimonides, um, the greatest Jewish uh, intellectual of the time, and um, Thomas Aquinas, who we were talking about the Catholic uh, Church, at least a little bit. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, probably the most well-known and important theologian and philosopher. And both of these two figures in these two other religions um, were deeply influenced by the way in which Al-Ghazali uh, tried to reconcile the classic problem that bedeviled all pre-modern religious communities that were connected with the Greek tradition. How do you reconcile reason, that tradition of Greek rationality and philosophy, with revelation, that is, the scriptural inheritance? And this is what everybody wrestled with in their own various ways. And Al-Ghazali's way of trying to um, establish uh, that reason alone wasn't going to be possible to find the truth, but that revelation was needed on a spiritual level. That's the only way in which you could really have certainty of your knowledge. Uh, that ended up being a formulation that was very useful for Maimonides and Thomas Aquinas. What um, is the geography and time span? Was Maimonides in Morocco or Libya? Where did oh, 
Hades lived all over the Mediterranean. He was from a Sephardic Spanish uh, community, but he had to flee his family during this period where there were some kind of fundamentalist movements that that emerged and ended the toleration of other religious traditions. There was a very radical tradition that emerged of the Al-Muwahidun, and they forcibly converted Jews and Christians to Islam and Muslims uh, to Al-Muhadism, you might say. Um, and uh, so his family had to convert. What years um, are we talking about here? Oh, we're talking about the middle of the 12th century and probably around the 12th, late 1240s, early, I mean, late 1140s and early 1150s. And so his family fled and moved to Egypt where there was another very important Jewish uh, community was a center of trade in that part of the Mediterranean, connected the Mediterranean world of commerce uh, to the Indian Ocean. Hmm. And um, there he was able to return to being, you know, a public Jew and was um, thought to be, um, if not, well, he he was a physician at the at the court of uh, Salahuddin's uh, nephew and was a very prominent figure. So he lived all over, you know, at different times in different parts of the Mediterranean world. And Aquinas? Of course, Thomas Aquinas was, you know, important at the University of Paris. Um, and um, Al-Ghazali is somebody who was from what is today Central Asia, and also known as Khorasan. So this part of kind of northeastern Iran and, you know, um, uh, Turkmenistan, this this sort of this sort of region, um, is where he was originally from. But he made his career in Baghdad, which was, of course, the capital of the Muslim world, and was a great city and center of. And it was there Russia. any cross? There, there's no way any of them met or corresponded. Oh no, they didn't meet. Um, but you know, Maimonides read and studied in Arabic and wrote works in Arabic, in fact, as well as in Hebrew. So he, you know, would have known that theological and philosophical tradition, beginning with, you know, people like Al-Farabi and Avicenna or Ibn Sina. And of course, Al-Ghazali and other writers were translated from Arabic into Latin. And scholars in the Dominican school um, around the University of Paris in the middle of the 13th century became very familiar with uh, Al-Ghazali's work and also Averroes, Ibn Rushd, and debated these questions. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say that there's a world just like today, the world of um, knowledge and scholarship is international and people seek out what they think are the most current and influential or best sort of solutions for problems in science or philosophy and you learn whatever the language is in which the most important work is done, which is why English, for example, is a scholarly language that people learn as their second language so that they can participate in it and read other people's scholarship and publish in it. Likewise, Arabic for several hundred years during the medieval period from the 12th century to the 14th century, um, you know, was a kind of um, scholarly language that people learned. And in fact, this extended even into the Renaissance era. So when we talk about Copernicus and Galileo, 
In fact, actually, the first Arabic printing press was in um, Italy and not in the Muslim world or the Arabic world. And the reason why is because they wanted to produce copies of astronomical works um, that had been written in Arabic. And their print run for some of these texts were like four or five hundred uh, uh, you know, works published, which meant that there was a reading public of four, five, a thousand people that were expected would be able to read Arabic so that they could study the latest astronomical works and calculations. Can academic rigor survive the internet, the speed at which information is spread? Uh, it doesn't give as many people the time to deliberate as they probably should take. Um, but on the other hand, you have access to material and information much more quickly. You know, a lot of scholarship used to be, you know, I read all these articles as a graduate student in the pre sort of database uh, era, pre digital text era, where it would be you know, Gerhard Lerner, you know, writing an article of enormous erudition about the concept of reform in the Latin tradition from late antiquity to, you know, the Renaissance period. And he would just be citing sources from, you know, all across from 400 to 1400. And it was amazing. But now I could probably, you know, do something similar by just putting in a search term in a digitized database. And all of that painstaking erudition, um, you know, is accomplished, you know, through, you know, computers. And what's more important is your analysis of them. You know, what do you make of them? Why how are they does meaningful? the human brain survive? This document dump, it's a document dump. Like, how do you know? I guess I'll open this up to everybody here is Professor Ann Lee and Professor Marianne Cummings and Professor Bick. How do you survive what amounts to a, a document dump of information and parse out the good from the bad? Well, I, I think one of the innovations of the last 10 years was the searchable PDF form. When I started like about eight or nine years ago, looking through copies, it was just, you know, they, they were just prints of copies of typewritten theses uh, from the era of the molten salt reactor experiment. We're talking Oak Ridge in the mid to late sixties. It was horrible. I mean, you actually did have to read through them and, and we, divided in our group, like 100 pages each, we read through. But somebody uh, since took all of that information, made them into searchable PDF form. So I can do a search now on these things. You couldn't do that eight or nine years ago. And believe me, that has really helped start sorting through stuff. You know, we had the, uh, we had the Dewey Decimal System, you know, people spent whole lives just kind of organizing books on shelves. I, I didn't go randomly, even as a kid, through the library, although I would kind of like to do that once in a while, just wander aimlessly. But if I was actually looking for something for school, I just went to the card catalog. And so... Professor you know, Ann Lee, where is wisdom to be found in books? I always think 
like, you know, Burgess Meredith and the Twilight Zone episode that Professor Bick hasn't shown yet, that left, if I was left alone with glasses that don't get destroyed like Burgess Meredith, all my wisdom would come from books. Is that true? That Because there doesn't feel like there's en enough time in the day to just read. And I feel if I could just read everything, I would have knowledge and wisdom. Is that true? Too many now, but I, I think it's, uh, it's still about understanding the difference between those things which uh, might be factual or canonical to those that are speculative. And I think that's still the critical task. But, how, uh, how do you know when you're done reading for the day? How do you know when you're done? Uh, no. I, I, you just can't stop. I mean, it's just, you know, there's just too much stuff there. There's always another stupid project. So the, the, I have several wacky projects that are, that make, that get even more complicated when I find a new branch of something or other to look at. So what is your baseline? Like what, what do you, do you well, have? Is there a baseline each day that you say, I have to, is there a number of hours, a number of what for you to say, okay, at least I feel. It's, it's more organic. Otherwise you begin to think that you're working in a factory. I, it, it really has a factory like element to it. If you have too many, uh, kind of deadlines and those kinds of things. But I, I have a much more, I try to be much more relaxed about it because uh, I try to look at the the sort of interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary elements of these things. Um, Professor but I think it's Im important to have a core of, of, of ideas and beliefs. I, you know, I, but yet not be limited by your particular set of, of worldviews, your, you're kind of uh, to understand your own community of scholars is really important. I, I think that that's the most important thing to identify who is it that that I I can can who can serve as my mentors, my community of of agreement to the right. things that I believe in, and who are the best critics of those positions as well. Otherwise, you wind up. Uh, you know, just simply trying to get some sort of consensual validation from the, the wrong opinions. Professor. Bick, and then there's always dead ends. There's right. always dead ends. I hate dead ends, but they're there. My father taught me how to read The New York Times. This is hard to believe, but I don't know if anybody else experienced this, but there was a tradition where you would learn how to read the New York Times. So it didn't feel insurmountable. And my father sat me down. He said, you read the entire front page first and don't go to the, just get the front page and then turn immediately to the editorial page and read the editorial page, then look at the op-ed page and then read the first paragraph, then start on page one and just read the first paragraph of each story uh, until something strikes you and by then the phone will ring and you won't finish it. But at least you will have read the front page and the back. And I don't think anybody teaches us how to 
read the internet, how to, you know, get that baseline each day. Uh, and I'm just curious, does it, do you have a baseline, Professor Bick, where you, you know, like I, my father said, this was before the internet. He said, at least you'll have the times in your brain as you go through the rest of the day. At least you'll have the front page, the back, you'll have some baseline, some reference. Do you have anything like that? Well, my father taught me a different approach. Uh, he would take the New York Times into the bathroom and not come out until he was um, mainly finished with the paper. So we didn't see him for, you know, hours on end sometimes. Um, yeah, I, I, I like to know what's going on. I like to, to I have, I don't know, I'd say uh, maybe a dozen different sources that I try to look at. Um, every day and see what's interesting there. And, you know, uh, that's, that's the approach I take. I, I, I don't make it like factory work, like uh, professor Enley was, was talking about. Um, are there articles there? Are there articles in magazines and websites that you look at, you see the headline and you say, Ugh. I should read this, but I don't want to. Do you force yourself to go, this is, oh, this is going to hurt my brain, but I should read about my, I don't mean to offend anybody, but Sudan, that's a hard read for me to read about Sudan. But, you know, do you force yourself to read certain pieces that you, that are a struggle? I, I do. I, um, I, there are a lot of things that make me very angry uh, and uh, make me depressed, but I feel that I have to know what's going on, uh, you know, in those areas or, you know, when it comes to democracy in America or, you know, starvation or, uh, you know, but I'm talking about approval. the heavy lifting of reading something. Professor Marianne, you know what I'm talking about, the heavy lifting of saying something that you just, it's going to, I cannot read this, but I have to. Oh, I never have those feelings anymore. I can't read this. Ah, don't need to. <laughs> I mean, you know, if it's, if it's, it's like eating food. If it's like, if you're going to have to force it down, probably not really good. In other words, um, I do remember, and literally, one of the nuns taught us how to read newspapers in the sixth grade. I remember that. She mimeographed. We still had an old mimeograph machine. I could still remember the smell of that stuff. Right. It smelled great. Right. Yeah. 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 It smelled like kind of juice. Anyway. Yeah. Um, she gave us, uh, a, a, we had several different articles and she put it in front of us. And then we, you know, we were supposed to spend 10 minutes and write who, what, where, when, you know, why, possibly why, how. Um, and at the art and you're looking at the headline and you're looking at the article and I'm sitting there with my pencil and I'm just reading this article and I'm just going, what, what, what? So of course she did it on purpose. So she called me since I was furrowing my brow and said, Marianne, you're having trouble with that article. I said, I don't even know what it's about. And she started laughing aloud and she says, yeah, you will find that often. And she kind of went through it. He said, you notice the title. And you noticed 
that they only mentioned the subject of the title in paragraph five or six. And she was, so she was saying, sometimes when you come across news like this, they try to what they call bury the real news. And she says, so this is an article about what's in the title. This is an article about something else. It was fantastic. You know, I'm, this is a working class parochial school. And, you know, I, I think the kind of critical thinking skills, though, we learned, I don't think they teach that in high school. But anyway, that's kind of my, you know, my, that's kind of my thing. I, I always just go very simply, who, what, where, when, how, and the when, you important for a timeline. That, 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 the timeline sometimes becomes very important. And uh, for instance, when I was like trudging through several articles about this Russiagate early on, that's when I kind of sensed this was nonsense because, you know, you'd have to plow through an entire article, paragraph 15, to find that, well, there's no direct evidence that Russia was involved in this or Russia hacked the, there was no direct evidence. There's a, okay, wait a minute. That should have been like in the second paragraph. So this is how I developed. And, and of course, um, there are people who write well, very well, like Juan Cole. There are, there's places like the Consortium News. I, I started going back there. I didn't after Robert Perry suddenly died. But remember, he was the, uh, wrote the Iran-Contra story, and he was a editor at Newsweek until he was frustrated that many of his stories didn't get press. So I would, he started Consortium News. So I go to, there's, there's several places I go to that are good at covering certain, that I know that are good at covering certain things. And uh, particularly, like, you know, it's not worth your time. If something is so hard to read, except for articles on immunology, those are just inherently really complicated. But if something is so hard to read, you, you know, it, it's a tremendous effort to read it. It's not a good writer. Mm-hmm. And po- chances are the writer themselves are not clear about what it is they're writing. Professor so. Hussein, academic writing, there's a style to academic writing that's, that's indecipherable. Is it getting better? Have, 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 has, have I think it's bifurcating. There are some people who are moving more towards uh, legibility and communication. They want to communicate with the public and be public spheres. And there are others who are retreating ever further into rather jargony, um, theoretical sophistication and conceptual rigor, but always retreating from the clear declarative position and argument. I mean, I feel like, I think I appreciate complexity. I think it's very important to acknowledge that there aren't easy answers all the time for things and you have to take time and think about it from multiple different perspectives and different, um, you know, weigh the evidence and so on. But I think there's also a fetishizing of the complexity, you know, in order to increasingly maintain and establish a kind of closed church monopoly yes. over, yes, you know, you know, that's it's a guild sort of craft, you know, uh, used to be that the 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 guild you know, craft was in, you know, your analysis and how you, you know, deal with evidence or something like this. And it seems like increasingly membership in the guild is uh, being able to express in the abstruse common kind of terms 
um, that is are recognized by one's peers rather than communicating the substance of your research to a wider audience. I have to say, I have really liked how the explosion of podcasts have encouraged people to try and communicate to people outside of the academy um, and opportunities like you know, I, I don't like the online teaching. I'm preparing, you know, to teach an, a seminar online. I don't think it's going to be as good that way. But on the other hand, I'm really glad to have become much more familiar with this technology, to be comfortable with it, to learn, you know, what's possible in it so that you can have office hours and, you know, learn about political, you know, uh, ideologies from Professor Bick and learn about, you know, physics and, um, cosmology, um, you know, from uh, uh, Marianne and uh, political economy from from Anne Lee. I mean, I think I would find it daunting to have to, to dip into the full scholarly literature. Whenever I am interested in a new area and I start, you know, looking through the bibliographies and I just realize there are hundreds and hundreds of books and articles that I would need to wade through in order to gain some sense of what are the parameters of the key questions in this field. And so one thing that's good about these sorts of formats, these discussions that we have here is that people can bring their expertise and summarize at least what are some key points so that you have a sense of whether there are stakes involved that are worth pursuing further. You at least get a sense. Is it interesting? Is it worth really delving into some of the more specialized literature? And if you if you don't have those kinds of works, and I wish people would write more of these kinds of review articles. I think review articles are wonderful. You have four or five books that come out in the last two or three years on a particular topic because clearly there was something that was attracting people's attention and interest. So they went, they studied, they wrote these books, and then somebody write, reads them, writes a review article to talk about what's at stake in this turn or this area and interest. And then, you know, if you find it interesting or valuable, well, then you can go read the, those books and really start mastering the field, but you get a sense of it. And I think of podcasts as oral review articles, possibly for, you right. know, a wider community. Com so yeah. it's a problem, I think, that we're dealing with in the field, but there are more and more avenues for this kind of communication. And I'm happy about that. Younger students, I would assume, I'm, I'm probably wrong, if something is indecipherable, they they say, uh, I, how dare you? And they're right in a way, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, we have this problem. I think increasingly people read less and less and have less patience to sit with something that is difficult. And sometimes you need that because you have to be trained to, you know, unfamiliar ideas can be hard to master. Um, and you can, this is something I remember Chomsky saying, of course, I sound like a lunatic because I'm saying something that's not part of the consensus. And in order to do so, I need to explain what are the presumptions. And I have to provide twice as much evidence as anybody else because people will accept things with one example that they already kind of acknowledge and accept because it's part of the consensus. So you do need that. You need more time. You need to go through it and you have to have that patience 
However, by the same token, because so much other forms of information are available and people watch videos and they, you know, listen to podcasts, I think that the patience for the slower act of reading carefully has diminished. And that's hard when you're trying to teach difficult texts from a historical period or a discipline that's unfamiliar to students or... I find definitely students don't have much background when it comes to non-Western history. They may know something about American history, usually a lot of myths, but at least, you know, you can tear those myths down and still be in some kind of dialogue with what they do know. And so that is useful in certain fields or European history. They might know some of the bare elements. They've heard of Napoleon. So if you talk about the French Revolution and Napoleon, they have something to go on, but they're frightened by Chinese history, you know, African history, Middle Eastern history. The names are so strange. They don't know, you know, it doesn't make sense immediately and they feel out of their depth. So you have all sorts of hurdles. So on top of that, if you give them readings that are sophisticated, challenging and unfamiliar, you, you can't really expect them to actually make it make it through that. Um, so actually, I've settled for my class because we're reading some, you know, difficult. We would normally be reading some really difficult texts. We're focusing on things that are, um, well, like I've been reading in office hours is this uh, sort of Robinson Crusoe-esque philosophical tale uh, from 12th century medieval Spain where, you know, you pos the, the, the author posits that somebody is sort of stranded on this desert island as an infant and they have to grow up and how do they come to learn truth through this intellectual path it's a way of dramatizing in a philosophical fiction so i figured that's at least there's a story even if there's a lot of heavy philosophy there's a story a narrative um, that one can use and i'm also using a textbook that actually comes with a podcast um, so each chapter is actually also orally um, declaimed. And I think that's the kind of techniques you have to use now because that's stamina for reading, I don't think is, is quite there the way it used to be maybe 30, 40 years ago when we didn't have a lot of other media to rely on. The, that's true. Go ahead, I, Professor I, Lee. I, I, so much stuff does now come in much more compact form and abbreviated or abridged um, you know, it's like, uh, well, even if you're reading the times, you can't read everything in the times. So you, you, you have a search strategy, of course, as, as David was mentioning, but then there's things you, you just have to ignore or, you know, it, it's a project management problem in some ways, you know, you're not going to do the crossword unless that's your, the first thing you always go, go for. Um, uh, like, uh, I always look for trends in Twitter but I've already pre-filtered my, my feeds so that uh, I don't have to get lost at, in dead end. Similarly, I, I often use Wikipedia, which is a really bad source, but it, it is a way of framing certain arguments and it allows you to sort of get an entry point and then you can go from there. It, it's really, it, and you also have to sort of gain a tolerance for bad writing. Uh, it's like reading the Times. Reading the Times, there's so much bad writing in the Times, and you have to sort sort through stupidity or just bad writing. It, it's just you know, but and irrelevancy. It, it's just, it's what? the Times is just more and more 
irrelevant. It, it, it's hit a, I don't know, even the Washington Post is more relevant than the New York Times for some reason. Well, I have, I have favorite writers. I have ones that I trust. I trust certain writers because not only do they write uh, cleanly, but they also have a, whether it's an analytic vent or some other research vent, I know they're not, you know, they don't have a thing, a certain problem in their own sort of worldview. Whereas if I'm looking at 538, for example, there's some clearly methodologically bad problems in there that I, I just can't, you know, I'll look at it to get one framework but the the politics get all screwy and because Nate Silver, you know, he he thinks he can talk about every different problem and he can't. He really can't. And he doesn't he, he doesn't uh, he's not conscious. He's not self-aware of that. And it always irritates me. But yet I still go there for certain graphs because they do. You know, they're 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 well done. It, it's similar to looking at, at statistical stuff on the internet because there's so much lying with, with data that it's just, you have to be, you have to have a, a reasonable analytic search strategy, recognize, you know, what's a big enough sample, uh, recognize that there are clear biases and that they can't be graded by letters, you know, which as some sites do, they aggregate and they say, well, this is a B level statisticals database. And you go, well, it's only B because it's in the middle. That doesn't make it, you know, it, that doesn't say anything about the quality of it. Right. And, and, and or um, ones that use large, very large data sets, which, which is really important. Anyway. Let, let me do sorry. this because we have about 20 minutes left. Let, let me go around the horn and ask everybody what they wanted to talk about. And then we'll throw it into the mix but get it all on the the table. So J Professor Bick, is there anything you wanted to talk about? Well, um, <clears throat> I, I guess I did want to talk about, because you, much of your show has been about the, uh, and of course, today's the one year anniversary. Uh, I, I wanted to make the uh, point that I, I do think that what happened on January 6th was an attempted coup. And the reason I think that, is because I, I don't think a coup has to be bloody. Uh, I don't think it has to involve discharge of firearms. I don't have to think that, you know, I, I don't think that it has to involve deaths. Uh, the reason it was a coup, in my view, or attempted coup, was because the point of it was trying to overturn the election. And they were trying to do that in a very specific way because we have an indi indirect vote for president in this country, which is shameful. In my view, we have an electoral college. They were able to penetrate democracy and at, at a critical point when if they could have disrupted the, the counting of the electoral votes or gotten uh, another slate of legislatures from a few other states to come in and to erase Biden's majority of the electoral votes by doing so, they would have thrown the election into the House of Representatives, 
where the Republicans would have won because every state gets one vote and the majority of states are controlled by Republicans. And I think this was a plan. Now, not everyone who participated in this riot uh, was in on the plan, but it there does seem to be evidence to show that this was a thought out process. But using legal, using the the vagaries of the Constitution and how we count the vote, they weren't, you know, when I think of a coup, I think of kidnapping Pelosi and Pence. They, they found loopholes in the Constitution and in how we elect our president. It, it was clear, even using the partially democratic, archaic, sclerotic process that we use to elect a president that Joe Biden won on those terms. They were trying to create something that was not the case through a tissue of lies, which is why those people were there in the first place. That's what they were doing. They, they were trying to corrupt an already corrupt process in my view, but a, a process that has selected all the presidents prior. And and so that was the coup. You, you it doesn't you know it doesn't have to involve guns. It doesn't have to involve people getting killed or pushed around or anything like that. Even though you know some of that happened, mm -hmm. uh, and I have to remind you there were bombs that were planted mm -hmm. on that day. Um. No, th that is. I mean, that would have been worse, right, than a few people dying for. The process, as bad as it is in this country, to be overthrown and to be interrupted and to be uh, to directly counteract the will of the people in this country as to who they wanted to lead them. That's even worse because of all this that would set up going forward. I, I you know. And the reason why you engage in an attempted coup is, first of all, to try to win, that is, overturn the election, or in the future, it helps you identify the mistakes that you made, identify the points where uh, you needed to apply more pressure or to, <laughs> to do something to uh, you know, make sure that the institutions such as they are did not block you the second time. So I do think this is a threat. I, I do think that uh, American democracy, or if you want to call it that, our, our system is being threatened. And part of the blame falls to the Democrats who have done precious little to stop it. I mean, I saw... Merrick Garland come out of his hiding place yesterday. I don't know if he saw his shadow, hmm. <laughs> but uh, you know, you know, if he did, does that mean there won't be, a, there'll be another year before he prosecutes anybody? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 well, let, let's go around the horn. Thank you for that. Uh, Professor Ann Lee, talk to me about the, what is the Green Bay sweep and what were John Eastman and Peter Navarro planning? 
Well, I think what, what you can see is the coherence of a plan to, to overthrow the government. I mean, it, it, it was very, all of the elements have been identified, even by some of the more peripheral characters and the ones who haven't been revealed to have been directly associated. So, for example, Ted Cruz brings up the example of the 1877 uh, a compromise I mean, he uses that as, as a reference point. And the whole issue, of course, is exactly what uh, Peter Navarro and John Eastman were, were, were planning. They, the, a, a, a very, very well-coordinated swap of, of, you know, manipulating the Electoral College votes. And in fact, it did resemble very much uh, Tilden Hayes in, in the, uh, from the 1876 uh uh, but, weren't, but weren't they exploiting the law and and the law, the Constitution and the laws that came after the Tilden Hayes election? Well, absolutely. And so and that, so it was a I, I again, I'm just but when I hear coup, I think of Allende and, you know, Pinochet seizing power. This seems to me some the lunatic fringe of the Federalist Society, not even the Federalist Society, you know, uh, Sidney Powell, uh, Giuliani, uh, Peter Navarro, and, and like Eastman was what, a uh, a temporary a, Justice Department official, civil, what was he part of? The no, he, he had no position at all. I mean, he was the dean of a law school, but it the, the point, of course, is that they had it all sort of they had a very clear plan. It supported in various ways. It had precedent. It it did have a sort of rationalizable framework. But but as uh, uh, Lawrence Tribe and uh, what's his name, the dean at at Berkeley's Law School today, framed it that, that this was totally unconstitutional and screwy. But the the fact of the matter is, there's enough openings that they could have made this argument and what they were relying on. And this is the issue that that John was talking about, that this is this is much more complicated. This was a lot more like what they tried to pull in Venezuela, for example, with with Guaido, you know, where you had all the mechanisms in place. All you needed was a little extra violence to push it over the edge. And that's exactly what what was going on with uh, January 6th. Professor the Mary problem, of course, is that you can't control you can't control the wackos, except except that there's there's all these little weird holes in it. Not that it's a conspiracy theory or anything, but if those bombs had gone off, everything would have changed. There would have been a complete different mobilization. And what's also weird is, aside from smearing all their feces around the the capital, no one set a fire. I it just seemed to me. Like the next damn step for them would have been to set one office on fire, and they and nobody did it. I it's that seemed very weird to me, uh, in the midst of a, a kind of four hour kind of strange struggle going on in the Capitol. Uh, I want to talk about, about what you want to talk about, Professor Marianne Cummings, but uh, I kind of agree with what you're about to say. Paint for me. <laughs> Hey. <laughs> oh, kind of funny, almost as if these were a bunch of knuckleheads that really had no idea what they were doing. Look, we had we we have suffered a real coup that happened in 2000. 
when Pappy's Bush's Supreme Court stepped in South America style to completely override what was a normal process going on in Florida to like make sure that his idiot son was installed. And instead of us just going to the inauguration and just protesting impotently, maybe like some fraction of that 300,000 of us should have surrounded the Capitol, made those people inside like piss their pants and persuaded a few electors to do the right thing and, you know, change their votes. And if that had happened, I don't think there'd be anyone in this chat room or here on this panel who would have had an objection to that. Okay. So, you know, what, so what did we do? Uh, Look, you know, this was no big secret. These guys, you know, this was going on in social media well in advance. And if the uh, Capitol Police, who, by the way, answer to Nancy Pelosi. No, no, that's not true. That's not true. And that's not true. They answer. There's a board that consists of the sergeant of arms of the House, the sergeant of arms of the Senate, the architect of the Capitol. That's who's in charge. The architect of the Capitol is in charge. How did we miss that? He's the guy. He's not Pelosi. She's not in charge of security. And they didn't. Well, they they did. uh, They they did admit at least the sergeant of arms of the House and the Senate both said they kept Pelosi out of the loop. There was a kind of amusing uh, Associated Press story where Lindsey Graham was apparently at one point just losing it and yelling at Mitch McConnell about how he could let this happen. Oh, dear, how could you let this happen? <laughs> anyway, but my, my point is, is, what's the Democratic response? Well, you know, let's just beef up national security and make the Congress even less access, uh, accessible to the, the public. Right. What so, would have happened, not, God forbid, the bombs go off? Are we more likely to see the needle move towards a coup or away from a coup? I would think if bombs, God forbid, had gone off. If bombs had gone off, if there really was feces everywhere. I'm, there, there would, the, then, then we would have cracked down. Then, then they would have just, there would have been no coup. There would have been no threat. They cracked down on, okay, so this is where timelines come in because I watched the first hour and a half of this at lunch and it was just weird. It was like what we saw earlier, people wandering around taking selfies with the police. Katie Helper did a very good episode about a week or so afterwards where she had the video right up until the time that the gal was shot. Um, This guy riling up people outside of uh, the inner office was like a four-year about 30 people there. And this one guy, John Sullivan, who had posed as a journalist had even been on Anderson Cooper, but was seen riling up the crowd to attack. And uh, apparently what happened right after that was the big guy that was behind the glass door just got up, pointed his gun, shot the gal, people spread. After that had happened, the crowd started getting surlier. And when the crowd got a, get, started getting so surly that they were actually attacking the cops, then the talk cops came out with the with, with the tear gas and you know the the helmets and the shields and things like that. If this had been a Black Lives Matter march, you would have seen something like you'd seen two months before. I mean, just a, a phalanx, several rows deep of these right outfitted, jackbooted thugs. But you didn't see that. So it's like 
you know, this January 6th crap, yeah, we, as we discovered in 2000, we're about five or six layers removed from having a direct democracy to elect the president. You know, and I would like to think that if, you know, we would be allowed to protest strenuously if the Electoral College was about to do a bad and unconstitutional thing like they did in 2000. And we're suffering from that ever since. And ever since, we have the national security state in place. And we jail journalists and we jail whistleblowers and, you know, and yet uh, people who, propose, who, who, who continue these crimes, war crimes and, and torture, they get promoted. They never pay the price for any of that. That is the state. That's what happened after that coup in 2000 was successful. We have a national security state that isn't exactly going to be like Nazi Germany because we just can't all goose step. You know, have the, we're just we're too diverse and not disciplined. However, South America, we're mostly there. Now, the only hope, as I said last week, is that even in those very you know broken and fragile democracies, there still is hope. I mean, you could still. It just takes a lot more courage than people in this country typically have. Professor Hussein, uh, I'm utterly terrified because that's the way I was raised. I have a feeling like, you know, a year from now, I'm going to run into Professor Marianne Cummings and go, wow, they put us in the same camp. They must think I'm smart. <laughs> wow. They must listen to my show and they they think I'm as smart as Professor Marianne Cummings. Uh, well, I guess we I guess we called the uh the Trump administration wrong. I guess we're wrong. Uh in my heart of hearts, I think what happened on January 6th, you know, lock everybody up, but I I think the institutions held. I think the justice, I think the, the Trump appointed judges knocked down Lynn Wood and and Sidney Powell and Giuliani and and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as bad as they are, that there are some some remnants of institutional memory that wouldn't allow these crackpots to seize power. Am I wrong? Well, I mean, I think um, these crackpots are not really the ones who will accomplish the coup when it gets serious. This really did seem a lot like uh, sort of slapdash. I mean, Prof, Prof John is correct that these plans, people have been thinking about this. They did want to influence the elections, but... Um, this seemed very much more like dress rehearsal, try, push the envelope, um, you know, experimental with, you know, what would it really take? I think, you know, that there will be many more. Unfortunately, I am I am afraid because I think there will be more future opportunities that they're laying the groundwork for ensuring that the Republican Party never accepts a future defeat as legitimate. I think they never will at this point. And they're putting in place the, you know, capacity uh, to try and um, 
you know, rest it, uh, rest democracy away. But I think the problem here is, is that we keep talking ab about this as if, I think, you know, Marianne is absolutely correct. You know, we, we're talking about this as if, um, you know, these democratic norms, um, you know, really describe a democratic system. I mean, these procedures, you know, and everything that the government has been doing in the last generation demonstrates that the last thing we needed was, you know, more barriers between the people and these de these elected, re you know, representatives, because they don't serve the public interest at all. They're not responsive to the democratic will of the people. They're very isolated um, from what's happening in the country. And I think I think that's the reason why they, those those yahoos were wrong about the election okay the election was not stolen but they're correct about the fact that you know our government has really been taken from the people you know if it ever really was that responsive to the people all of the people i mean but even those who were privileged to be able to have the vote and not have to go through literacy tests and other mechanisms to you know suppress their vote um, even those people have lost uh, really leverage over their government at, at this point. And that's, I think, the real problem is that there's a much deeper malaise behind this. Um, of course there is. Very I troubling. just have to like interject. I mean, wasn't it Princeton came out with a study back several years ago that showed we aren't a democracy. It is matters not which party is in charge. A very tiny select group of people gets everything they want. Yeah. And the rest of us kind of exactly. Yeah. You know, so, so it's all uh, that's they concluded we were an oligarchy. Um, so but I think what it, what it has accomplished, just in conclusion, it seems to me what it has accomplished is reorient. You know, I feel like in some ways there were real opportunities, you know, last year to put the Biden administration under popular democratic pressure. What this did was completely displace the opportunity for left organizing in a popular sort of way through protest. We had the whole summer, the, you know, before, but that energy really, I think, between the continuation of the pandemic, the suppression, um, you know, of that dynamic political, uh, you know, uh, rebellious atmosphere and attitude because Biden won the election. So now we're supposed to wait and give the Biden administration a chance and all of that. And then the January 6th, raising the specter, you know, of the Trump, uh, you know, Trump's populist uh, gangs derailing democracy. It just has meant that we have not really had a chance to uh, on the left to really put forward that agenda and be very active and aggressive about uh, you know, pursuing it. I think it really has displaced and derailed a lot of that energy. And it's all turned into this kind of symbolic stuff, you know? So you have the cast of the musical Hamilton, you know, composing a new song and Nancy Pelosi is using this almost like it's, you know, some kind of, you know, it was political theater and now it's become, you know, a mockery of, you know, even the political theater that was there before. And, you know, it seems like the big lesson here for the right is next time, don't wear a costume. 
Right. Don't put on a hat with horns. Other than that, you know, there's very little responsibility that anybody in leadership. Okay, a couple of these people are going to be scapegoated. I mean, well, they were there. They did, you know, ridiculous things. They will be punished. But, you know, the corrupt leadership, um, you know, that would look for a real opportunity to subvert uh, the election. Um, none of those people are going to be held accountable. And it's the same thing we keep seeing, you know, in this oligarchic system, Epstein, are any of those powerful people going to be held accountable? People are very frustrated with this, I think, at this point. Well, we have Professor Harvey J.K., who's about to join us, and he is a professor of democracy studies. Barbara F. Walter is a uh, professor from uh, University of California, San Diego. She has a new book out. She serves, we've talked about this, she serves on a CIA advisory panel that measures democracies around the world. And America, based on how the CIA measures democracy, we don't measure up to a democracy. According to uh, Professor Walter, we're a, an anocracy which is somewhere between a democracy and an autocratic state. We are no longer a democracy based on the CIA's standards of how a democracy is measured. We'll ask Professor Kay and Professor Minsky about that. Thank you. Happy birthday, Professor Adnan Hussein. I'm honored that you spent some of your birthday with us. We, it's an honor. Thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings and Professor Ann Lee. Uh, I can't thank you enough. It, it's so invigorating. It is time now for Alan Minsky and Professor Harvey J.K. Hit it, Professor Mike Steinell. Misky and K, they go together like PB and J. Like Thelma and Louise, like Mac and Cheese, like Sacco and Benzetti, like meatballs and spaghetti. Allen's in LA, Harvey J's in Green Bay. When they get together, they got a lot to say, cause they're Misky and K. about democracy.
they got lots to say. That is Professor Mike Steinel. Thank you. Joining us is Professor Harvey J.K., author of The Fight for the Four Freedoms, FDR on Democracy, Take Hold of Our History. And he is coming to us from Wisconsin. Over there in California is Alan Minsky, Executive Director of the Progressive Democrats of America. Democracy was in decline before... Joe Biden gave his speech, right? The Freedom in the World Report says that for the past 15 years, more and more countries are moving to an anocracy, less democracy, more autocracy. I guess around the 70s, there was growth in democracy around the world, but the world has lost its appetite for democracy. Why is that, Professor Harvey J.K.? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Because there are times when it doesn't work. Look, I, I I can't speak for the rest of the world. I just can't do it. Okay. The, uh, the the fact that the United States has become sort of a plutocracy surely doesn't set doesn't set an example for the rest of the world. The fact that we had the Reagan administration that backed military governments, you know, those brutal regimes in the southern cone of South America, um, the use of uh, drones, the use of what was that thing they, you know, where they would pick people up and, and you know, rendition, was that the term? Extraordinary rendition. Extraordinary rendition, even pursued by, you know, Barack Obama, who was born, as we know, in Ethiopia or somewhere like that. Right. Um, you know, my point is that in in a in a world of of dozens upon dozens upon dozens of nation states, the 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 absence of some kind of political order that aspires at least to cultivate democracy surely doesn't uh, doesn't offer much hope for folks who are in in parts of the world that have very limited experience for a start with democracy and have st or strong militaries or oligarchies. I mean, yeah, it's it's democracy's not easy. It's Alan, just not easy. Alan Minsky, you've looked like you've been feeling despair about our country. I was talking about this Professor Walter from San Diego who consults the CIA. And she said, by every measure, we're an anocracy, which is a cross between, it's the in-between an autocracy and a democracy. So January 6th, a year ago, are we overreacting? Is that the moment that we should be focusing on? Or is there, is it Trump? Is it the, the, the wackadoodles on the right? Or is there some larger picture that we're not seeing I think there, there are three things uh, i think two are very general 
One is that um, empire and democracy, a peculiar mix in history, how we're going to organize uh, a society that is an enclosed geographic space, and we're going to be the military dominant force around the world with bases all over the world, and whether that produces any advantage for the population of the United States is questionable other than the elites. That's the second point. Um, extreme concentrations of wealth and democracy, uh, again, don't go together very well. And when you look at the era where democracy was expanding in the United States, um, you know, this, this ran through um, the 1970s, maybe, uh, when uh, the wealth disparities were very narrow compared to what they are now. So over the last four decades, and this has happened all over the world. So the idea that the democracies are working to produce a society that's beneficial for the general population is questionable because all the wealth seems to be going to the very small group of people. But the third thing is the specificities of, of what's happening in America. And there, and I think January 6th is, is an important moment because it clearly takes things to an, another level, I think unexpectedly so. I mean, you just look at what occurred on that day. I mean, it's a total cliche, but it's totally true. You know, if those were, you know, people who looked like demonstrators that say, you know, the anti-globalization demonstrations, you wouldn't have gotten up one step of the Capitol if they were from communities of color, same thing. So that the, the beneficiaries of the, you know, social order and white supremacy in American society would take up the idea that democracy uh, is operating in a way that's so unacceptable to them, they're going to do that. And then to see them get as far as they did on that day, yeah, it's extremely alarming. And it's, it clearly is empowering uh, a sector of the reactionary right in America that's going to want to push this further. And I think there are very powerful forces in the society that are going to look the other way as they try to. How much of it, Professor K, January 6th, was similar to 9-11 in that we let our guard down, that 9-11 didn't have to happen, had Condi Rice read the intelligence reports entitled Bush intent on Bush, uh, well, maybe Bush, Osama bin Laden intent on flying buildings into the World Trade Center on September 11th. I mean, it was like really there for Bush, Cheney and Condi to stop 9-11 from happening. That threat is always going to be there. People are always going to want to tear down our buildings because of what we do overseas. The threat of January 6th was there. All they had to do was connect the dots. Who's the they? Who's the they in the in the January 6th? I, I you know, I, I follow um, Marianne's Cummings arguments on Twitter when she when she when she writes and it strikes me that who's the they that would have that would have obstructed the insurrectionary invasion of the Capitol? President Trump. Well, he President, let his guard down. Exactly. I mean, that's just it. I mean, right. You can right. put I mean, look, I mean, we shouldn't forget that the guy is as clever as can be. He, he's I mean, we made the mistake with Reagan of underestimating his brilliance and we underestimated we underestimate Trump because he comes across like such a like such a clown and an idiot. But he's not. And the folks, there are lots of folks that, that gathered around him that said 
clear obstacles to the ability to respond to any kind of insurrectionary threat. In fact, they wanted it. I mean, all the evidence, look, the evidence is there. They, they wanted it. Okay. The, the more surprising thing right now is that, you know, after what, an, the Mueller investigation, the impeachment efforts, and now the, uh, you know, House hearings, that, that Trump can still, on a day like today, unmolested, you might say, uh, claim that it's, you know, that this is even more fake news, more lies, more whatever. Okay. I mean, that, you know, that, that we, that the election was stolen. I mean, this is, you know, what, what do you the, think? The, the elite is obviously very, you know, the elite doesn't know what the fuck to do right now. The political elite, that is because the Democrats, I mean, I, I don't, I, the Democrats don't welcome this kind of stuff. Their lives are much better off when they don't have to deal with this kind of shit. Okay. And, you know, they they obviously are fearful and they're fearful because Trump has made Trump and, the you know, going back to the Tea Party folks, is, they've made them fearful because, you know, if, if you actually had confidence in your fellow citizens, then you might actually be confident enough to confront um, insurrectionary forces. Right. All right. So you had again. I I've already catastrophized this. I expect a year from now to just hope I get into a good camp, you know, uh, just that maybe I can get a kosher meal at my camp. Uh, and I will name names. I just want you to know. Uh, I mean, I am terrified. <laughs> Uh, I am. I'm, not laughing, I'm, not about I'm laughing at Alan breaking up yeah. with your. Yeah, we, you and I, we don't have to worry about it. It's rather obvious to anybody who, I mean, I know there's some stupid people in intelligence services, but they should be able to figure out guests are on the show. Yeah, so. I mean, yeah, but I'll help them. As long as I can just get a, a nice a square meal once a day uh, and a, some kind of semblance of solitary, because I just want to read and write my book. Uh, well, you know what? You know, in uh, in miles, I'm not all that far from the Canadian border. But here's, you know what? In all seriousness, I think you know how they've turned our homes into offices with Zoom. They're going to yeah. figure out a way to turn our homes into gulags. But oh, it's called the Matrix. Is that what the Matrix is? I haven't seen well, it. I, I, I mean, that's that's my assumption. That basically, people have just been plugged in and basically mass manipulated. Yeah, where we just don't leave the house, it's not safe, and we don't have to report to any gulags. All think that a committee. You think there's a committee now coming up with the third wave of the virus, the fourth, fourth wave of the virus? Uh, well, I'm on that committee, P Professor Kate. Where did, they, where did, where did uh... he was offended? He'll come back. I think his oh. in, in all seriousness, though, I, I don't want to discount what happened on January 6th. I'm terrified. I voted for Biden. That means I'm a coward. What did we have on January 6th? It seems to me you had these crackpots like Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani, who is a flatulent drunk uh, Lynn Wood, uh, this guy Eastman, uh, Navarro, who's out of their mind. You know, these are certifiably 
crazy people, as were the Nazis. I mean, the, you know, the, Hitler was a joke and Goering was a joke and Goebbels was a joke until they weren't. I get that. But th this was fringe elements uh, in the Trump administration, the gang that couldn't shoot straight, whatever they were trying to orchestrate was not just extrajudicial, but like they were they weren't even part of the administration. They were well, he was a Rudy was the lawyer. I mean, how much of this came from within the Trump administration? How much of it was real? Were they, well, they, confu they, confu they confused all the lines between in government and not in government. Look, I mean, th you think about it. There was that initial press conference where a woman lawyer had a pile of other, I presume, empty file folders, you know, explaining to the American people that there was really nothing to worry about, that that basically Trump was not going to be directly involved in his in, in his financial affairs and the sons would take care of things. I mean, right from the beginning, they just literally just confused everything. And and the problem is there was no. Well, look, they had control of the, of of Congress. They had control of Congress. So that is you didn't even have the checks and balances that could have operated. What do you mean they had control of Congress? Well, when Trump was elected, McConnell and Ryan were the heads of the Congress. Well, oh, I, okay, but I'm talking about the uh, January. Well, I'm saying so. What I'm getting at is there were nobody. Nobody challenged anybody. Nobody challenged what the Trump folks were doing. You know, he brought yo-yos in. You know, he 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 openly. I mean, it was the most openly corrupt administration. Uh, in my lifetime, anyhow, when you think about the fact that that hotel in D.C., that was it called? It was it the Trump something hotel, yeah. which before that was it was was a government building where the National Endowment for the Humanities, by the way, used to be housed. And uh, and, and you think about it, it was open corruption, literally open corruption. And nobody did nobody There was no nobody challenging anything of it because, you know. Because where why? could they where could they where, where could they call him to account? He, he the emoluments clause wasn't enforced. They couldn't because of loopholes in our constitution that allow the FBI and the Justice Department to be part of the executive branch. So the you know he would have been prosecuted had we been able. To, we can't prosecute presidents. We. We we assumed we had some kind of filtration process that kept somebody like Trump out, and he somehow broke through. Somehow. Well, think if you look, think about it. I mean, you go back to the, I, I go back to that debate, those debates on TV of the Republicans. I mean, that really was a clown car. I mean, it was a, truly a clown car. And Trump was was nasty, but everybody was glad he was nasty because other people on the stage were such utter shits anyhow. I yeah, mean, remember you know. Trump's first debate performance this time against Biden just interrupted him constantly. Right. It was just most, you know, childish, impudent, you know, 
performance I've ever seen in American since I've been following American politics. You know, so it was they were entertainment moments. You know, he was already, you know, what, what was that show? He what did he do with the show? The um, Apprentice. Yeah, whatever it was, you know, if I, mean, he I never went watched away, that stuff. If, if Trump, God forbid, God forbid, if God performed his patriotic duty and, and Trump <laughs> went away, God forbid, you woke up tomorrow, you get that notification on your New York Times app. And like everybody, you're wondering, could this be it? Could God have finally intervened? And God has intervened. And Trump, sadly, has left the building. A, does he lay in state or lie in state? Um, <laughs> That's a good one. I don't know. Uh, and secondly, does how much of the threat disappears if, God forbid, God did his patriotic duty. If Trump were to disappear, does the cloud, the threat to democracy disappear? Or is it Josh Hawley? Can Josh Hawley accomplish what Trump? I mean, who who's there? Who's on the bench? I think this well, is for I, you, I, Harvey. <laughs> you are, you are an I do think that, that I think people underestimate Josh Hawley. Okay. I also think that I underestimate DeSantis. Now, let's just be clear about that. Um, but but neither one of them at immediately are are Donald Trump because they're just not that entertaining in an age of entertainment. OK, but but th but that doesn't change the, the equation. All these things we talk about are only possible because the Democrats for 45 years have been so committed to neoliberalism, so greedy, so you know, so so hungry for ice cream in an oversized, double-sized freezer fridge. I mean, the Democrats. None of this would have happened if the Democrats back in the seventies hadn't, you know, embraced the likes first of Jimmy Carter. And then later, the likes of, you know, the folks that that sit that followed. Um, but Alan, no Trump. That is conceivable. Alternative history. No Trump. No, he's immortal, David. I'm sorry. You didn't get the memo. No, immoral. Is it? <laughs> uh, no Trump. It is conceivable. How old is he? Is it mid 70s? Yeah. OK, so. God willing, he's got another 30 years, God willing. But uh, just in case, you know, a year from now, they were, I said, God willing, Your Honor. Um, uh, you know what? I've, tweeted, I've been tweeting lately that he will not be the candidate in 2024. He just won't be. Okay, so neither, he, will neither will Biden. A good friend of mine, uh, my age, here in Green Bay, send me a text today and said, I'm calling you tomorrow. I want to know what you what you know that I don't know that you could say that Trump will not be the candidate in 2024. And what you're saying now is the kind of stuff I know. OK, so he disappears. What what does that say about the threat to our democracy? Does are we safe? Is he the threat? President Biden said he's got a dagger to the throat of our democracy. 
we can just eliminate. Well, so look at think about it this way. Let's for the moment remove. Let's assume he's not in the picture right now. Let's suppose, God willing, he's left the building already. <laughs> okay, and ask yourself right now: Is does that change the equation of the fact that we have? that we're worse maybe in some ways in the second Gilded Age because we don't have the mass movements that the second Gilded Age generated among labor and farmers and others. Don't forget the fact that the overwhelming majority of America, well, the majority of Americans want all the things that were in that weren't even in these bills like Medicare for all. Okay. Or, you know, free public higher education. I, I, I mean, I could go on and on. And, and yet we have a couple of I don't even want to say just mentioned we have several U.S. senators who are determined to represent the interests of the corporate elite rather than the people. And in one case, a guy coming from a state where the people are where the only re, before this news, the news was probably the number of people who were, who were dying from opioid overdoses. Is that right. what they were? Opioid. Right. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it, democracy is in, de- democracy is in serious trouble without Donald Trump. Right. Right. By the way, again, I think we're under threat. I'm just looking for a silver lining. And as my friend John Ross pointed out, that two years ago, around this time, I said something to the effect. Maybe America won't get hit. I did. Maybe maybe we're overreacting to COVID. Maybe it won't be that bad. So I'm, you know, I got to do a show and play devil's advocate. I'm terrified about the future of our country. I'm looking, but I do not believe that if we're terrified, we make the right decisions. That we have to be methodical. And you know, here's the thing, David. I said to you at the outset, who's the they? And now I ask you, who's the we? Great question. Good, good questions. I like them. Succinct. Who, who is the we? Alan Minsky. Who are who? Who is the we? That was what the Reverend Barry the question W. He's Lynn was asking. Is in, in in your construction there? If we don't, I think it's a good question, and you used it. And I think it's interesting to see who you who you think you're referring to there, David, because how. I mean, what, what are the groups of people who are aligned against Trump? Are they the same as the groups of people who would actually produce and generate a healthy democracy in the United States? And I can add one more question. A three, uh, this will be a, you know, a trilogy. <laughs> the, the, the third question I ask, if I, I don't see Adnan's name up on the screen right now, but Adnan talked about the left. Who's the left? What what is this thing? The left? They left. That means they left. We left. Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting. So I, I sent out a tweet this past week. It's very interesting, and I because somebody said to me on Twitter, "What about a third party? How about a third party?" And I said, "I said, forget it. You want to make you want to bring about political change. You bring about a coalition of PDA, Progressive Democrats of America, Our Revolution, Justice Democrats." And DSA as a start get that's the basis for the makings of a left, not discreetly together. That's the makings. Now, it's interesting. 
two of those organizations. I'm a member of one of those organizations. I'm a dues paying member of that one of those organizations for in for more years than I can count probably. And yet the two organizations that lit up on Twitter when I did that were PDA and our revolution. Okay. And you know, so I'm glad you said that because if you don't know what you want in life, you just react and everything's yeah. a crisis. I've worked with people who they, they, they don't know how to do their job. So they just sit behind their desk and react to crises. And you go, well, what do you want? What do you want? I want to get this paper, these papers off my desk. And they're just that's who the that's who we feel. I feel we are. OK, so after, go ahead, Professor. Well, so all I was, my point is I'm I I'm sure PDA, our revolution, Justice Democrats and DSA, despite their differences and priorities, will would all be very much in line with the argument that we really do need to radically enhance American democracy. Right. I, don't, I mean, it's hard to imagine one of those organizations would not be that they would not all be able to sign on to that. Moreover, they would all probably be willing to sign on to the idea that we have a serious climate crisis and we really do need collective action to address it. Right. Or how about the, our, our greatest problems in America today stem from the gross inequalities that prevail. Right. Bernie was right. The billionaires soon to be trillionaires. I mean, just the amount of money they've made these last couple of years is just, it's just beyond comprehension, right? So do it, it, where, where is the, I know that Alan would, would welcome it. He's probably working on it in, in his own way, but you know, God damn it. Where's the left here? I agree with you. And I quote you all the time. Uh, if you ain't talking about, Labor. And then I get to the next question. And by my well, last point, okay, sorry, because I you're now you've you're about to feed me what I want to hear. Okay. As and a that good is, student. That is, there are real possibilities in the labor movement right now. But the le leadership at the AFL CIO doesn't seem to care. Okay. They are they are living off the remnants of a labor movement built between the 30s and the 70s. That is, you know, I'm talking about the folks sitting in the office building in Washington, D.C. There is no major effort by labor to cultivate organizing, to challenge the media in some way. Yeah, they send out their missives and all that kind of stuff. But right now, given the, given the, the energies that are starting to percolate among the working people, the working class, it's astounding how seemingly inert the leadership of the AFL-CIO is. Yeah. Let me, uh, a year ago, you know, I loved Elizabeth Warren when she was going to be in charge of the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau, which was housed yeah. in the Federal Reserve. I did. I And then she got elected senator and then she threw bernie under the bus and you know bernie would have gotten the democratic nomination if she had supported him you know well it would have definitely strengthened the idea that there was a left inside of congress right it would have strengthened that instead of having to refer to half a dozen young uh folks over in the house 
if she had lined up with Bernie, then likely you would have seen a coalition form around them. Right. So your criticism, here's the, my, you know, my problem with the left. It's called solidarity. Where right. the hell is the solidarity? Well, she's not a leftist. She is a capitalist to the bone who believes that you can have guardrails on capitalism. So let me posit a, an Elizabeth Warren scenario. Oh, OK. Let's prime the prompt. Prump. I keep saying prime Trump. the prump. <laughs> That's because you have Trump in your head. Yes. I've talked on the show about how we have to give our nation the vocabulary to discuss nationalizing industry and America, the government owning failed businesses when we bail them out. Alan Minsky understands the inner workings of the Federal Reserve. And one of the things we were talking about was when the market crashes, and it will, Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, may have to buy index funds to prop up the stock market since so many pension funds now are dependent on a <coughs> rising stock market. I don't think it's legal for the Federal Reserve to buy stock. They can buy, you know, CDOs and junk bonds and treasuries. But there are no laws when there's a crisis. We should start priming the pump to encourage the Federal Reserve to in the next crisis to buy 10 percent of corporations where we don't have to run them the government we should get used to the idea of owning the federal government owning 10 percent of google apple amazon what about driving into the skid of capitalism you're saying that you're saying we should buy them just next time we have an implosion of financial markets or um, you're, because they will fail. And then in the moment of their failure, the, the federal government would intervene um, with enough um, buying enough stock. I'm saying all of the above to get the conversation going, because the left, re you know, I'm not hearing anything from the left. So I'm offering up this idea of, okay, like Professor K was just saying, the AFL-CIO is running on fumes from the 70s. Uh, we keep waiting for a Roosevelt to arise. The world is changing, cryptocurrencies, and everybody's trading stocks now. There's a whole retail market that young people now are obsess obsessing on you know, what's it called? Robin Hood? What if the government, I think politically, you could sell the idea of the federal government when they rescue GM next time, and we will, we hold on to the stock. We we begin to own outright. We'll say we have nothing against capitalism. Let's have the government benefit from it. What's wrong with that? Politically, your ten your ten percent point is that arbitrary? Are you saying that they should run the businesses, own the businesses when they're collapsed, they're failing, 
and they're failing. Uh, they failed in the market. Um, no, we're going to bear. Look, look, well, you know mm -hmm. that American Airlines is going to come to us for a bailout in five weeks. What is what? What is their market cap? Fifty billion. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know what? Here's five billion, but we now own ten percent of you. Okay. okay, I just was wondering where you where you came up with that number. In that specific case, Pfizer's market cap is let's say three hundred fifty billion. Uh, you it, know, look in the, in the scenario that you're describing, there's a huge problem, which is usually under the heading of, oh boy, help me out here. Um, moral, what is it? Moral hazard. Moral hazard. Yeah, you're basically allow you'd allow the current. Um, um, CEOs and boards to really run up the leveraging and risk of these companies. No, no, no I'm saying uh, no, 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 not at all. I'm saying since you own us, since since the corp since corporations own Washington, Washington is going to own you. That we, we cannot. Not your your ten percent isn't owning a company. Well, that's a You're lot. Of, that, that's a big vote. Ten percent. How yeah, I understand. Obviously, in a kind of company like like American Airlines, where, where the ownership is so diversified, but um, nonetheless, the more radical proposal is when they fail, we own it outright. I mean, well, but, but we, we don't nothing. want to run a. You don't want the federal government running an airline. You want the. the, the uh, I doubt. Yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Air France, Alitalia, <laughs> British Air. Those were all owned by the government until they were privatized in the regimes of the. Post that, right? Are, aren't they government? But isn't it? They were government owned. Some of them around the world still are. It's already called American Airlines. You might as well just <laughs> take it over. <laughs> yeah. uh, Delta made the mistake of calling themselves Delta Airlines because they're basically the cause of all this COVID. We know that's that. Funny. That's right. <laughs> that's they are. They are the carrier. They, well, they're out, they call themselves a carrier. Actually, they are a carrier. That's right. Uh, it's amazing to me that this conversation has not been had. Seems to me this is a, this is what this makes me very angry, Professor K. Yeah, you know, it's funny to say that because I'm old enough to tell you that I've lived through times where conversations like this were had. So, for example, in 19, I think it was around 19. I don't know. Sort of in the course of the '70s, we now know that it was you know war on labor. But I, it's yeah around 19, 1970. This Nixon administration, Elliot Richardson was the Attorney General. Yes. Okay. Who was the second? I can't remember his Secretary of Labor. But the point was, during that period of time, there was a, a commission. I wonder if I have that book here with me. A commission on work. You know about this? No. It's a major commission on work produced a, a report which was published in a popular fashion. And they actually proposed seriously the idea of greater worker participation in management. I mean, they laid out all these possibilities. And you can imagine what the capitalist bosses were thinking if even the even the federal government under a Republican is uh, is is suggesting because there was the, the hot term of the day was alienation. Okay, that that, that was what was in the people's minds. So th when they declared war by way of uh, the Trilateral Commission, 
and a host of other means, you know, the business roundtable and stuff on labor. Basically, they were responding to the possibility, which was emerging in, in many circles among labor and the left, of reorganizing uh, the workplace, which would have had serious implications for capital operations, might well have led to a German-style sort of worker representation on the on the boards of directors. And then, then I also remember during the 70s, serious talk during the energy crisis of nationalizing the oil industry. Right. right. I mean, serious talk. And that's when Mobile Oil bought their way into the opinion page of the New York Times with right. the op-ad, right? <laughs> right? Yes. And the ads on TV, you know, we consume all this and blah, 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 blah. Anyhow, the point is, but I haven't heard anything about nationalization of anything until, until I will remind everyone in 2008, nine in there with the crisis, you know, the financial crisis, the question came up and that Paul Krugman advocated himself and later apologized for having advocated it. He's such a yo-yo, right? Mm -hmm. He advocated nationalizing the banks let the government take over the banks and by the way it would have been smart because you could have directed investments right i mean a whole host of things no 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 that that was never on the agenda for the obamanites and uh you know so we did own so the banks so, so the conversation has been had along the way it gets every year that passes it's less and less likely and and now uh and now look i mean but that the the imagination, the lack of imagination on the left, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, you know, I'm rooting for the left and I ask, OK, so how are we going to do this? And I hear we got to get rid of capitalism. And I'm like, all right, you know, how? Give me some ideas here. Uh, and there are pathways to it. I think it's maybe understanding how capitalism works and jujitsu using capitalism against itself politically i think you can sell not just the american people but wall street well the, the swedes had a great plan i don't think it ever went into i don't think it ever was enacted the Ma i'm about to say that i know it's not the meisner plan meisner where the, the, every year they were gonna every corporation would be taxed a certain amount and to create a fund and those funds would be used to buy stock in the corporation that, that would be handed over to the unions. Ben Burgess mentioned that earlier in the show. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. I remember that, too. And Social thought, wow, Security. That, that's a good that's a great idea. When 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 George W. Bush was floating the idea of privatizing Social Security. Remember this? I do remember that. Yes. Yes. But one of the conversations was Social Security is in T-bills, only collecting back then 3%. What if Social Security invested in the stock market? And everybody said, bad idea. The stock market crashes. We lose all of our Social Security money. And I remember thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. What if the government through social security invested in the stock market we would have way more power over these corporations and wall street wants that because you're you're providing an a, a, the problem a, a, a is you basic, come back to that we 
And I've asked you, who the hell is the we you're talking about? Well, that's about. the problem, because the left, I hate to... I hate to beat up on the people I love, but it would be the the left. This would benefit. This would the, be the, so far. So look, for the past forty five years, we've been governed by presidents who, if they weren't neoliberals, they were neoliberal conservatives. They all wanted to cut, cut, cut. So why would you imagine? How how could you imagine that if all of a sudden all the, that you liberated Social Security funds to be to purchase stock? Okay, why do you assume that we would walk away better somehow from it when the very folks who are, have been managing our government are themselves as as politically retrograde as they are? Because we would be in, we would be the biggest institutional investor on Wall Street, and that gives us clout and power. Over- it sounds all good. I said, who is it? we in our the Democrats? You, you like these Democrats? You want them? No. To have, you want them to be able to yeah, fuck with think your money? Did, well, wait, wait, wait. So, Ruben worked for City Goldman Corp. Sachs and then Citibank, or was, City, was yeah. it Summers who was at Citibank? Goldman. He never. Uh, Summers uh, advised when, Goldman Sachs. He wasn't with a specific bank, unless you want to consider Harvard. Okay. I know he's. I know he's academic economist. By Summers kind of, was. I thought, I thought he went over and was at Citibank after. After Clinton, but, I don't um, think so. I think um, he was tangentially as not, as consult, But I mean, so so that's to the point. You're talking about the Democrats. They're your Democrats. They have those things you're talking about. I what mean, they're mean? massive institutional investors. But but I'm saying the government. They're, they're the people who set policy for the Democratic Party. I know what you're saying. If you're, but that's the Harvey's question to you. You're you're making a different point. You don't actually way need to reform the, right. capitalism right. is not narrowly to make it national. That's not the way to do it. How do you do it? Does that you've got to have it so that you're also going to, t- in some fashion, from the bottom up, democratize the industrial sector? Absolutely. The industrial. Actually, I, I take issue with one word there, Harvey. Industrial. Yeah. Yeah. Does that exist? Mean, by the way, yeah. industry is a generic term. It doesn't mean factories. All okay. Good. Thank you. Thank you. So you're going to democratize the workplace which to me, politically, given the, the character of this country, I don't think democratizing the workplace is uh, floats people's boats in America. You, work, you democratize the corporate order and the workplace. So how does that work? Explain that to me. Well, I mean, the German example is a good place to start. Labor unions provide members of the boards of directors. 40%. Maybe you pass a law that every year that passes more, you know, but the point, it all hangs on the capacity to literally create a house with hundreds of squad members at this point. Right. But, okay. but, but what are we, what, what okay, okay, are we the, the, the point here is that the, what, what happens then and what the ends are is a economic distribution across society um, which is, of course, similar to what you see in Western Europe, in the northwest of Europe in particular. And it's not a small amount of population. That's the, the countries of Scandinavia, Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, Germany. If you throw in France, then your past population in the United States is actually more than that. So large chunk of people there. And um, 
it's not trending in the right direction, but what was established there and never undercut in the way it got undercut in, in the UK, but most especially in the United States, is a society where it's understood that if you work 40 hour a week, you're basically going to be within range of a middle class life, even above a living wage. Okay. You're going to have long vacations. You're going to have free at the point of service, world-class health care. And I would argue, and it's, it has to be done, Harvey's right, through a popular control over labor relations at their core. All right. Here, okay. Here's, here's okay, politically speaking, forget, mm-hmm. here's my... By the way, and by the way, there's no, re- there, will, there will always be conflict. There will always be contestation. There will always be struggle. There is no utopia. I I love that you said all of that. And of course, you're right about the final point, too. But if you are, look, we Harvey and I both understand, as do you, David, and most certainly most of the people who are here on the Zoom platform, that, you know, there's a radical structured critique of capitalism, that capitalism is always going to have this appetite to double back against any regime of regulatory reform and balancing out economic distribution to the advantage of the capitalists. As long as that's the structure, that's going to happen. So even getting there, getting back to a solidly democratic, socialist, social democratic society in the United States, achieving those ends, and that answers your question, David. That's not getting 100 squad members. They're politicians. It's in the abstract. It is using the political system for that regulatory and distributive regime. And then from there, I argue, I believe people's appetites for more liberation and freedom, they won't be satisfied with that. They'll want to take it further. And right. as Harvey said, there'll be more right. contestation going progress, on. Progress inspires progress. Democracy right. inspires democracy. Things in motion stay in motion. If you're moving to the left, you move farther to the left. Okay, here's my idea. Let me, let me, I'm running for president and I say to the American people, I want to create a sovereign fund. And what we're going to do is we're going to tax the wealthy. We're going to tax. Now, calm down, wealthy. We're going to, <laughs> we're going to tax you. But we're going to take a large chunk of that revenue and put it into a sovereign fund that invests in the wealthy. So, you're, so we're going to tax you, but you're going to get it back because we're investing in your companies, but we own your companies as well. It's where the government is. No, the wealthy. I mean, hmm. suppose you tax Jeff Bezos, you you take you take 50 billion from him and you put the 50 billion in a sovereign fund. Countries have sovereign funds and that 50 billion of taxes is then invested in the stock market, which props up the stock market and allows the American government to participate in the gains of capitalism. So, which in a way, it would be a backdoor into socialism. That sounds like a great idea. And then when the neocons really have power again, they can create they can use the monies they've just secured to carry out wars overseas on an even grander scale than they have before. Okay, now is that a bad thing or a good thing? I can't remember. My point is that you're not democratizing anything when you do what you just, look, I mean, 
You can nationalize everything, but it would and not necessarily have any kind of democracy. All you're then going to have is state capitalism. No, it would be a backdoor into socialism. By, by it would be you'd be. By, what do you what what is socialism to you? State ownership. Well, it's not to me. I would assume that that any kind of socialism would have diverse ownership arrangements and it would have a highly, highly organized and very much engaged working class. Yes. Deeply involved in workplace decisions and their representatives at, at higher levels. I mean, I'm not. I, I've never believed that socialism is, is state ownership or I, I mean, or democracy I mean, there are, there are in lots of ways you can publicly own things. Right. And I don't see state ownership. Shit. I, I'm out of that socialism right now. OK. Alan Minsky, without naming names. And I will name names, but not. Other, we've both worked for an organization that had something resembling democracy in the workplace. Democracy was ridiculous. Huh? It was a poll tax democracy. You had to pay to vote. And then the percentage of people who paid also, was so, who actually voted, was so low as to make it also a complete sham in that regard. Jimmy Carter, as we learned last week from Professor Harvey J.K., right. believed that too much democracy was a good thing or a bad thing. Too much democracy is a bad thing. He wrote a piece in the New York Times this week, Professor Kay, bemoaning mm. the death of democracy. Your thoughts on his op-ed? I, I didn't read his piece. Okay. You wanted to talk about you wanted to talk about something today, Biden's speech, right? I want to talk about something actually. Uh, is it possible to mention anything related to a former senator from Alaska, Harvey? Gravel, you mean? Yeah. Anything well, we I can at least announce that I got a note tonight tonight from David Oaks, the sort of the spokesperson for the Gravel kids saying, finally, after all these months, the video I did on FDR, the Economic Bill of Rights, will post sometime between tomorrow and next week, which to me is very, very welcome. And I'm hoping that they're, the way they've, I mean, I recorded with them and then they, work out a, a whole animation with a, an animator. And I'm, I haven't seen it. I hope it's as good as can be. And where can we um, see this? It'll post, if, it'll be on the Gravel Institute YouTube channel. I will, I guarantee you, I will be tweeting it heavily. I will be sending it to you and Alan and the rest of the world. I've already contacted some people I know with, with big followings to make sure that we get that out. You know, my most exciting moment of the day was today. What? Adam McKay, is that his name, the filmmaker? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Retweeted one of my tweets today. Wow. Have you seen yeah. Don't Look Up? Yeah, I'm about to watch that after this. So no. Yeah, I won't give anything away. Yes. I, yeah, I, I saw it. Last night, he and David Sirota did a live stream for, mem for subscribers to uh, the Daily Poster, which was interesting. And uh, yeah. It's a great movie. Sorry. Yeah. So that was the big exciting news. And then tonight I got this news that the the video will post. And that's that to me is exciting. Because today is the 
Today is the uh, anniversary of not only the the debacle and the the insurrection of a year ago. It's also the anniversary of FDR in January 6, 1941, pronouncing the four freedoms. And and next week on January 11th, that's five days away. What day would that make it? Tuesday is the anniversary of FDR's pronouncement in the 1944 State of the Union Address of his his proposal for an economic bill of rights for all Americans. This this is an FDR month for me. And uh, the end of the month, January 30th is FDR's birthday. So good stuff. And then of course, it's also a Thomas Paine month because in on January 9th or 10th, depending on which day you prefer was when common sense was first published and January 29th is Thomas Paine's birthday. So this is a big, big month for me as the historian of FDR and Thomas Paine. The other 11 months of the year are filled with the absolutely wretched um, uh, American icons of high leadership in our society. So we got January, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> um, if people are following the chat, you can see Myla Reason is prompting me to do what I should do, which is invite everybody to our PDA Town Hall this Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. We'll, in the first hour, uh, feature a progressive congressional candidate. And in the second hour, we'll focus on, uh, and this is important, actually, uh, the nuclear energy industry uh, really pushes the idea that the nuclear energy industry is part of the solution to the climate crisis. We're seeing that in Europe, aren't we? Yeah. And um, so Dr. Helen Caldicott will be our guest, and uh, it's going to be a really great uh, town hall, and that's on Sunday at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, and you can uh, find up sign. You'll find signups for it at uh, pdamerica.org. Fantastic. I, well, I wanted uh, one other thing. I wanted to mention yes, since please. we're now in a kind of cleanup mode on on the cleanup uh, day. <laughs> um, I, I just watched the first season of something called the um, the Umbrella Academy. Don't know what it is. It it's. It's it start it was it was a comic book from Dark Horse Comics, and it's it's a f- absolutely fascinating kind of um, story of these kids who have unique powers and the the thing that's the shadow that's hanging over the all this first season and will continue to in the future is the apocalypse. And is it Netflix, Hulu? What it what's on? I've been watching it on Netflix. I don't know. I don't know if it started there, but that's where it's located now. Yeah. And have you been watching? So I don't, has anybody in the chat said anything? Have, I, I haven't looked at the chat. When I said the Umbrella Academy, anybody watched the Umbrella Academy from there? John Hayes said he did first episode, but uh, he hasn't. He hasn't confirmed that it's Netflix. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I will tell yes, you. I mean, he, it, he just confirmed. But. It, yeah, I, I actually at first thought, why am I watching this? And I, but then I just couldn't stop. So I binged it, basically. Good, right. good, uh, good recommendations. Succession? Uh, from, uh, are, we, are, we succe- are we Succession fans? You know, Succession is, uh, um, McKay wrote the first episodes, my understanding, but it's the guy from who was the showrunner for Peep Show, along with one of the comics from that British show, which, you know, was at times an incredibly inspired show, but it sort of goes season by episode by episode as to which one is really good with that show. Um, and uh, and in the loop, nice. he's an Armando Iannucci. Oh, right, right, right. The That's loop. right. With the with um, the guy from The Sopranos, yeah, before he passed. Oh, Gandolfini. In the loop yeah. is 
if you want to understand how we got into Iraq, In the Loop is a masterpiece, as is the thing. Probably, probably not Tony, Tony Blair's favorite film. So no, we, we like it. <laughs> yeah. Some other week, can somebody tell me what, is it Squid? What the hell that is? I have no idea. I know. Squid huh? Games. What's it called? Squid Game? Squid, whatever. Yeah. You know, uh, that was I it. don't want to keep everyone up late, but somebody asked me, and I said, I have no fucking idea. I, oh, I, I think it's it's definitely a it's definitely um um allegory parable. No, it's not an allegory story about um yeah, it's just a story of the slightly more dystopian reality in Korea than apparently current reality, where people live under such uh stress over debts that they're willing to uh risk put their lives on the line to gamble to eliminate the debts. Oh, okay. Well got it. I'm, the game, I'm, the game that allows them to do that is, is uh, produced and overseen by, um, you know, point one percent of one percenters, as it were. So, uh, uh, hey, uh, Professor John on Office Hours has been highlighting the Twilight Zone every Friday. He plays the Twilight oh, yeah? Zone. It's there. There's some episodes of the Twilight Zone. You cannot believe that this got on television. It's incredible. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I when I was a kid, I'm really a kid. I still I loved the Twilight Zone. Yeah. What was the year it started? What was the first season? Uh, I want to know how old I was. You know, I think like uh, Professor John. What it was like sixty? I'm going to say sixty, fifty-eight. I was ten years old. I thought it was absolutely brilliant, it, and it is. There are two or three that I will never forget. I used to tell my students about those episodes. Yeah. And I've been watching old Alfred Hitchcock presents. Which, oh, wow. Those are amazing. <laughs> They're, They're good? Yeah. Huh? They, you know, they had to fill a half hour. It's slow, but it's it's Hitchcock. I mean, you know, he was producing it and it's important to watch his attempts to make television, to grind out stuff. <laughs> it's, it's great. Uh, more fun than The Twilight Zone because The Twilight Zone was very strident and, and important. And Hitchcock was just somebody wants to murder their husband. You know, nice, nice stuff. Pick up. FDR and Democracy by Professor Harvey J.K., The Fight for the Four Freedoms. We need to discuss that. And, of course, take hold of our history. Thank you, Professor Harvey J.K. Follow Harvey J.K. on Twitter at Harvey J.K. Thank you, sir. And Alan Minsky is executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. Follow him on Twitter at PDA. America? What is your Twitter account? PD America, correct? At PD America. PD America. Yeah, one A. So PD America. All one word, but only one A. Okay. Yeah. Thank you both for stopping by. I hope to see you next week. Thank you. You Thank will you. see me. I know that. God bless you for that. Thank you. <laughs> You're, Take care. You have been listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Thank you for joining us. I want to thank all our guests tonight. Let's see. Professor Ben Burgess, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, Ethan Hershenfeld, Emil Guillermo, 
the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Professor Marianne Cummings, happy birthday, Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, and then Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky. Thank you all to- You nailed it. I nailed it. I got it. Are you here, Dan? Oh, yeah. Oh, do you want to do community billboard? Sure. All right. It's time. I got out. I haven't of made it to the end in quite a while, but I, I know. You know it's it good to time. see you. <laughs> I had last week off from work. So you know what that means. This week I have to do double the work. So I'm I'm up working. Double duty. That's, oh, boy. Double duty. <laughs> How are you, my pretentious douchebag? I'm doing is, fucking great. How is, are you? Is your family home? No. They're in Europe. Do you miss them? No. <laughs> Are they why? It's, it's morning in Europe right now. Uh, we don't have pictures. So you know what I'm going to try to do? Let me try to do what? this. I'm going to try the old software and see if we can't do pictures. I may. This may create problems. This may shut down the show. <laughs> Uh, I sent it to you at 6.31 All right. was the, the time. If you can find them, great. Right. If you can't, um, I have... Well, hang uh, on for one second. I'm turning on the software. Give me a second. You froze for 1.5 seconds. But Am I back? Good. Yep. Okay. So let me see if I can do this. Um <clears throat> All right, so I'm still here, right? Yeah, you're still here. And for a Sopranos quote while you're doing this. Yes. To think, when I got out of the joint, I thought an airbag was poly walnuts. Say that again. To think, when I got out of the joint, I thought an airbag was poly walnuts. Oh, boy. I have no idea. It's Tony Blundetto. Oh, it's Tony's Buscemi. cousin. He, he, yep. Buscemi. And that was from uh, season five, episode eight, Marco Polo. And I, I haven't watched the whole scene. Right. Recently, but I remember the line. I Marco Polo. Is that where they walnuts. throw the party for Carmela's cousin, who's an Italian ambassador? And they're trying to impress him and they're embarrassed at Tony. Tony is already moved out of the. Anyway, I'm, I may end up killing the show. Let's see. Hang on. I'm switching. Am I there? Yep, you're still here. Okay, just switch to the old software. Okay. There's no stutter or anything. Nothing? Good. All right, hang on for one second. And you can hear me. Yep, no troubles. All right. Uh, so you sent me... When did you send me the pictures? This is exciting. Six, 631. Okay. While you're grabbing them, I have an announcement to read. Uh, this Saturday, January 8th at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, Valley Vox Theater trips the light fantastic with widely acclaimed coming-of-age drama, The Fits. What is we'll that? Be, uh, uh, we'll be joined on location by film professor Nathan Skoll. And there's a question and answer will follow, we'll follow the film. And you can contact Valley Vox for a free Zoom link uh, ticket at Valley Vox on Twitter or email Valley Vox Theater at gmail.com okay well, this saturday all right so far so good you'll you'll notice that it's been a month since i've been able to you, do anything I since you've been telling me you're going to have it fixed this weekend yeah i know well it's <laughs> i need a new computer um okay i may shut this place down 
if I if I if I accidentally kill the show, well, blame Tom Weber in this tree. Okay, here we go. This may be the let's see. Stay strong and protect the weak in case Am I there? disappear. Yeah, you're here. Can well, we see that? Go. Yep, we can see. All it. right. Great. We're doing it all. School. What, <laughs> well, that's beautiful. What is that? Dude? Yeah. So this is from uh, Tom Weber. And it's uh, he says it's a water painting I did for my new granddaughter. Oh, yeah. That's so that's beautiful. awesome. Look at those mush. God, he's that's like, yeah, he's got the, yeah. He ate one of those before he painted this. Yeah, that's right. That's beautiful. <laughs> all right. This is it's working. We're still am I still on the you're doing Ooh. great. OK, thank you. Oh, that looks delicious. Whoa, this is from Glenn Costick and this is a uh, plantains. He says fried plantains with vanilla ice cream, blueberries, raspberries and maple syrup. Wow. He said, I bought I bought the plantain by mistake. Doesn't look <laughs> like a mistake to me. <laughs> well, he probably bought one and tried to eat it like a banana and taste it like a potato. Oh, and he's like, oh, oh boy, that's what happens. They're not sweet. Well, that looks sweet. All right. We're still doing this. Here we go. Are we? Oh, look at that. Yum. That's another one from Glenn. Yellow eye bean soup with potato and bacon. Wow. I'm hungry. Oh, it's got bacon in it, though. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here <laughs> <Next>. we go. <laughs> oh. This looks fantastic. Who who drew that? This is uh, from Benji's daughter Kira. So Kira's plant guardian on canvas, and uh, Benji says, "I'm still drawing stick figures. I hope all is well up in York." How old is his daughter? I'm not sure. I, I believe she's it's like, under 10. Yeah, I think she's a kid. That's amazing. Yep. Wow. Yep. Looks great. Remind me to call my children and yell at them. Because they're not good at anything? <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> oh, look at that. Ralph Vader and me. That's great. Who's on the show this week? So um, you can go visit RalphNaderRadioHour.com. And what we have this week is... David and Steve spend the hour reviewing the past year with Ralph and discussing what needs to be done for a better 2022. And the topics include a potential military threat to democracy, Joe Manchin, plutocracy, Boeing, Big Pharma. And uh, also, Ralph answers more of your questions that were not covered in the live Zoom from a couple weeks ago. Amazing. We also want to remind people to join up for the Congress Club, which is a, a, a blue banner off to the right-hand side of the website. You'll see. Yes. Very good. All right. All right. We're still going. Thank you, Dan Frankenberger. If you want to come in, oh, hang on, hang on. We're talking over. Here. How do people contact you? If you want to get anything on the community billboard, uh, just send the info to dentfeldman at gmail.com. And I still got a backlog from the last few weeks where I haven't been on it. Lane's got a bunch of art and stuff that's going to become non so Yeah. We got more stuff coming. So I, maybe I solved the problem. I think maybe I've solved the problem. We can start going using the old equipment, I think. Maybe. All right. Okay. You'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. That's our show. Thank you all for, for listening. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. I Let me just... 
I don't think I'm going to be able. Let me just see if I can run the old video. Okay. Thank you all. I'll see you Thursday. Sign up. Go to my website to attend a live taping. And don't forget office hours. I'm David Feldman. Stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. He'll tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Were you able to hear the music on that? Yeah, it looked good and it sounded good. Hmm. Maybe it's working again. Maybe I don't need a new computer. Thank you, everybody.